And welcome to another meeting of the Corona Committee, our meeting number 94. Uh, time to step on their feet. And we hear the idea of the decision makers that one should uh, introduce things slowly, step by step, getting a foot in the door, and then if there's no resistance, uh, push the door further open, for example, towards any totalitarian measures. And now we decided to step back on their feet to see if they twitch. We have interesting topics today. It's extremely many things that have happened. Sometimes um, <clears throat> we have the impression that things are speeding up, turning around ever faster. There is a Bundestag session planned to discuss mandatory vaccinations and in what form for the 18-year-old plus the 50-year-old plus or nothing. I would vote for nothing. In Poland, that whole topic has been done over again. Nobody talks about mandatory vaccinations there. I don't understand on what basis this should be introduced in Germany, but we'll keep this up. There's going to be a hearing and a session on that and a petition where there's going to be input and we're going to look at that topic as well. Rainer. Well, I'd be in favor of a vaccination um, mandate, uh, but only for everyone over 500, and then we can see whether it's a, uh, a circle or a square. Um, we don't know what it's supposed to be. We get other um, news as well that uh, the vaccination and masking and uh, distance a distancing uh, thing doesn't make any sense, not only from our echo chamber, um, but we have a short uh, video by the governor, governor of Florida uh, who tells his cabinet, um, um, uh, leave this nonsense with a, a mask away, it just looks silly. To wear those masks. I mean, please take it off. <laughs> Honestly, it's not doing anything. We got to stop with this COVID theater. So if you want to wear it, fine, but this is, a, this is ridiculous. All right, well, it's good to be at USF. Maybe there are still, or maybe again, some uh, clear heads who haven't stopped working um, uh, due to lack of oxygen. But now let's get started to uh, look at the question of the virus again. This time around, uh, Professor Kemmerer will say something about it. He will also go uh, into the antithesis. So the thesis on the one side is that there are viruses. It's been discussed for about 50 uh, years. Um, some genofunction tests with viruses have, uh, are supposed to have been made. Um, maybe there aren't any viruses. Uh, Dr. Stefan Lanka is an, an proponent of the thesis that there are the antithesis, that there is no virus, that there is no such thing as a virus. And uh, there are others like Dr. Andrew Kaufman and a few, a couple of other people. But outside of science, there are a number of people who are interested in this. I personally think that everything is possible, but there are some things that are more likely than others. And that why that's why I pointed out under the circumstances 
the um, court cases um, where uh, some um, courts in some countries still work. Um, that's why I pointed out that we have to go via the PCR test because that's the easiest way to prove that this is um, a staged thing. We don't only have three or four scientists who support this, but hundreds from across across the globe. Even though the other, although the other thesis is a bit more difficult, so we don't want to um, exclude anyone um, with their opinion. That's certainly not what we're doing in this committee. Everybody is allowed to have their opinion, but that also means that you might have to accept somebody saying, I don't share your opinion, I have a different view, and as long as you don't uh, go at each other's throats, that's okay. That's part of democracy, but it's also part of science. So let's get started. Wolfgang uh, is back again, and Ulrike is here. And at the end of the day, we'll probably have a few questions that we will have to direct at uh, Dr. Lanka, who will then be given enough time uh, to um, deal with them, and maybe um, he'll be available to answer those questions. I'd just like to add that I'm very interested in this topic. At the time when we talked about this again, I um had contacted mr lanka i think that was already in 2020 during summer and i visited him and i talked to him about this and i'm always very interested in new innovative things things that nobody had thought about before that's interesting and uh, that's why we are here because we have asked questions many others didn't ask so i think it's basically very interesting and that's why i think it's very good that we readdress this topic here and uh, it's important though that we look at what is there so to substantiate um, this counter thesis and that has to prove um, we can't just do that off the cuff um, it has to be evidence-based and against that background i think it's very important to take an open look at this and if that were the case it would be very fascinating because um, <clears throat> it would imply a lot of things or not uh, it may be just some kind of transmission principle or whatever so that would just uh, assign a different name to it um, so i would be very uh, grateful if we could approach this topic again from a different perspective yes i'm uh, very happy that professor ulrika camera has prepared something there to systematically show us from her point of view what you can look for what you can see and how this can be evaluated, what level of care needs to be used in order to prove things in science. And once they've been proven, there might be others who prove um, the opposite and how you can agree, then that is the discussion pro process, the ongoing discussion progress in uh, science. And let me remind us, uh, remind you of one thing, we're in war. Macron said we're in war against the viruses. So he defined the virus to be an enemy. That's not the first time around. It was the same with the bird flu when we were intimidated of so many deaths who might be caused by a virus. Same thing again with the swine flu. And in the meantime, it was tried again in Africa with Ebola. And now particularly uh, strong uh, through COVID-19. Uh, it's been uh, defined as a, an enemy. Um, the SARS uh, virus has been uh, defined as an enemy, and the, the PCR test shows where it is. 
And now we have the discussion of whether this enemy uh, exists in the first place. That's one the that's an extreme position. The uh, another position that I could offer is: is it an enemy at all? Um, and how do we handle this? Depending on your point of view, you might have a different opinion. And we uh, observe this um, with experiments because we can't see these things. And depending on which experiments you use, you may see something different. There's a nice image. Uh, if somebody walks through the forest, they can observe it. And if you uh, produce wood because that's your livelihood, then you have a, a certain perspective going through the forest. Um, you look at what you can use. Another person walks through the forest and hears the birds sing and sees a different uh, thing. It really depends on what perspective you take, what tools you need, uh, you use to look at things. And um, Ulrike Kemmerer, in her lab and uh, throughout her um, career, has been looking at the immune system and what can activate the uh, immune system, i.e. bacteria or viruses or other agents. She's been uh, working on that very intensively and it's. I'm very happy that she's in injecting some scientific knowledge and quality into this discussion because that's what we need. And myself, as a pneumologist, um, who uh, looks at um, uh, healing, I'm not a scientist, of course, um, I'm very happy to have Ulrike here uh, speaking to us from that point of view. Yes, I will try my best. Um, I've prepared a couple of uh, charts to uh, on the topic, what are viruses really? I did study biology in the beginning because I wanted to do that and uh, I specialized on virology then, but uh, after my post uh, graduation time, I left that topic, not because it was not interesting, because at the time uh, it was difficult to find uh, posts at the time and you had to find something to pay your rent from. Virology was a bit difficult at the time, but <coughs> it is still an interesting topic. So first of all, I'd like to show what are viruses. I'll switch off my camera, uh, my internet connection is not very stable at the moment, and I'll show my charts instead. <clears throat> so I hope you can see um, what I have prepared here. I can see we have to, can you see the whole chart? I can only see the zoom. Okay. So I thought that, first of all, the question is, what are viruses? Viruses, uh, as Wolfgang has mentioned, are described as enemies. But they are no enemies, really. Uh, viruses are just like anything else, like cells, like uh, um, uh, other parts of our life, um, are part of our life. They are part of us. And they are, they have developed to us, with us together during evolution. And a big part of these, at the moment, we know that 8% of the germ, the human genome, um, is parts of viral uh, parts, uh, viral genes. <clears throat> so these <coughs> have been. Um, taken into the into the human genome over 
um, the course of um, development. For example, the human placenta would not be possible without um, these information from viral genes. There is um, now uh, 83 million uh, virologists. Um, so let me start with a s fundamental information. What are viruses made of? So what are viruses? To start off, viruses, um, um, my old the boss said it's singular, the virus, and not viruses. So if we said uh, the German um, article, the masculine article, it's wrong, it's uh, Neuter. So these are organic particles consisting, always consisting of two parties, uh, nucleic acids and proteins, and sometimes fat. But important is that they don't have their own metabolism. So by definition, they are not alive. They're also not dead. They are their own form of existence. They are spatially uh, well-defined outside of cells. We see a few here, a virus that would Ebola, uh, rabies viruses, and these are other types. These are naked viruses. I'll come to that in a minute. So clearly defined outside of cells in space and in this um, condition they are uh, infectious but they can't replicate uh, to replicate they are dependent on a host cell and um, then we talk about the uh, replicatory virus that is crucial and there are different types of viruses and depending on their specialization, they will uh, select a, an animal, a bacteria, or whatever. Animals is what we are part of. Viruses uh, consist of the genome, that is a um, definition of the inheriting um, uh, information with a clear organization that is either DNA um, or it is uh, um, RNA, which is the case in SARS-CoV-2, with the replication program that uh, describes how the viruses breed and how they uh, can produce copies of themselves. And beyond that, they have a so-called capsule, the nucleocapsid, which has a defined number of proteins. And these proteins envelop the genome and form the docking station for the receptors on the suitable host cells. Only if I have this, I have the basic virus. And then some of these viruses have a shell, which is usually taken from the host cell that they have replicated in and usually um, they put virus proteins in and in these capsulated coronaviruses we see the spikes on the um, surface which are then built into the membrane. Some examples of uh, virons here, some internet pictures, these are the ones that I worked with, picornaviruses, so-called naked viruses, and you see they are all identical. The difference is if they uh, are shaped in a different way, that's the envelope, which is like a uh, jumpsuit, a gym suit, and that can have different sizes. 
the corner, picorner viruses, naked viruses, are very small, 22 to 30 nanometers. A bit bigger are the adenoviruses, but they are all identical as well, because the core is always identical according to the blueprint. And in uh, herpes viruses, for example, the uh, envelopes are added, they can differentiate much. The shell has a bright range, a wide range, depending on where you see them. If you cut them here or there, um, they have different sizes. These uh, varicella zoster viruses, which is the uh, splendor um, virus that, uh, if you measure it here, it would have a different dimension than here. Um, but the core and nuclear is very uh, structures. The biggest ones are the smallpox viruses. So, but again, depending on where I measure, the uh, size of the virus varies muchly. And the coronaviruses are very nicely structured. But again, if I look at the uh, shell, uh, I have big variation again. And so if they are enveloped, they don't look the same. Um, as naked viruses would do. And now the question is also, is there isolates and how to isolate viruses? And I would like to look at the three main areas. I said we can uh, use them as, um, they can use host cells from bacteria, plants, or animals. And a fascinating type of virus are the so-called bacteriophages or phages. Um, they look like a bit of an Apollo uh, sphere. This is what they would like look like from a bacteria. These are viruses which are specialized on bacteria. And these bacteriophages, if you want to grow them, you have to do a, um, a, a culture, a growth culture. Um, and if they can grow here, you see it by the nutrient liquid being clear because all the bacteria die. And in a um, dish, petri dish, you have this uh, dish with a nutrient fluid. This is what the early bacteriologist Koch and others did, that you gr um, grow them here and they build this uh, opaque uh, liquid. So that is a uh, flowering of uh, the bacteria. And if I put the fogs on, they create these holes. Each hole is a place where these bacteriophages multiply so they can uh, go on one bacteria and then go to the next, dissolve it, and so on and so on. And as it can't move as freely here, like it can in this bottle, you see these individual holes here. So that's a typical titration where you can say so and so many phagases are on this dish. They are interesting um, because they open a new type of therapy. Well, it's not quite new, really. It was um, researched and used in the former Soviet Union because bacteriophages can um, create and dissolve um, antibiotic-resistant uh, bacteria. And in Tiflis, which is the last bastion of that know-how so far, um, we they have been doing this for a long time. You can just take it uh, from uh, um, a sewage channel, take a water, 
um, uh, sample and that is given to the patient sample. So from the patient, we grew the bacteria which are in some wounds that don't want to heal and can be treated with antibacteria. And then in the sewage test, um, you check if there is any um, uh, faga that kill these, and these can be grown and then used as a therapeuticum for the patient. That is, of course, individualized medicine. And that is why in the so-called West, it is not as widespread. The French are starting to work in this area. Here also there was an article in a German newspaper, um, Georgian Fagus as a replacement for antibiotica or a um, show on art uh, whether viruses can save lives. So there's quite a good uh, media coverage on this and this is how I came up with this as a form of therapy. So uh, especially the bacterial fakes, um, in the future, if we could continue with that, for these many multi-resistancy problems in clinic life, that could be a solution because they individually um, um, treat the bad bacteria in the patients, in individual patients. These phages, it's quite fascinating. It's the first time I hear about this, or maybe I heard some hint about it, but I never understood. Well, how fast do they kill the bacteria? When, when, if they were applied in humans now, and you have such a virulent bacterial infection, for instance, with a resistant germ, how fast can they hit it? This was that film which I mentioned on Arte. They that um, it's quite a while ago, somebody had a wound in the foot which wouldn't heal away. And so they were thinking to amputate the foot. And then by accident, they found out that this is done in Georgia and sent some sample of the tissue from the patient. And within a couple of days only, they were able to find the proper phagas uh, and uh, grew them up and uh, prepared them and in their pocket, uh, took them back to France. And then it took a week for the wounds to close and heal off. And um, the guy still has his foot. So that is a great opportunity, but it is individual, it's manual. And uh, so this is why um, it was done in the Soviet Union and was carried on and now in Georgia. Um, they have a, a group in Lyon who starts to do that and, of course, try to do that in industrial scales. However, that's very interesting to see what one can do with viruses. So the second group of viruses that I have no personal experience with is plant viruses. This is why I have took a work from 93 here just um, as this is from the author, Mr. Lunker, and he shows here like in a brown algae, uh, he uh, split it up in a musk culture and had one algae which had uh, viruses as an infectant and the other wasn't. And then he found that the non-infected algae was infected as well. And over a couple of weeks, he did this mass culture. And on the electron microscope, he could photograph these viruses and uh, isolate them. So 
When I read this, I thought about this, and um, the initial author um, is someone who um, says now there are no viruses, but here he worked with it. So if you are a scientist and you scientist and you come to the conclusion that you've found something that doesn't exist in the past, you know it has not. It's not true. It doesn't exist then they should either retract their publication and say, take that out of the databases or at least write an erratum. Uh, that is something to be expected. As long as this is published and valid, we should assume that these viruses actually do exist. Otherwise, uh, the magazine Virogely is very good news. So either they should do a retraction or an erratum, and that has not taken place so far. Uh, so that that's an interesting point here. There's a second work um, from 94 where he describes this, but this uh, one includes the nice pictures here. Ulrike, uh, it seems important to me uh, to see that the text itself doesn't say uh, the term virus, but under the image it says virus uh, particle. Is that a picture by Lanka or did somebody else put the text in there? No, no, that's a work from that work quoted here in Virology. Um, I've downloaded it as a PDF, and uh, the text is um, just taken out, the image is taken out, and this algae is something that I copied from elsewhere. Um, but it's a clear description here of what that algae is called, and uh, we can find the pictures to that. Well, I'm uh, referring concretely to uh, what it says underneath the uh, the image, the caption, virus particle. Um, so that's not from you, but from the original Lanka. Yes, that's quite right. I never worked with plant viruses, and we find this picture here, all the experiments in this uh, magazine, uh, in this article here, Virology, that's uh, volume 193, page uh, 802, from uh, 89. Uh, and that talks about mass cultures, so that means he has was able to replicate these viruses. It says already major uh, plant uh, virus expression, so it, it refers to viruses here, basically. Okay, that's interesting, but that would be a question we need to ask him. Well, the journal Virology, you only publish there if you, you know, Virology. Well, it could be the case that uh, he def would define it differently now, or he says it's the mechanism that he describes. I think it's a question we could ask him. We'll just ask him. We'll, we'll collect the uh, questions, and then there'll probably be answers. Okay, I just wanted to point this out, that then the question is, will he stay with that? Is it viruses? Or if not, then uh, we would have uh, do what we ask of Mr. Drosten with his PCR. If you publish something that is not as good, or there is a decision that um, this was a mistake, that should be retracted or errated. And uh, that's a normal course of science. And... Um, that's nothing special. Um, this is not um, judging, it's just uh, reporting, really. So now um, we have animal pathogenic viruses, and of course that includes the human pathogenic uh, viruses which are grown in cell cultures. And here, as we are now looking at SARS-CoV-2 all the time, as if there weren't anything else, um, 
I looked at what is known here and here in the uh, magazine Viruses quite early in May 2020. There was a very good article which was called Propagation, Inactivation and Safety Testing of SARS-CoV-2. And that means very early on, here they write, uh, here we report methods used to grow SARS-CoV-2. In uh, multiple cell lines, tend to measure virus infectivity by plug assay using either agarose or microcrystalline cellulose. So this is the um, carrier material, and I said this. Um, I shown this in bacterial faga. Um, that's where we take that uh, floor of uh, bacteria and in animals we have to use the respective host cells and these are grown in cell culture dishes and here if there are viruses that replicate in these and lose the cells then uh, these holes are created and if we could see these holes uh, then it's a crystal violet, which is a coloring to color the cells. And we see here these have been diluted 10 by uh, 5 or 10 by 6. And uh, here we can clearly see that the viruses could be filtrated. These are the different size of the dishes with different cell cultures that where they were grown in. And here we see the patient samples which were grown in cell cultures and the how they were harvesters and centrifuge to take the cell um, debris off and deactivated it so that they could get out of the free L, the L3 laboratory until here it's high security levels. They were then uh, attenuated um, spin at uh, um, 100,000 um, uh, times of gravity and then we have this here the sedimentation and that is the virus pellet and this pellet is then uh, looked at in the electron microscope so we soothe the virus particles here uh, of course there's a little dirt in it 100 percent is what you never get and here you have the immunologic uh, characterization of the antibody uh, test the nucleocapsid the nucleocorticine and the anti antibody gene of that spike protein and all these steps in the end uh, they have been sequenced and so that's actually the SARS-CoV-2 viruses. So that's a very good work which clearly shows uh, how to work with human viruses and uh, how to enrich them. May I ask a question? These antibodies, couldn't that be um, some sort of um, circular conclusion uh, or what's it, what's it called? How were the antibodies identified if you first want to identify the virus? Now, how is that? How, how can you do that? Well, normally, uh, the Chinese quite early on um, looked at other patients, took the serum of other patients to get the antibodies. 
and uh, said, okay, if there's all of a sudden such a lot of these IgG, it has to be correlated with that infection and took that. But of course, it's clear I could take the adenovirus, call it SARS-CoV-2 and say, I'll inject that into an animal and do my antibody tests uh, and cultures with that. Uh, of course, that means you have to have trust in that the virus have been um, sequenced and isolated and assigned properly in the beginning. And due to that original viruses, the antibodies have been produced on what has come from, from Wuhan. It's correct that uh, they are identified via sequencing and differentiated by um, sequen uh, sequencing, but that the antibodies uh, can only indicate, well, it's been there. Yes, in that case, if I do it this way, as shown here, the antibodies, of course, I have to test with uh, monitoring. If I establish an antibody, I need many, many, many controls. I need all the uh, close uh, coronaviruses, which are similar. I have to look at the different cells, and it must never react. It must only react to this isolate, and then I know it's specific enough. Yeah, there's... Um of course, not so easy to do this, of course. This is, of course, uh, uh, highly specific uh, uh, produced in the laboratory. This is being used now uh, to work in pathology to uh, prove the spike. Uh, uh, that, that can be, that's commercially available now, uh, the nucleocapsid and the spike. And if I get a heart tissue of somebody who died of a myocarditis, but who has not done any anamnesis for infection with uh, SARS-CoV-2, if I find the spike and the person got the injection, BioNTech or Moderna, uh, then if I find the spike protein, Without the nucleocapsid, I can assume that the spike is from the vaccination. If I find the nucleocapsid at the same time, the person may have actually had a uh, severe cause of the disease because if I only find only if I find both together, the virus was actually there. And that's what these body antibody tests are useful. So this is a standard laboratory method, and if the antibodies are good and they have been well checked, and I assume this is the case, then actually this is a trustworthy source. If that is not the case, you cannot believe in anything anymore. But let's assume they did their work properly, and it all looks quite realistic, really, all of that work. So as said, uh, that was already done in May 20, very early on. Okay, and then the question always is, if there is infection change, infectious change, can we make other people ill with viruses? And if you're interested in this, there's a good work by uh, Lampkin-Williams, published in 2018. Respiration Research is the magazine, and that um, is so-called challenging experiments. You take... Uh, uh, test people and you want to test the vaccination, they are vaccinated and then you're exposed to the virus. Um, typically, um, in flu viruses, you would inject it into the nose or spray it into the nose. 
and uh, then you check whether the people get sick and if you want to test medication from a certain point on you can check the um, uh, drugs and then you f get an outcome this is how the challenging experiments work and I have um, copied this. The English people do a lot of that. Each virus is propagated under GMP conditions, which is these highly purified conditions. And interestingly, uh, in this case, this was a challenging experiment with flu viruses done over uh, a um, cleaned with a number of passages and uh, intubized and the uh, similarity between the virus of the um, test people and re-isolated and the initial uh, strain has to be identical and then we can say what happened here is actually clean and uh, unanimous um, so with the tested uh, test people beforehand and the test virus and all of this was uh, done very early on again for example this is a work from 89 already where they actually took flu viruses because they wanted to check a uh, drug to suppress viral infects and they did sterile nasal wash pool from uh, pooled patients and grew um, the uh, humane rhinovirus um, type 9, one of the flu viruses, and then they did a serial of international nasal passages. So they took uh, volunteers and infected them with the virus, isolated and uh, um, infected the next group and so on until it was a very purified uh, serum type 9 uh, production and all other by uh, viruses have been eliminated. So very early this was done that the infection chain was uh, grown, taking the virus on the first patient, uh, purifying it, giving it to a volunteer, they get their uh, flu and from the um, saliva we can take that and um, do it again and again. So this is the process behind it and they also looked at the uh, volunteers develop significant cold symptoms. Interestingly, if they used a lot of tissues um, and got symptoms uh, like a sore throat or sneezing, nasal stuffiness, typical cold syndromes. And I've uh, looked at this from different aspects of that work. Here we see the viral uh, infection in day three and day four. People who didn't get anything got their flu. And this was the clinical symptoms that increased. Uh, you know this, um, you get uh, a flu and your nose starts running. And the same was the uh, um, saliva and the, uh, the sample was taken. And also it was interesting to note that the patients or the probants at this time, the volunteers, um, uh, developed antiviruses, antibodies against the viruses. Uh, so this type of experiment was done very early on, usually with uh, cold viruses, flu viruses, to develop 
medication here, uh, the um, medication delays uh, the um, cold, uh, but a couple of days later on it actually happened. So these are challenging experiments um, that have also been done with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, published on 1st of February, I think in the beginning that was addition, is that ethical to um, vaccinate or to infect healthy people with this so-called deadly virus? Again, the English uh, did a lot here and uh, they infected 18 individuals. I don't want to go through all the details of what they did here, um, but uh, they took the virus and sprayed it into the nose where it usually arrives and uh, did the challenging experiments. This is what it looked like. Um, so from one patient, they took the SARS-CoV-2 smear, uh, grew it in the viral cells, and then they did the centrifugation steps uh, without um, inactivation and enriched it, sequenced it, characterized it, grew it in the cell culture, and so on. Everything that you need to do to characterize it, and um, that's how they find it. And this is how it's in the database now. And then uh, it was again clear, cleansed, clarified, again characterized, and then there was a, it was purified, and then it was uh, put in droplets. That's well, great. So we can sell them, and if you use them, you um, are recovered, actually. Yes, that uh, actually would work with this, um, uh, working with the attenuated vaccines. Um, but if you have a low dosage here, and the probons have typical flu syndromes only, that's what they got, nothing else. Actually, that could have done it. Yes, true. So, uh, again, here at this height, dosage here, or the direct uh, insertion of the purified virus, only half of, a bit over the half of the volunteers, I think 10 probably, um, did develop flu symptoms. And from these, these were patients, uh, because they were sick, uh, they got the viruses isolated, and then uh, by the uh, forming assays, focus forming assays is what it's called, uh, they were filtrated and counted, and that was done. That's what we asked for with re, uh, the result of the RT uh, QPCR. Um, that is a very good word. Every That's openly available. Everybody can download that work if they're interested in how. Now, coming to the question how to do that with the experiments, um, who can assess these and so on. This is not a virological laboratory, but that's my workspace, really. I work in this with lots of cell cultures. And so in this case, I do dare to uh, assess what I'm seeing. I've been working in this. I've spent thousands of hours on the microscope looking at cell cultures. This is what this type of work looks like. That's what you would do with viruses work, with viruses as well. You would grow these in these bottles and harvest them and put these in these little um, uh, caps here and put them um, in the assays here and count them, all of that in sterile um, workbenches, depending on the level that we are on. 
and uh, what uh, risk of uh, safety it has. I worked in an L3 laboratory. That was uh, quite something because we were always scared that we would harm ourselves, but um, it doesn't if you are careful. So now the thesis, and that is the thesis that um, is the topic. Um, there are no viruses. They are only exosomes of perishing cells, and the virologists do not control do not do controlled experiments. And uh, this uh, uh, trial of control was mentioned by Hoffman and Lanka and others. And um, I have uh, got that um, request for a number of times uh, unsolicited, saying I ask all the experts to do these control tests and publish them. I have done, uh, concepted a control experiment, and the crucial point, and that's what we all want here, the results end the corona crisis immediately. That's what's highlighted here in the box at the top, at the bottom. And the question is, if they would know how to end it, if they do it, why do we still stuck in this shit? Um, uh, and uh, why didn't they stop it? That would be a question that I'd be interested in hearing the answer of. So what does the experiment look like? Uh, I looked for it. The only thing that I found, and this is in many uh, pages of a book by a um, person called uh, Tom Kovan, who's on the line. Uh, there are no... Um, uh, viruses, what is all this? There's uh, eight cell culture images here, and the point is that the psychopathic uh, effect here is um, interpreted as viruses, misinterpreted as viruses. If I look at this as an expert for a newspaper or a journal, then um, I would come up with certain questions, which I noted here. What uh, do we see here? What are the cells? Um, if I look at this from cell biologic point of view, I have to ask the following questions. If you um, want to repeat this, um, one is the cells are very, very dense. You would never start an experiment that way. This is 100% confluence. If I cultivate that uh, five days, uh, the normal cells would look like that. There's no indication given here. Um, this is so close. Uh, what does that mean? There's many, many cells in it, or what do you want to say? Well, cells have a uh, contact inhibition. Um, benign cells and uh, malevolent cells, uh, malign cells, um, only grow into one direction. Once they uh, get into contact with each other, they start dying off as well. So in a cell culture, if I start an experiment, I start with a uh, moment of confluence, 60 to 70 percent maximum. Um, the images are bad, but that, though the, those are the best ones I could find. They're uh, really close to each other. Normally, you'd start a cell culture where you have here a few cells, here and there, but that you, in principle, only have 60 to 70 percent of the area covered by cells, and the rest is free, so they have space to grow over the next few days without being inhibited by this density already. Now, this um, doesn't give the information uh, what medium was used. Uh, did it have FCS? Um, it says here was there glutamine in it, um, a glutamax, uh, that's a, a stable glutamine. So for this row, uh, we lack the conditions that uh, this was performed under. And uh, here, 
Amazingly, it says that yeast RNA was added. I've never heard why yeast RNA should be added there. That would be an interesting uh, piece of information to know what what is yeast RNA uh, supposed to do here, what difference does it make? And then the very um, basic question, which cell line is it or is it primary cells? And if so, uh, where from? And which passage? So the cells that are grown uh, very densely need to be uh, divided so they can uh, keep growing. That's called passage. Now, uh, which antibiotic, uh, um, it only says anti antibiotics. There is one antibiotic that causes these, uh, th this patchy growth um, itself already in cell, cu cell cultures, which has been published before. So in order to replicate this experiment, these basic points would have to be indicated in detail. Because up to here, all I can show, um, I, I can follow this only if I give three ant antibiotics and starve the cells. Uh, this serum, these are uh, growth factors. Here we only have 1% of the serum, here 10%, uh, here 20 uh, So if we take a look at these fields, we can only say if we m mistreat the cells, they have a problem. But I can also uh, achieve that with cytostatica or other things. So that definitely doesn't allow me uh, to say anything in favor or against viruses, the existence or presence of viruses. So if that was the case, uh, they'd be here. And uh, in order to be able to uh, evaluate this uh, scientifically, we have to see uh, where's the sequencing here, where's the uh, image, uh, imaging proof. And from the Cohen book, I saw that I found this image from. So it says this outcome can only mean that the CPE uh, that was based on um, this uh, culture. I fully agree here. Uh, this effect is only created by the cell culture conditions, but it doesn't mean that there are no viruses there or any viruses in there. And then uh, we have this big question mark here. He was able to show that any RNA virus genome, uh, genome can be found. But if uh, there was real uh, RNA virus there, then it needs to be pu uh, published. So the question is, where is the virus RNA? Where are the sequences uh, that were found in this uh, psychopathic uh, cell culture? And we need this uh, to be able to say, on the basis of these uh, destroyed uh, cells, um, there is um, a virus genome. So I can all I can say is that it's a cyto cytopathic effect. It has nothing to do with viruses per se. And if we want to prove that there are viruses there, then I have to show the viruses or whatever you call this. What does psychopathic mean? That means cell toxic. So the cells are damaged or destroyed. So in this case, it would be theoretically possible after the or taking the assumption that all the pseudo viruses, RNAs, I could find HIV, I could find uh, flu, influenza, whatever. So now the proof should be there that uh, it's all in there, is it? So that the cell is full of jokers. 
Well, if that is true, that has to be shown. So from these cytopathic cells, the sequencing needs to be done. And then it says, I have uh, found corona, I have found pocona, I have found uh, retroviruses. I found everything. That's what it should say. So this is, if I do say something very interesting as a statement, I wouldn't exclude this. Poorly treated cells um, could have endogene retroviruses reactivated, obviously, quite clearly, but all of them, I really need to have the results, and the, that is where are the sequences. So the statement made at the top here uh, is untenable, because if I claim this, I have to give proof. Is That's uh, scientific practice. So that would mean if I had this for any other reason, I would have a stressful reaction here. If I could show a virus in a person, then uh, if the situation is that the cells are stressed in general because the person is sick or whatever, then in that case, I would possibly find more viruses in one go, if that were the reason. Is that right? Um, then the question is why it is limited to the uh, live object, uh, that it's only HIV or only flu that can be shown and in that, uh, not in that multiplex test. So there must be one specific type of stress in the live person so that I only have this one sequence that I can show. Is that right? And there's uh, the theory of the specific toxic effect that creates certain uh, damage in the cell that looks like there was uh, a virus in there. That's the theory. And then it would have to be subject to replication that with certain toxic effects on the cell that um, this doesn't uh, give the same result as if you have a, a virus uh, um, effect um, where you would look for certain uh, consequences of a virus that can be replicated. Yeah, but if you look at these uh, pictures here, after five days, uh, it's more holes, or is that a zoom up, or, or what's that? Is that the same zoom? The right picture has many, has bigger holes. What's that? No, it's been treated in a different way. Um, as I said, we can't make a statement because we don't have the base data. But concerning the psycho, uh, psychopathic um, effects, uh, as whenever I uh, cultivate them too long without um, feeding them, they will die. And if I add viruses or microplasmas or uh, viruses, that can have a similar uh, effect. Um, even though the cytopathic effect uh, of viruses is not like this one, they look more fuzzy. It looks like as if they'd been uh, bitten into along the margin. So this is not the classical cytopathic effect like uh, you would expect it with viruses. So you could um, put some viruses at the top here. I, I uh, take some uh, viruses. That's something you could do. Um, you just um, dump some viruses on this and then you would, should have the same uh, effect. So there's a number of things that would have to be done. I um, I won't read through everything here. Everybody can um, read through this. Uh, we can uh, just stop the um, the images um, with 
current technology. Um, so you can perform all of these tests. Now, what's crucial is that if I want to maintain the thesis that viruses are only exosomes that um, result uh, upon cell death uh, through um, starvation, then the uh, cell cultures should lead to uh, particles that are at least similar to what I just showed that we can see under the electron microscope. And these particles would have to include a defined nucleic acid, which can be sequenced and would have to show at least some similarity in the database with a sequenced a gene sequence. And um, crucially, if on the uh, basis of this uh, dead cell culture, I take a sample, I would have to start this again to show whether it does or doesn't contain viruses. So these are experiments that can be performed and they have not been performed in order to corroborate this experiment. And then you can also uh, order a so-called virus isolate from a, a defined uh, tissue um, bank. And I've, I've ordered uh, ATCCC uh, from uh, the US at the time. Uh, you can't just order a SARS-CoV-2 because you don't necessarily have an L3 lab that you can uh, work on, uh, work in, and it has to be documented. And with this uh, protocol, you could then um, allow an independent lab to repeat your um, experiment. And that is what you need appropriate documentation for in a um, specialized publication. And if this control experiment then is performed correctly, then the question is, what's the upshot? Um, either uh, the thesis is confirmed that the staff cell cultures uh, lead to uh, new particles forming that look like the virus structure and that have a clear defined, uh, viruses have a clearly defined DNA or RNA, RNA uh, sequence. Um, and it can be segmented or unsegmented, DNA or an RNA, and I can show this and I have to see whether it's a viral or an RNA or a DNA, which is according to what has been termed a virus in the past. And they have to be infectious and uh, subject to titration. And if that is not the case, then the answer would be no. The uh, correctly performed control experiments show no viral particles. That would be interesting. In case one, we would have change of paradigm. And this could then be uh, published. I would like uh, ha be happy to help uh, in this uh, sort of work. That would be very interesting. In the other case, it was an interesting control experiment. But then we've also shown um, for sure that this uh, is true. But the discussion whether there are viruses or not should be postponed until we have given the experimental proof rather than continuing the discussion before we've done that, because then uh, it doesn't lead anywhere. Good. Just a second. That's comprehensible. That was very good. Thank you for clarifying that and qualifying and uh, adding quality to that um, discussion. I'm looking forward to carry it forward. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. We will reword this, um, Viviana and myself, and then we'll pass on these questions uh, through Corbin, and then hopefully 
uh, be able to perform this control experiment. Well, we had invited Dr. Lanka again. Maybe this is the better approach because the the whole thing uh, seems to have an emotional com uh, component. Not with me. I don't care one way or the other. But as the whole thing has a, a emotional component, uh, without uh, it would make sense to ask uh, people separately here. Maybe even three. <laughs> uh, yes, and then it makes sense. Um, for us to forward the questions, giving enough time, you can say it takes me one week or two or three uh, to do this, and then we can discuss again with him. Yeah, I mean, these things should be available, really. <clears throat> yeah, I fully understand this. Only after a, a control experiment that can be um, verified can we um, approach this question of whether or not uh, there are viruses. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to discuss this. Well, uh, the experiment has to be done. Um, there should be enough money if I can uh, um, award so much money to uh, take the award, then one could take uh, some of that money to do these experiments. So I think that plays the ball to the field of those people who um, want to and have to show that this virus concept, which in the past is a thesis, um, has to be reviewed. That's quite clear. But maybe uh, this is happening. Maybe uh, there has been such a control experiment, hasn't been published uh, well enough, and the information might be available. For me, that is fully comprehensible. This is the uh, test of the example here. This control experiment has to be done in a verifiable way, and then we have to rethink or being done, and then we have to justify and verify. Thank you, Ulrike, and thank you, Wolfgang. Well, great. So we bid you goodbye. And now we will turn to a completely different but maybe connected uh, site of war in the real sense of the word, literally. What is going on in Ukraine? Is that probably uh, possibly staged by the same people? Which doesn't mean that it hasn't been taken seriously. It would be even worse. Is it staged by the same people who staged Corona? And what uh, can we think of the people who are, without any critique, say, I'm standing by Ukraine and who had no problem in getting their children vaccinated? Um, who should be helped? Or is it just a paroles here? To set you off into the topic, before Harley Schlinger joins us, um, picture, an image, which I think is very good and iconic, um, showing Harrison Ford, He's the one of the um, big films with two glass balls, one being coronavirus and the other the Ukraine crisis. So is one panic replacing the other now? Um, that's what we could ask looking at this question, at this image. And we have a very short video which I think is very convincing in any way. A young English woman wonders on a couple of things. So, I just wanted to get something straight. You took one of these because you were told to, and you wore one of these because you were told to. You endured lockdowns because you were told to. Didn't see family and friends because you were told not to. 
Even though our kids' mental health was going through the roof, but that didn't matter, that wasn't worth defending, because we were told to do these things. Yeah? Over the past two years, our human rights have been stripped away from us. And we've ignored deaths from an experiment. But you didn't defend that, because the media told you not to. The media told you those lives didn't matter. And now we've got adults virtue signalling the shit out of the Russia-Ukraine situation. And now you're all for love and peace and humanity and freedom. I stand with Ukraine. No, you don't. You don't stand for fucking anything. You didn't even defend your own freedoms and the freedoms of your children when we needed it the most. So, um, let's now turn to Harley Schlinger. I find this um, I find this very short clip extremely convincing. Uh, I mean, in the context of everything that we've learned in this, uh, in our work here at the Corona Com uh, Investigative Committee, I find it extremely convincing. Let us now turn to Harley Schlinger. Um, he's the vice president of the Schiller Institute in the United States. He's the spokesman for the LaRouche organization, and he's going to take a closer look at Russia's military operations in Ukraine. And uh, maybe it was just a pretext to launch pre-planned financial economic warfare against a leaning opponent, a leading opponent to the unipolar order. Um, it could have been planned for months, a leading U.S. senior official admitted by March 1st. National security and sovereignty is unacceptable to those who demand that all nations submit to their great reset, naturally. They are now resorting to psychological warfare and censorship to blind the people to the danger humanity faces if there is no move to a new security and financial architecture. Um, Provocative thesis, uh, Mr. Schlanger, uh, what do you think? What do you say to this? All right, can you hear me? Yes, now we can hear you. Great to have you with us. Thank you for accepting, okay. accepting our invitation. Well, thank you for the invitation. And then, as I understand it, my role here is to present some of the what my colleagues and I call the big picture, yes. which is behind the tumult and turbulence in the world today, in, including the inflation, including the push for the Great Reset, the Green New Deal, and the use of the Ukraine situation to bring to heel two of the leading opponents of the Great Reset and the Green New Deal. Now, very few people have a, a sense of this picture because the history of the recent era has been told by the people who are responsible for these calamities. And what we've done and what I've devoted my last 40 years of my life to is uncovering who is running these policies, the, the globalization policies, the merger, you might say, the marriage between British imperial geopolitics and neoliberalism, and what effect that has on the ability of citizens to actually carry out policy, as opposed to submitting meekly to the imposition from above. Now, I think the battle today has to be seen in the context of four or 500 years or even longer of history as a battle between 
advocates of Republican institutions, that is institutions of self-government, as opposed to an oligarchy, which rules from the top down for the benefit of the few. One of the great events in human history was the American Revolution, which followed in the footsteps of such uh, previous movements as the Renaissance, the uh, establishment of the modern nation state, the principle of Westphalia, which basically said that every nation must, must act in the interests of the other, and the drafting of the American Constitution, which created for the first time an institutional commitment to the idea of the general welfare of the population. That is that the people have the responsibility to determine policy. Now, that's what the fight is about today. Who makes the policy? And I wanna give a, a brief historical background to what's happened since the, the, the probably the beginning of the 20th century. And, and I mean brief, but to, to hit some of the highlights to give people a sense of where we are today, because none of this is available to you in the universities or in the certainly not in the media, in the discussions among heads of state, certainly not in the Congress, which is a, a ship of fools, in my opinion. So we've been engaged in this, the LaRouche organization, for 40, 50 years, since the late 60s, when Mr. LaRouche identified the emergence of what we call today the Green Movement or environmentalism as an attack on science and on the idea of technological progress. And underlying it was what we identify as a Malthusian outlook. And by Malthusian, I'm sure many of you people listening know, we're talking about the British philosopher economist who is basically a paid hitman for the British East India Company, who argued that population growth will outstrip the resources to keep people alive. And therefore you have to reduce population to enable the few to have a better life. Now we've seen this reemerge over and over and over, especially in the period in the 20th century with the eugenics movement and so on. So let me just give you a, a brief history uh, from our perspective, which I think is highly relevant for the work that you're doing. Now you, you start with the end of the 19th century and the creation in the British Empire of this idea of geopolitics, which was essentially that for the British Empire to sustain its control of trade and finances, you could never allow an alliance between Eurasian countries and European countries. In particular, they were threatened by the idea of the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad and the Transcontinental Railroad in the United States as a model for the Trans-Siberian Railroad. The idea of France, Germany, and Russia being unified was a direct threat to the control of the British of trade and finance using the ocean, using sea, sea power as, as the basis of its power. And in 1904, a man named Mackinder delivered a, a speech, the geographical pivot of history, which laid this out and became the policy of the British Empire to pit France and Russia against Germany, and which was committed to bringing the United States in on the side of France and Russia, and of course the United Kingdom against Germany. And that was the basis of World War I. Now in the interwar years, you had policy defined by the Treaty of Versailles, which essentially punished Germany, but more importantly represented the triumph 
of what I would call corporatist ideology. And there was a specific term that was used in identifying this at that time, which was called synarchy, S-Y-N-A-R-C-Y. Very few people today know this term. It's been written out of history. But if you go back through the records of the intelligence community that was emerging during the Franklin Roosevelt administration, they used this term to describe the use of left and right wing supposedly opposition, but nevertheless to divide the, the population in such a way that the corporate cartels could rule without fear of interruption. It was largely centered at 120 Broadway in the United States. It included the Wall Street banks, the London banks, names such as Harriman, Rockefeller, uh, Morgan, DuPont, and these were people who essentially in the interwar period established the trusts with the Germans, which ultimately put Hitler in power and which carried out the eugenics experiments, which were so dear to these networks. Before the Nazi experiments with eugenics, in fact, before the Nazis came to power, the center of eugenics research was done in the United States funded especially by the Rockefeller and Harriman interests. And one of the associates of the Harrimans was a man named Prescott Bush, who later became a senator from Connecticut, the father of one president and the grandfather of another. And it was the Harriman Bush Bank, the Union Bank of New York, which provided funds through Fritz Thyssen that helped Hitler come to power. So this is not just a, a conspiracy theory. There are documents, documents which now are being hidden, by the way, in the National Archives, which showed that in 1942, after the United States entered the war, the, the uh, Harriman Bush Bank was seized under the Trading with the Enemy Act. And those are documents which you can no longer find. But associates of mine, a historian named Anton Chaikin, uncovered them about a decade ago, and they're now uh, available for people to look at. Now, what's the importance of this? Well, the policy of extermination that took place in, in Germany was not a German idea. It was an idea introduced by this oligarchy, going back to people such as the, the use of Darwin. And one of the key families in this is the Huxley family. Julian Huxley in particular, who was involved in setting up UNESCO at the end of World War II, who had an idea that eugenics could be useful for purifying the race, but it was given a bad name by the Nazis. And so he carried out an effort to reform the idea of eugenics so it could be useful uh, in the post-war period. And it was out of this, that the emergence of the environmentalist movement in the end of the 50s, funded largely by very wealthy philanthropists like Lawrence Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller III. Uh, in Europe, it was the Club of Rome under Aurelio Pecce. Uh, it was the research done at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology by Meadows and Forrester, who proclaimed there are limits to growth. And the whole idea was to use the student movement in the late 60s and early 70s as a marcher force to impose these anti-science, anti-technology policies to reduce the population. Now, why go through this background? Well, if you look at what also was going on in that period, 
1971, because of the dollar crisis, which was provoked by the British, it actually started with the pound crisis in 1968, the dollar crisis was used as an excuse to take the dollar off the gold standard as a gold reserve and to set up the floating exchange rate, which was used by people like George Soros and, and speculators to create a whole new economy against the idea of an economy of physical production in favor of an idea of bubbles and speculation. That has gone increasingly bad over the last 50 years. We had a series of bubbles and pops of those bubbles, the 1987 stock market crash, uh, the 1997 Asia market crash, the 98 Russian bond crash, the 2000 dot-com bubble crash, the 2007, 2008 crash, and so on, to the point that today we're facing another global financial crisis. Now, if you put together the attempt to use geopolitics to divide countries, to use identity politics to divide people within countries against each other, and the neoliberal policy, which says you can't trust government, everything must be done on an individual basis free the individual from regulation. What you've created is a perfect storm for the crises we face today. Now, just in terms of this merger of neoliberalism and, and geopolitics, let me refer to a couple of events that are sort of examples of, of this kind of merger. Uh, first, you had at Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August 2019, a conference presided over by the Federal Reserve. It's their annual retreat. But at this conference, they had Larry Fink from BlackRock. They had Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, Sir Michael Bloom Bloomberg, and a number of others who presented an idea which they called the financial regime change. This is where they first put forward in concrete terms what they meant by the Great Reset. And the idea was that you cannot trust governments under conditions of crisis because they'll want to spend money to alleviate the problems. But that's not allowable under the neoliberal system. Instead, the only purpose of governments creating money, or rather private banks creating money, is to bail out the speculators. And so the attempt was made at this Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to popularize the idea of technocrats taking over the economy from governments. And explicitly what they said is that representative governments tend to be responsive to the needs of constituents, but that can't be allowed anymore. And so the Great Reset is where the central banks of the world control not only the credit and currency policy, but the spending policy. You take it out of the hands of the people entirely. And that's the, the idea behind the Great Reset, which we call a global central bankers dictatorship. Only remember, central bankers are not governments. They essentially act at the interests of private banks, the largest private banks, as we saw in 2008 when the crash came and they bailed out the speculators and sent 7 million families out, out of their homes. Now, I, I just want to read a couple of quotes from an event that took place uh, to push this in uh, November 9th through 11th, 2020, called the Green Horizon Financial Summit, because what was decided was the Great Reset would be used primarily to push through the green agenda. 
which is getting rid of energy, uh, efficient energy production, nuclear, coal, gas, and so on, and put the whole world reliant on inefficient and unsustainable forms of wind and solar power. Now, at this meeting, the uh, Green Horizon Summit, it took place in the city of London, funded by the City of London Corporation, the World Economic Forum, which is the Davos Group, and something called the Green Finance Institute, which is funded by the City of London and the British Treasury. Among the people there were Mark Carney, uh, BlackRock, the Bank of England, uh, Michael Bloomberg, Bill Gates, and Prince Charles. And I want to call your attention to the comments made by Prince Charles there, because whether people know it or not, Prince Charles has been one of the key people in imposing this green policy from the beginning. Now, the, the message of this whole summit was that you have to use finances to make the transition from efficient energy production to the so-called green policy. And so they would withhold credit and tax producers and instead uh, generously subsidize the more inefficient forms of, of energy, the wind energy, plant-based diets, and things of that sort. Now, here's what Prince Charles said, and this gets to right to the point. He was a speaker at this. And what he said is that we have to use the COVID pandemic mm -hmm. as an opportunity to transition to a zero carbon emission policy. He said, the current pandemic has brought unimaginable devastation to people's lives, livelihoods, and national economies. At the same time, the green recovery represents an unprecedented opportunity to rethink and reset the ways in which we live and do business. If this is reminiscent of what you've heard from Klaus Schwab, it's no coincidence because Prince Charles is one of the closest collaborators of Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. Prince Charles went on to say, I have long believed we need a shift in our economic mode that places nature and the world's transition to net zero emissions at the heart of how we operate, prioritizing the pursuit of the sustainable in the decades to come. Now, he unveiled a plan called his Marshall Plan, and essentially it was to set up something which uh, is uh, they, they call the uh, financial initiative for zero net zero. And the idea is that they will establish policing mechanisms so that any banks which loan money for energy firms, such as uh, discovery of new areas for drilling or uh, uh, nuclear energy, coal, things of that sort, will be cut off from credit. And only those firms with zero emissions, including corporate firms and manufacturing, only those with zero emission will be given credit. So that it was an effort that included 140 banks to cut credit to the productive sector and instead channel everything into the green technologies. And the green technologies cannot support a world population of seven plus billion people. And we've seen that when it's broken down from time to time. We see that in terms of what's happening in the developing sector, but it can support a new financial bubble. And what was put forward by Carney and Prince Charles is that if you bring together private equity, the hedge funds and so on, with funds generated by governments, you could create a $40 trillion fund to go into this. 
And this would include the carbon trading uh, bonds issued based on reduction of energy production and so on. So it was an attempt to impose by the power of this supranational force, not by governments, but governments operating under a supranational force that would be imposing these policies on nations. Now, they presented this at the COP26 or the FLOP26 conference in Glasgow, and the developing sector rejected it. The head of the African Union, the president of Senegal, said, well, it sounds all well and good, but we have 600 million people who don't have electricity in Africa and need electricity. Well, uh, Ursula von der Leyen just told them recently, that's tough. We're going to put solar panels in your deserts, and basically the new colonialism will be to steal your solar rays to produce electricity in Europe. This is a new form of colonialism, which not surprisingly, Prince Charles is one of the leading proponents of this. Now, I'm sure you know very well Klaus Schwab's view on this thing. Yeah. You know, his basic idea is that the, uh, you, you have to use the pandemic as a way of enforcing changes. That, that is, his goal is to impose these changes of the Green New Deal and the Great Reset. And he, he sort of sums this up in a section in his uh, 2021 book, Stakeholder Capitalism, uh, where he writes that he's talking about Ethiopia, which wants to develop and it wants railroads, agricultural improvement, the Grand Renaissance Dam. And he's very unhappy that China is financing some of this, but he goes on to say that that kind of development being undertaken reveals the central conundrum of the combat against climate change. Now, this, this is Schwab. The same force that helps people escape from poverty and lead a decent life is the one that is destroying the livability of our planet for future generations. The emissions that lead to climate change are not just the result of a selfish generation of industrialists or Western baby boomers. They are the consequence of the desire to create a better future for oneself. That's what the Great Reset is about. Your selfishness, wanting to have uh, heat in the winter, if you live in a climate that needs it, air conditioning in the summer, an automobile, uh, an adequate food supply, that selfishness is what's boiling over the planet. And that's what you get from whether it's Greta Thunberg or Barack Obama lecturing South African students in 2014 when they told him they want an American style of living. And Obama said to them, it's not possible. If you get that, the planet will boil over. Now, how do they impose this? You can use cutting off credit, and we're watching now how they're using the cutoff of credit and cutting off access to the modern financial system to try to punish Russia. This has been in the works going back to at least 2015, 2016. It was somewhat set back by the election of Donald Trump in the United States because Trump was not a globalist. I think, unfortunately, he didn't do what he said he was going to do, but he was opposed to many of these schemes. What we're seeing now is a merger of the Great Reset, the Green New Deal, the policies on, on COVID, and a number of other aspects of, of government policy, which is being directed not on behalf of sovereign governments, but against sovereign governments. And this is why we're seeing the situation in Ukraine. I know this is a long prologue to get to Ukraine, 
But this is what you have to understand. What is Russia's crime? Putin has asked for 20 years for security guarantees for Russia. And these guarantees include no further eastward expansion of NATO, which was promised to Gorbachev in 1990, which was promised again to Yeltsin in 1994. And yet NATO keeps moving to the very borders of Russia. Now they're talking about, as Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, did at the Munich Security Conference, that Ukraine has a right to develop nuclear weapons. And for Putin, Russia's security is directly threatened by two aspects of the Ukraine situation. The corruption, which includes prominent Nazis in positions of the defense and security forces of Ukraine. And if you're interested, I can give you chapter and verse on that, which is, you're not allowed to say that in the West. The European Union actually acknowledged in 2018 that the defense and security forces of Ukraine were heavily infiltrated by neo-Nazis marching behind the banners of the Ukrainian SS, which joined Hitler in the 1940s. But you're not allowed to say that anymore. And when Putin said you need a denazification of Ukraine, he was called crazy. But the idea of a government, a corrupt government, being used not to defend the Ukrainian people's freedom and sovereignty. And I hate to see what's being done to the people of Ukraine right now in this war, but they are the cannon fodder mm -hmm. for a NATO and US and British drive to bring down Russia and China. Why? Because they're the two leading powers in the world that oppose giving up sovereignty to this Green New Deal and the Great Reset. And other countries such as India are backing them up there were 34 nations that abstained from the UN General Assembly vote to condemn Russia. They include more than half the population in the world. And the reason they oppose it is this question of development. And these are countries which have never been allowed to develop modern healthcare systems. I want to come back to one final point that I, I think is relevant in this consideration, which is that when you look at the COVID situation and go to the big picture, it was clear whether this was a bioengineered project or not, I, I'm not capable of judging that. But what was clear going back to 30 years ago is that we were tearing down the public health system of most advanced sector nations, especially the United States. And why were we doing this? Privatization. And who benefits from privatization? The cartels, whether it's the pharmaceutical cartels, the for-profit hospitals, the insurance cartels, the banks. They don't want to spend money on public health because at heart, many of them are committed to the principles of eugenics. So when you look at the crisis as a whole from the top, what we're facing is a drive of this financial empire to save itself because it's sitting on top of trillions of dollars of unsustainable debt, mm -hmm. third world debt, government debt, corporate debt, private sector debt, uh, credit card debt, student debt. This is never going to be repaid, but they figure they can use the flows of funds from the Federal Reserve and the central banks to sustain the, the false paper values while destroying the living standards of the population. And that includes destroying the healthcare system and doing it for what reason? Stakeholder capitalism, profit the profit motive for the oligarchs. And so I think that is the picture I wanted to present on this, this uh, 
uh, an overview, the big, the big picture, so-called. And just to come back to one point, the people who are considered the enemies of this system, besides Russia and China, are the ordinary citizens in countries such as Germany, France, Italy, the United States, people who don't trust their governments. This is the other aspect that's become really clear in the COVID situation. People don't trust governments anymore, and there are reasons for that. And unless we change that, unless we have a transformation, and, and what, what the Schiller Institute is fighting for right now is convening an international uh, convention to take up this question of a security architecture which protects the security of every nation, not just the wealthiest nations, but all sovereign nations and all peoples of nations. And along with that, a financial architecture that doesn't benefit just the few, but actually allows for a sustainable future of an improving standard of living for the whole world's population. And we have at the schillerinstitute.com a petition to that effect. And I'd ask people who are hearing this to check that out, to read it and sign it and circulate it if you're interested. So I thank you for the time you've given me and the I, I have a little bit of time here now to take some questions, so I'm at your disposal. Mr. Schlanger, in view of what we've heard from investigative journalists, historians, and others, this makes absolute perfect sense to me. Your analysis is hits it right on the spot, I believe. Uh, basically, uh, what your organization and others are asking for is what Franklin uh, D. Roosevelt was trying to install in his idea of a cooperative new world order, which would have uh, made all of this impossible. But it is important for, for the people to understand what's going on here. That's why it's, it's got to be exposed. Because as you said, uh, people don't trust government anymore, and for a very good reason, because these governments are not our governments anymore. So this is nothing right. to do with black against whites, Russians against Americans, Chinese against green, white, or blue people. This is only us, all of us, against these oligarchs, uh, unless I'm completely mistaken. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And the whole idea of, if you look at in the United States, what are called identity politics, mm -hmm. it's to divide people against each other. Yeah. It's someone else's benefit is at your expense. And therefore, you have to mobilize for your group, whether it's a, a sexual identity or religious or a racial identity or an ethnic identity. And the same thing is, is this is a model on the small of geopolitics in the large. The greatest threat to the British Empire going into the 20th century was the emergence of an anti-colonial force, which saw in its best interest education, science, and collaboration with the advanced sector. And instead, what they got were wars after World War II. I mean, just in the recent period, I, I can't believe the hypocrisy. I was just online with the Chatham House event a few minutes ago before this, where they were talking about an international tribunal to bring Putin to the dock. Now, I posed a question, which of course didn't get read. Where were these guys when the US and NATO we're killing people in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, in Libya. Where was the outcry there? Where is the outcry when you see these policies that are, are driving up the price of energy? 
so that there won't be enough fertilizer produced to produce food to take care of people who are hungry? Where's the outcry about the United States withholding funds from Afghanistan where 20 million people, including 9 million children, face starvation? So the post-Cold War order, what they call the rules-based order, or what I call the unipolar order, this is in a desperate battle to preserve its what they consider its rights. And one thing I think can be encouraging for people who are working with you and involved in, in this overall movement is that they're on the defensive. They know they don't have the support of the population. They, they can try to brainwash, they can try to manipulate, but when it really gets down to it, if there's a voice that expresses the opposition to this global order, people will respond. Just look at the United States, the election of the improbable election of Donald Trump in 2016, mainly because he didn't want to go to war in Syria as Hillary Clinton was pushing. So I, I think we have to realize that this order is on its last legs, but it's very dangerous because they are run by lunatics and they have access to nuclear weapons. And they indicated very clearly that they're not going to allow Putin to present an argument no matter how legitimate it is to change this order, but it has to be changed. So what this boils down to is that we have to continue to expose them, to get the truth out, the true facts out, um, and to keep them from uh, continuing with their manipulation, which is a massive psychological operation, as many uh, of our experts have explained to us, some of whom are former members of the British intelligence services. So we believe that we have really sub substantive and concrete evidence to show to the world, not just us, but all the other uh, alternative uh, media as well, uh, that could change people's minds because the way that people are thinking is only a result or a consequence of at least the last 30 years of man manipulation going yeah. on in education primarily I, I would say my wife is a teacher and that's why she got out of there well let me give you an example of how this works because our two examples the persecution of julian assange mm -hmm. what's assange's crime he exposed war crimes yeah using the documents of the U.S. Department of Defense and the CIA. Why are they killing him in a dungeon in Great Britain instead of treating him as a hero and putting the people who committed these war crimes on trial? And I can bring it to the, a personal level for me, the persecution of Lyndon LaRouche, who was put in prison for five years, charged with one-man conspiracy to defraud the Internal Revenue Service, because he had been a veritable fountain of ideas against this globalist empire, up to the point where in the early 1980s, Ronald Reagan brought LaRouche in to negotiate the strategic defense initiative with the Soviet Union. The idea of getting out of a mutual and assured destruction nuclear crisis by, having, by sharing technologies that could eliminate the danger of nuclear weapons. That was when Henry Kissinger said, we have to get rid of LaRouche. The head of the Get LaRouche Task Force in 1987 was a man who's become very famous in the last few years named Robert Mueller. His first big case was the persecution of Lyndon LaRouche in the Boston trial in 1987. And by the way, Mueller is not a very good attorney. He lost that because the judge threw the case out on the basis of the government withholding documents.
So truth is on our side, justice is on our side, but you have to have the courage to fight. And in, in these days, it means standing up against what generally is pushed as popular opinion by the mainstream media. But as you know, the mainstream media is also losing its credibility faster and faster. What we have to do is have, the, the, the reason I approach this thing from the so-called big picture is you've got to unify people, not on the individual fights. And I certainly understand people who don't support masking and vaccine mandates and things of that sort. Sure, fight them, but go at the big picture. Yes. Who's pushing this and why? Who is the one the, the, or the network which is responsible for trying to carry out a global genocide in the, the, uh, with the intention of a Malthusian purification of the human race? And by the way, if you consider Prince Charles an example of the purification of the human race, then that in itself ought to be an advertisement against what they stand for. Can I ask you, like the um, this um, whole, I mean, I think scheme with these uh, certificates for like uh, CO2, um, that's also like, a, that's a big money making yeah. scheme. And I, I just recently read uh, that there's, um, they're, they're creating like new pseudo assets, like that you can now, uh, for like a country maybe can, um, you know, sort of um, put the value of what the mountain is worth or like, you know, these kind of nature assets i think that they're, they're creating a whole new scheme of of like maybe to balance out this you know this financial disaster because uh, now they have some pseudo um, assets that they can uh, present to the you know the the unknowing well, public you're absolutely right about that but if, if you look at what they've been doing since the 70s and 80s when they took down the regulations that that prevented this kind of speculation which go back to Franklin Roosevelt, the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, yep. which wouldn't allow commercial banks to engage in investment. You look at it now, there's one to two quadrillion dollars worth of financial derivatives. And what's a financial derivative? That's what you're talking about now with the carbon assets. Yeah. A financial derivative is something which has no inherent value in itself. Could just be a piece of paper or a notation on a computer, but is derived from something of value. And so think about it as leverage or margin that you can go into deeper and deeper debt based on the fact that some sucker may pay more for this. And who are the suckers? The pension fund holders, the, the people who have no really ability to fight, who put money into social security, who put money into these hedge funds. And the hedge fund guys make all the money from these phony instruments. And this is called financial innovation. And it goes back especially to the repeal of Glass-Steagall in 1999, which Bill Clinton signed under the influence of Larry Summers and Robert Rubin, but was also supported by the neoliberals and the Republican Party. So they're now doing that using the green economy and so-called man-made global warming to induce people to allow this new bubble to be created. I, I mentioned it in my presentation, But uh, Mark Carney said that by setting up a compact of the major banks and financial institutions only to lend for green technology, then you create a potential pool of $40 trillion. And on top of that, then you always have the capability to generate more funny money or fiat money through the central banking system. 
And what's the purpose of that? To keep the artificial value of these financial instruments on the books of banks, knowing that if they need it, they can always borrow more. And, and this actually was became clear in September of 2019 with the so-called repo crisis in the United States, where the commercial banks could not put up enough money to cover corporate debt, and they had to bring the Federal Reserve in for a whole new realm of, of uh, quantitative easing, which added up to $13 trillion in the fourth quarter of 2019 that went mostly to six banks, four U.S. banks and two foreign banks. That's how insane, and you're absolutely right in bringing that up, it's the green financial bubble. And hasn't been Al Gore um, involved in this, like this whole car carbon market? And so yeah. he would have like a, a conflict of interest, basically, like by pushing this uh, an inconvenient truth mm. movie. And then it's maybe in, I don't know if at that point, like the, the assets were already like created, but like at least he was preparing for that. You know, I, I wrote an article in 2004 called From, hedge, From Hippies to Hedge Funds which talked about how this uh, Silicon Valley operation, which is now, besides Wall Street and the city of London, the other big uh, source of funds and, and funny money, that the people who funded Al Gore's movie came from that network. And again, this is, this is a swindle, but it was a swindle that was legitimized in 2008 when Barack Obama refused to prosecute the bankers who ran the mortgage-backed securities fraud. They got off in, in Great Britain. Uh, millions of people lost their homes, and nothing happened to the swindlers. Actually, something did happen. They got the money. They, they not only were able to take the houses away, but they got the money from the banks to be able to market them and sell them and turn them into rental properties for people who could no longer afford to buy homes. Uh, Mr. Schlanger, what is, how big is this financial derivatives bubble? Uh, it's trillions, but how, I forget what, what the correct figure is. I think you said, well. Well, the, the actual figure of derivatives that are being held is hard to pin down, but it's somewhere between 300 and, and yeah. 600 trillion. Mm -hmm. But the trading, on a daily basis is between one and two quadrillion dollars <laughs> that exchange hands circulating back and forth these pieces of paper, which are worthless, yeah. but which the traders make money every time a trade is made. We know that there are several banks out there, including my former employer, Deutsche Bank, which holds yeah. uh, truckloads of these completely worthless uh, commercial paper or derivatives. Um, if one of them collapses, it's going to be like the whole house of cards. The, the, their entire financial mafia is going to collapse because it's going to work like a domino. The first domino will work so yeah. that all the others will uh, eventually come down. And that well, that's is what happened in 2008, yeah. where they initially let Lehman go. Yeah. And then the, the head of Lehman made this comment as they were saying, we're going to let you go. He said, so now I'm the schmuck because he knew that every other bank would be next. Now, if you, again, look at this, uh, there are six or eight banks that are at the heart of the repo, the, the trillions of dollars that have gone out since the end of 2019 to refinance these markets. At the heart of it is JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, 
uh, Nomura and Deutsche Bank mm -hmm. are the ones that have gotten the, the bulk of that. Now, the irony is that this is money created or funds uh, volume of, of financial in instruments created by the New York Fed. The New York Fed is owned by some of these banks, especially uh, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Bank of America. So they're getting the central bank to give them money to back up their worthless investments. And meanwhile, ultimately, when it collapses, it's going to be on the back of the taxpayers. Now, what they're trying to do is to build a new bubble with the Green New Deal. And at the same time, move toward an austerity policy for the population. And this is what LaRouche used to call Shaktian economics, because the person who first did this was Yalmar Schacht, who was Hitler's finance minister. He, he was the one brought in to tame the Weimar hyperinflation in 23 in Germany. And then Schacht became the financial wizard behind the Nazi rearmament, who was backed by Montague Norman, the head of the Bank of England, and the Bush Harriman interest in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they rearmed Germany to turn them against the Soviet Union. And Hitler somewhat crossed them up by going west first. And then there's also this problem with the um, Kreditausfallbürgschaft. Um, Credit default swaps. That's another, Absolutely. I think, another giant topic that's not even in the focus of people. How do you think that plays into the whole picture? Well, as, as I said, we're, we're in a, a potential tsunami of debt defaults. And, yeah. and what Dr. Fulmich was saying is absolutely right. You have a chain reaction and they don't know how to stop it. But they, they figure if you can keep people distracted yeah. with a war in Ukraine, keep people distracted by melting icebergs and the, the poor polar bears who are losing their habitat, which, by the way, is a fraud. Um, if you can keep doing that, then maybe all these people will die and won't be able to fight. And we have to pull together a movement based on this idea of a new security architecture based on the principle of the Peace of Westphalia that ended the 30 years war in 1648, mm -hmm. which is that ultimately no country can have security without working to have security for your neighbors. And that's what Putin said to NATO. That's what he said to Biden. And as he said, they didn't listen. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I hate to do this, but I have another appointment. I'm going to have to right. jump off. That's all right, Mr. Schlanger. Someone's going to hold the back eventually. It's not going to be us. It's going to be them. That's what we're going to have to work for. Well, as I've said, there should be no bailouts, no bail-ins, no and way. no bail for the speculators. No, they're all going to go to hell. Thank you very much, Mr. Schlanger. This was uh, very, very, very informative. It backs up everything that we've learned over the course of the last two years. And that's why I think it is absolutely plausible. I'm convinced that, you're, uh, that, that your analysis is completely correct. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Okay, und nun gehen wir wieder zurück in die deutsche Szene und Germany and look at the result of what we have just seen in the big picture by Harley Schlanger. What effect does that take? Is that big capitalism that we are all on at? <clears throat> Will they even step over dead bodies? For that, we'll hear our colleague Holger Fischer and
the uh, professional advisor Andrea Hitler. Holger, are you with us and can you join the game? I am here on board. Hello. Hello, Holger. We, uh, in our briefing, we looked at, uh, we've uh, talked times before, also in the series, everything that is right in the basis party. And I think last time it was very impressive to hear from you how the weakest of the weak who should be helped by society, how they are just thrown under the bus. Maybe you can tell us about that. What have you been through? Um, what your colleague, uh, Miss Hitler, uh, who is the professional advisor, what did you see? Well, overall, what we've seen, I had the honor of being here before, I think in January of 2021, that was, where I first reported on what had happened. Uh, at the beginning of the vaccination campaign. At the beginning of this vaccination campaign, uh, without much questioning, um, questionnaires were sent around just before Christmas, and um, uh, the information leaflet uh, was a preliminary um, draft, which never even mentioned um, um, the product, the concrete product, Cominarty. It was still being used until uh, February, and on the uh, draft, information draft, uh, we were supposed to find the um, necessary information. As of 22nd of December, it had been uh, changed, and by March, um, it had been modified again. There were updated information leaflets, and even back then, you weren't fully informed. And this continued throughout the year of 2021. We then, or I said at the time, I will uh, definitely not allow vaccinations to be given if I, um, I, I won't have a vaccination if I don't get some information from my um, um, doctor, hoping that maybe uh, a doctor might say you have contraindications. Um, but what happened was that uh, many people, uh, Many guardians simply um, signed uh, a blank check, basically. Otherwise, the vaccine vaccination campaign that was uh, it started on the third, uh, well, on um, Boxing Day, um, and this wouldn't have been uh, possible if we had been properly prepared. We were not prepared on uh, uh, for looking at the medical history of patients. Nobody was interested in that. How come? Because the vaccination was supposed to be safe and um, side effects, uh, adverse effects didn't play any uh, role. We know what this information leaflet says and uh, said at the time, uh, even though by now pericarditis and myocarditis have been uh, included in the information. Back then there was no talk of that. So um, the uh, idea was like, what do people want? Uh, let them sign, nothing, is got, nothing adverse is going to happen. And that continued. And if as a guardian you get um, an uh, information leaflet uh, for enlightened agreement, um, you have to talk to the doctor. Otherwise, it is legally uh, null and void, the signature is. 
And of course, you can ask questions concerning the medical history uh, to see what uh, are we dealing with here. And all that didn't happen. If it was supposed to happen, it really affected mostly um, the um, inhabitants of nursing homes. And uh, those are oftentimes people who can't uh, take a decision and a um, a caregiver can um, take decisions, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the uh, patient cannot the, uh, take a decision. The law says that uh, the individual is supposed to take a decision, and only where they can't do that will uh, the, uh, the uh, caregivers and legal guardians take the decision. And in the nursing homes, um, um, the uh, caregivers were pressurized to sign um, approvals. And I can't remember having uh, this happening um, with influenza uh, vaccines. Um, I can remember maybe uh, uh, half a dozen cases over the last 24 years where I got involved, where I was actually asked, can we do this? No, it was different. Then we had prioritization group number one, over 80 roles, and then we had humanization group uh, two, which included the mentally handicapped because they weren't um, expected to have a uh, proper hygiene uh, protocol uh, for whatever reason. Uh, so it started with group two that not only people in the homes were vaccinated, but also in um, the uh, sheltered workshops, people were uh, vaccinated. So people who worked in sheltered workshops were already up for vaccinations in the spring of 21. So these people, we can say 100% of them decided independently, and they have long since been boosted um, by now, and they are already up soon enough uh, for the second booster. Just imagine. In the context of the sheltered workshops, we kept getting um, the feedback that people were told, well, you have to get vaccinated. You uh, need to protect your colleagues. You can die from it. You can get seriously ill from COVID. And that's why you need to get a vaccination. And people were exposed to um, some uh, level of pressure. And this pressure came from uh, the staff members of the sheltered uh, workshops, sheltered homes, um, sheltered living. Um, so those were people who sorted, sort of motivated um, uh, those um, um, uh, people. Um, and of course, the, the staff members themselves uh, were victims because they had themselves vaccinated themselves. They just believed that. and. Uh, you can read that this is all uh, to avoid triage um, if the vaccinations continue because we don't want people to get um, severe cases. Of course, the first people have died by now and some people have fallen ill and that was the case with me as well. And I was left in peace for a uh, remarkably long time um, I got away with it for a remarkably long time. The case that I was accused of was that I had uh, taken influence on one of the people I was responsible for. 
um, by uh, what had happened was I had told her, well, you can get vaccinated or not. It's your decision. You may get ill of COVID or of the vaccination. And um, this uh, case was passed on to the um, uh, authorities, to the uh, law courts. That was in the spring of 2022, sorry, 21. And the other case uh, was that um, a brother uh, took on uh, caregiving because he thought, I don't have to wait anymore. Fisher is a, um, a corona denial uh, denier uh, and will uh, I'll take uh, on responsibility. That was in um, um, the mainstream media and he is making sure that this is being pushed by the mainstream media and that I'm being uh, vilified here. But let me get, get away from that again. Over the past few months, it has been relatively quiet. At the beginning of the year 2021, there was there were a number of phone calls that I received after I had gone public on what I uh, had experienced. At the beginning of 2021, people contacted me who uh, said, my parents in a nursing home, my father or mother is supposed to be vaccinated. And they said, we will um, give notice to uh, the nursing home um, uh, or they didn't take a free decision. Now it started again at the end of 21, beginning of 2022, where obviously, and I don't know if that is uh, coordinated, many people um, contacted me, volunteers, i.e. people who uh, cared for their children, um, their adult children, their spouses, their parents, who are legal guardians for their parents and who were suddenly uh, faced with the uh, fact that I'm supposed to be uh, stripped of my guardianship or the decision about the vaccination if I don't administer a vaccine. Um, so there were uh, relatives there who were desperate. They had good reasons um, and even the people they looked after had their say. Um, but. Um, they were threatened with losing their guardianship. Uh, there has been some backpedaling in this context already. Ms. Hitler might say something about this later on because we've been in contact for a while. Um, in the past, it was always a question uh, that they were saying that a uh, guardian is not uh, qualified if they don't approve of the vaccination. So if they are opposed to the vaccination, or even if the um, person um, being taken care of um, was able to, to oppose the vaccination themselves, or if you knew from the patient's history that in the past they would never have expected a vaccination, they tended to say, well, then the caregiver uh, is not qualified as a guardian. And now they are uh, taking the view, okay, we will leave the guardianship with the guardian, but uh, we will enforce the vaccination anyway. But that leads to no decision on the vaccination. It's only approval. And if they don't approve, they are uh, stripped of the guardianship. Uh, and it, so then if they don't agree, they are forced. Isn't that the end of it? Well with the guardianship courts and the family courts um, there is um, the individual um, um, uh, decision 
and that's why I tell people individualize uh, the case. And if the uh, person to be vaccinated is uh, kind of um, resisting the vaccination, and then it would be a, a forced vaccination if you override this. And we know how many people had PCR tests, uh, uh, cotton um, buds stabbed into their noses without their being uh, consulted or uh, informed about it. Uh, without looking at whether this is a forced treatment, that would require a court judgment. So that is a, a spanner you can throw into the works. Um, so you might say this is a case of forced treatment, but nobody was interested in that already. Anyway, and then many people, particularly in the nursing homes, i.e. of the severely handicapped people, both mental and uh, physical, they are uh, dependent on participating in uh, common activities, um, um, they want to work in the sheltered workshop and if they're, they're ostracized there, they can't go in there or they're um, confronted with uh, complaints. So people have been uh, worn down over the years, so they are no longer have the um, opinion, I don't want the vaccination. If people have a clear will and if they can say it clearly, then will get away with it um, until we have this general vaccination mandate. We might uh, uh, look at what might uh, be coming down the line as of 1st of October concerning the um, uh, draft um, uh, bill on the vaccination. I read that uh, this morning, this disaster. But if it is not uh, forced medication, if they don't reject this, then only the uh, recommendation by the vaccination committee applies, then we have to vaccinate. And then uh, you have no choice. You can only speak about counterindications. Um, but uh, um, that's all very well. We need a certificate on their inability to receive a vaccination. And if we don't have that, then they'll be vaccinated. And those people who, even if it's only in a case or two, like myself, made a, a contradictory statement. Um, it doesn't mean that we opposed the uh, the law uh, on um, guardianship law. Who, uh, they are often um, denounced by the um, operators, the owners of the nursing home. They write to uh, the courts and after a while, depending on how the court uh, decides, a guardianship is verified for its um, or uh, reviewed for its uh, uh, need. And then they ask, uh, are you vaccinated? Has your care taken up? Talked about this with you? So this is a, a very unusual question, but which uh, seems to have to do something with the need for um, uh, care um, giving. It seems that's ironical, of course. But if it shows that the uh, caregiver and guardian hasn't 100, 150 percent uh, pushed for the vaccination, then his qualification is questioned and uh, guardians who have a critical view or had a critical, uh, um, uh, spoke uh, critically uh, in other contexts um, um, in the, on vaccination, then they're no longer um, 
heard as experts by courts. They're not selected as guardians anymore. So if I do everything right, 99.9%, um, uh, even if I make a mistake here or there, but if I do really most everything uh, to the satisfaction of uh, everybody, that is the one criterion that counts. And then the question um, arises whether your ongoing guardianship is discontinued. Normally, you maintain your um, uh, your status, but you have no chance of getting a new patient simply because you disagree uh, with the authorities on the vaccination um, mandate, um, possibly in just isolated individual cases. And uh, if you're um, looking after your family members, then you only have one case anyway. So in, there should be a second um, defect that um, if you had would be if you had a Russian grandfather, that'll probably kick you out of the guardianship as well. Worse if I was Russian now. If I was Russian, then things would be really uh, dire. Okay, so this is something that we got to see in context because at least we hear by what we have uh, heard in experts in our uh, committee work and the grand jury proceeding in a more dense way. First, there is no pandemic because all of this has been triggered by a fake PCR test of a fraudulent person. And second, there is a virus out there which could be dangerous, but it's not more dangerous than any other virus. And there are alternative or I think real methods of treatment and uh, so that um, means there is no necessity to vaccinate at all and third what is called a vaccine here has not been tested there is studies there are studies or they they claim that there are studies our next guest is going to talk about that who was in the studies of Pfizer it's a fake right from the start to the end and uh, that so-called vaccine whatever we talk about it is completely ineffective and fifth it is extremely dangerous against this background just now starting with the weakest people in society can't be put in words that is worth a very very high price i can understand holger and miss hitler that uh, you are desperate if you see that people who are potentially brought to massive difficulty to uh, say that uh, <clears throat> to say the least if they are vaccinated that their right is overthrown uh, by being replaced by somebody who is on the vaccination line or by not listening to them at all and at the same time uh, doesn't even notice how those people who have been vaccinated fall ill nevertheless and who uh, doesn't notice how those people, as you would expect of, um, or as you learn from critical uh, caregivers in uh, nursing homes, uh, particularly in the context of the um, uh, imposition of the next boost, um, how people fall ill uh, all over the place despite of the uh, vaccination and where they uh, still um, vaccinate um, even though it's no longer uh, helpful against Omicron, that should be obvious, but this immense uh, 
mental displacement work that is being performed here is really under, uh, impossible to understand. You really should ask the guardian, how did you take your um, protectees through this time, the people that you uh, look after? And I uh, could say a few things. I could actually um, claim, uh, have my claim to fame because I think I did well enough popular and I had my first um, information discussion uh, recently, and uh, for the first time I saw that there are no um, mid- and long-term uh, adverse effects of the vaccination, uh, because that's not covered in studies. I was only informed about uh, the mid- and long-term um, consequences of COVID. So uh, she only spoke about the consequences of COVID, the counterindications with COVID, but not about anything else. So what is that? Is that stupidity or is it incapability or is it intent? I tend to believe in the first two. Um, if you answer the clear question, what are the risks of the vaccination? You react by talking about risks of corona. Either hasn't got the, uh, got the question or they're lying. Uh, can you still hear me? I just uh, got a phone call and I pressed the wrong button. Well, what do you think? Are these people what you are describing? If I ask a doctor, what are the potential risks of a, a vaccination, a so-called vaccination? And he says, um, answering to a question that I didn't ask, what are the potential consequences of corona? Is that stupidity or is that intent? Well, um, it would sound very competent if I called it uh, cognitive dissonance. I would say that this uh, physician uh, did this on purpose. She said we're on the front line on a daily basis. Uh, basis. We have these uh, severe cases. Uh, we're all vaccinated uh, in this uh, practice. And I said, well, you probably have had some adverse effects or strange infections. And she said immediately, no, no, um, that's never hap happened. So I'd say she probably really meant it, nevertheless. If I speak to doctors who have a critical view, they say we have a practice full of uh, uh, patients with symptoms they didn't have in the past. And if it's only uh, shingles uh, with younger people, I'm not talking to people who are, in, um, uh, who are being uh, looked after in nursing homes. Um, and if I talk to physicians, um, they don't seem to have any problems. They can't find any problems with the patients. It's very difficult to understand how come. Ms. Hitler, what's your experience? Well, I just thought um, we've... He's been speaking out my heart. In, uh, let me start at the back, uh, at the end. I cannot imagine that uh, the so-called doctors Ah, so stupid not to know this. Um, that must be an evasive answer because either they don't want to give an answer to the question, uh, what adverse effects there may be, and um, they may not admit it to themselves. They can't justify it to themselves because then they would have to stop vaccinating. Uh, and let me go to the other point, um, what Hager said. 
the question on the vaccination is the first question, and I said it's the first and the last question. And I'm so surprised um, And over the past two years, and it still surprises me, as if it were completely new, that actually just last week I had a new hearing on a prolongation, and it was not about the so desolate uh, health condition of the, um, the person I take care of, of the client. Um, that only took uh, five minutes. Um, are you, do you agree on the um, prolongation and are you vaccinated? And after he'd answered yes, he decided to do that. Um, he just told me he was vaccinated. I was surprised how quick that was. Then it was done and over. And that's uh, symptomatic, I think. What I do experience as well in my cases, uh, I have about 10, I don't know precisely, but around 10 that I have lost. But um, some because they have been withdrawn as I was incapable and that is solely um, depending on the vaccination quota. And um, <clears throat> if I look at the letters that I get, uh, some of them is one and a half years back. If we look at this, it's interesting to see that uh, the incapability consists of um, saying that I do not observe the estimated uh, will of my clients because they all wanted to be vaccinated. How do these people know it? Well, I wonder. One case was uh, quite ridiculous, really. A very old lady, she's still alive, 100 years old, and she has lived in very desolate situations at home and nobody cared about it for many, many years. I was the first to let her in and we could do a big lot of things um, to the good. And um, she's very healthy still today. And I have known her for quite a number of years. And I thought, well, she was always against it. She didn't take a flu shot. She didn't uh, take uh, the um, nose ear um, examinations. She didn't go to the dentist. She didn't go to any doctor at all. So that's why I said I assume that she is not going to want the corona vaccination. And the opposite was assumed. I would uh, not view the estimated will of the person and immediately the Guardian was changed. Of course, my successor agreed to the vaccination for the fear of losing their job. And it came as it had to come. The lady was not vaccinated because the doctor was decent enough to um, see her clear objection. And so how, I don't, it could be, there's even proof, I have explained this, and um, nobody cares. The only thing is I have a critical view and unfortunately um, know the uh, lady still. And I've seen that um, my lawyer was addressed, who is a corona, anti-corona person. And I said, it's not long again when it was 
seen positively to think out of the box and uh, look at the individual cases. And now, um, if I look at the will, the assumed will of the person, of the client, now it's not looked at at all. And I wonder really what's going on in the background. It can't be true that um, prior to Corona, I was never asked how I came to this or that decision and uh, what my idea was. And that's not the assumption. That's not the idea in general. We are free in our decision. We are only um, subject to the will and the benefit of the clients. And I've been a caretaker, a guardian for many years. And also, um, uh, um, I am also a Christ, a Christian, and from that aspect, I have a very special responsibility towards my clients as far as truthfulness is concerned and honesty is concerned. And I can only say, well, it may be to my own harm that I say these things clearly, but I am here and I can't do anything else. We have to tell people the truth. And I even had quite a big uh, number of people, uh, interestingly, all in one district court uh, area. So um, usually this is the judges are assigned um, depending on the place where they live. And I had one uh, judge who had many, many people who didn't want to get vaccinated, interestingly enough. And nobody ever looked at it, whether did I affect them or did she want to do it by themselves? Nobody knows. And I wonder, what good is the benefit for the court? What's the agenda? Why do they do that? Um, so we get from detail to detail if we look down in this trunk. I don't, I don't know if I should come up with some examples. Um, okay, good. So the disaster in my cases started with an elderly gentleman in a care home in 2020. I remember it was 14th of December, 2020, where, and he's not dement. Uh, he was just due to, he didn't, uh, couldn't live his life at home alone anymore. So on 14th December, while I was in my car, the home, the care home uh, wrote, uh, called me, said, we have in a big care home, we have one corona patient. We have to test all of them now. I said, what, all of them? My client had no symptoms. He was really good health-wise, and I knew that he had been uh, annoyed and irritated by the vaccination. And I said, I don't agree to the swiping of the nose because I would know that if somebody quickly trained from the staff would do that, no doctor or anybody. And I said, I would not agree. I would think it is too uh, risky. I would just do a throat swipe. I would agree to that. If my patient agrees, then I would agree to that as well. And then the phone call was quickly ended. So I was concerned about that. And until I got to the office, I called my client and just wanted to tell him that, that he has the opportunity to decide 
And he said, well, they have been here already. They rammed it in my nose, although I didn't want it to. I said, that's unbelievable. Didn't you fight? Well, I did, he said in the beginning, but um, they said too much. I must do it. I must do it. And I said, that is incredible. So this is how they do it in the background, applying violence, as plain as that. And the drama is, three days later, this client developed symptoms. Uh, but at that day, he was very well. Three days later, without any hearing, he was, as the co-home had uh, complained about me because I threatened them with consequences, I was withdrawn from the case. And again here, it came out in the end, it turned out this first PCR test on that Monday was negative. So he did not have anything at that point in time. That was kept under the rug, that information. And I, um, I uh, filed criminal proceedings and the prosecutors closed, the, closed it simply. That's how it goes. So by now, I'm not. I stop fighting back. Uh, I just say, uh, discharge me, dismiss me. That's going to happen anyway. And what we expect, what's going to happen if it uh, is put through? I still hope that it's not going to be the case. I think uh, that will be the end of it in the job. Um, so uh, God may have mercy on them. Well, history is repeating itself right now, but uh, this will be the case all the way to the final um, instance. But this time, the consequences will be tougher than the last time. The Nuremberg processes resulted in the fact that the defense, I only followed orders, is invalid. So if you think that you can get out of um, this with this excuse, you're wrong. You will have to face serious consequences. Especially if you see how problematic these individual vaccines are. The studies have been carried out. There's stupid or crazy things in them. And if we look at the BKK uh, health insurance estimate, how big potential of damage there is uh, against that background, you can't simply carry on uh, without any consequences. That's quite clear. And I, I hope... Uh, that uh, if I look at what's going on and if I look at my clients, many of them, as only a very, very few who are not vaccinated because they simply submitted to the pressure. They said, I can't bear it anymore. Uh, the normal, the, whatever reasons we have, um, I, haven't, uh, I have uh, small children, I need to go shopping for them. I said, you can. No. No, that's not going to be possible in the future. I have great concern. Elderly people abroad where they want to go and fly there by airplane. So uh, if you look at the 100-year-old lady who was my client, and I assume that she's still alive. I haven't been in contact with her for two months, but I'm not um, responsible anymore. Or capable and despite of what she has some little issues she was doing very well we really have to say so with 100 years and I have others 
a 54-year-old client who had some issue with the lung and a psychiatric uh, uh, disease, and she got uh, vaccinated under pressure. And uh, with 45 year, uh, 54 years old, she died of a heart attack. So, end of the story. Another little elderly client said, Miss Hetler, for over 10 years, I didn't even have a flu. Now I'm vaccinated and I got so sick, I can hardly breathe anymore. Well, she really got a uh, lung disease after the vaccination and she sees it. The people who are the victims see the context. Since the vaccination, they are doing worse. But then I've heard with it. Are these consequences um, reported in the first place? No, no, they're not. Not at all. And can you, can you say um, from your own observation that, uh, Holger, I think you mentioned this as well, uh, can we see whether this is over-proportionally many people uh, that die? Um, we've talked about the, um, um, the occupation of the care homes and the um, do we see that uh, spaces are becoming vacant or any other findings um, that things are getting more dramatic? When we ha looked at that care home in Berlin, um, I think it was 31, 32 people, eight of them died shortly after the shots, uh, according to the whistleblowers who we were in contact with, that was absolutely over-proportional. Normally they would have one or two people per month who would die uh, because of old age or sickness. And uh, in a short time it was eight people. That was absolutely, um, there must have had me been a correlation that was rejected by the um, uh, public prosecutors. Um, so from the work that you do, can we see that there is more uh, fatalities or more um, sicknesses? Well, I can say um, there are spaces in elderly care homes, which hasn't been the case for a longer time, especially not with respect to COVID reserves that um, were to be kept free of quarantine. Uh, there was no double bedding possible. Now people, if somebody is uh, discharged from hospital with a PCR test, um, they have to go to short-term care in 2020. That was a real adventure to find a space for these people. By now, we have vacancies. So, Ms. Hitler maybe could comment on her experience here. I have and uh, was uh, celebrated uh, to find a home, uh, care home space for somebody who can't uh, find back. She needed a protective place. Um, that was a, a legal uh, recommendation. I was faster with the space than the um, judge with and the court with their expertise. I have never been that fast. That was uh, very, very searched for and I was a bit astonished by that. In the contents of the reconciliation, people below 65 years, the psychological, uh, the mentally ill and the um, uh, disabled, they are to face this yet.
you've been muted. And these people, consequentially, will simply, I don't know if they degrade or live for a while. For now, I have the problem that many people who are worse off, worse than before, as a consequence of the vaccination, they need a new setting that they can be taken care of. But that is only developing slowly now. People who are dead um, uh, can be seen in the vacant spaces. It's interesting also to see in how far people who could live on their own need more help now. And that is what I see here in my clients base so that um, that would be something where the state could easily verify what consequences um, arise by uh, increasing the um, level of care that's required um, there should be uh, appropriate uh, flows of application etc so that would be a warning signal for the population that could be easily tapped into yes that's what I just wanted to talk about <clears throat> the data concerning how many people get a higher degree of care or how many people need additional support to the care that is something that could turn out to be a problem in the course of time and especially it'd be interesting to see the age of the people because we all know yesterday i just came across this yesterday i heard about a young client a young lady who now has uh, uh, numbness in the f in the hands in f and uh, feet? She has uh, she's short short breath breath, and she has problems in uh, memory. So what do we do with these people? Well, first of all, we send them from doctor to doctor to doctor, hoping that. You get an, they get an appointment in the first place, but on that you have to look for a special doctor with a central allocation and you won't be able to go to the most professional doctor in the area or somebody somewhere and then these cases will be recorded. I've um, had a case of a worsening asthma, but um, the lady was boosted now to be able to carry on working. I'm waiting for the results. So I have two cases, young people these were, and we are talking about young people whom I can't say any prognosis. I can't say it's the vaccination or not the vaccination. All I can say is that they are worse off. Um, they're going to need more assistance or they are not begin going to be able to work soon. So um, that is maybe going to retirement. These things go for a while. Um, the pensions uh, don't come and give the money immediately. There's a lots of parameters that have to be looked at. And one case is, of course, the um, sickness leave and not on the first uh, market, also in the rehabilitation centers. Here, I see a very, very bleak future. Uh, they're boosted, they're facing their second booster, is getting worse. Yes, well, and um, can I say something? Concerning nursing homes, I can't tell you that much about it anymore because I have no clients in um, nursing homes anymore, only in private homes or um, 
in uh, communities that, that are sometimes similar. Well, I just lost my uh, train of thought now. It's an interesting thing to look at what happened to people after the vaccination, and it's not all that difficult to um, get an overview. I can tell you that of my clients, at least my suspicion is uh, would be this, because I'm not a, a physician, and after uh, the end of my um, uh, relationship with the patients due to their uh, passing, I have uh, nothing, no involvement anymore, but I'd say that about 10% of my clients passed because of the vaccination. That is not much because I've lost so many uh, clients to uh, loss of guardianship already. But we have two different problems that we're faced with now, and I would like to speak about both of them um, right now. The one being, and uh, this has been explained already, the adverse effects of the vaccination all the way down to death. And then the second aspect, how the law is being broken um, here in, in this context. This is what really shocks me uh, the most. Can I can I ask the 10%, how much would that be? How many would that be in the normal course in inverted commas? I don't know what would be a relative time, time frame. Is that over proportionally many? That's an excellent question. Um, um, it's a very good question. I uh, haven't looked into it in detail. I just calculated very briefly how many people passed in this um, last period of time. Yeah, actually, it's nearly uh, similar as to uh, previous years, but it was usually the um, uh, very old people, not relatively young people. So a 54-year-old is very young. On the first case that I spoke about, who uh, was infected three days after the PCR test, I was wondering how uh, was that possible? He was he never left his room. Could only have been that. That's of course an assumption. Um, I can't prove it. And uh, they never followed up on this, unfortunately, even though I reported it and uh, requested that the uh, public prosecutor look into this. We see that in the very broad line, the uh, correction mechanisms which were institutionalized earlier with the institutions who were there to correct this have completely failed or have ceased to exist. We've been through this, the story that Viviani has uh, mentioned of that care home in Berlin, where after vaccination of 31 people, eight died in, within eight weeks, and another 11 had severe adverse effects. That should be an alarm signal, first class uh, red flag of everything. So due to the court case filing, the public prosecutors should have investigated and I said, no, it's not concrete enough. Only if the doctors, the involved doctors say this is uh, something strange, we get into action. So this is really uh, fooling us and uh, to be uh, polite, but uh, these people will um, have to take the consequences. Yes, exactly. I didn't want to interrupt you if you can uh, get back to the two points that you were making. 
Well, on that uh, legal uh, uh, trespassing, well, I think it's very interesting um, to see how things are turned top down here. Uh, if people who are affected, I have been knowing them for years, and I assume them, I see that they wouldn't want this um, if they can't express it themselves. And then this is uh, become said obvious. And simply the opposite is said um, or stated to get a maximum number of vaccinated people. That's the only question that counts, apparently. Um, up and down. Are they vaccinated? If not, why not? And uh, what's going on? And uh, it even goes as far as that uh, in one case, um, a relatively young person who didn't want to get the vaccination, um, I was discharged or preliminary because it may happen that in the future he may want to change his mind and then I could possibly stop him. So this is absolutely ridiculous fucking around. Well, the judges don't seem to do that. Well, um, even though if the will of the person is uh, esteemed so highly, this person, if they even uh, wrote to the uh, local court and the district court saying that I have nothing to do with this decision not to uh, take the vaccination, he doesn't want to, so he's got a tablet, he can use the internet, he is informed. And he can do that. He has a physical um, problem uh, at, that took him to a care home. And he was the last person that I had in a care home. Well, as a client, can I uh, select whom I wanted a caregiver? Or could he have objected that to that? Um, was this the lack of personal ability that was an, an issue there? Yeah, which is really uh, fictitious. Uh, actually, it's the case, and the court should uh, follow the will and the wish of the client. And this is even going further. He himself addressed the district court, and he was just kicked out. And uh, it is the point that um, I was not capable, and uh, the respective uh, judge had uh, ruled this. And still, there are more cases. I, I'm not getting new clients. Uh, people explicitly addressed me, asking me if I can um, take care of them if they need it. And that has not been done the case. Other people are assigned. Well, that's actually an interference with your freedom to uh, exercise your profession. Yes, I am led to bleed to death here, simply, yes. To vaccinate as many people as possible and to expose them to this unbelievable danger, everything else is um, blanked out and, as I said, they will pay a very high price for it. Well, maybe I can comment here. I had a guardian yesterday, a professional guardian on the phone, who, from their point of view, um, presented that in her regional dialect, very entertaining, really. And she told me that um, a mother, she uh, takes care of her mother and a son, and her son, who decide everything um, alone, 
And uh, she was called in the COVID, in case of COVID, if they don't want to, you have to decide that they do. And that's not my task. I, they decide. So the expectation, and Ms. Hitler can confirm this, the expectation is that even if people are fit to um, agree, motivate them to agree if they don't want to or ignore their will and still agree. That is something that you have to think about uh, bending the law here. That's, that's breaking the law. And if we had uh, decades of guardianship, um, people who were esteemed, because we do say that I have to follow the wish of my client, even if I don't like it, and I have to talk him. If exactly these people are kicked out, that doesn't throw a very good light on the quality of, of guardianship. Because if in other cases you don't discuss with your client, I just say, Ms. Hitler has few in care homes like me. Why? Because we try to keep people out of the care homes in the first place. That's the standard. Of course, if it is possible, do outward uh, uh, care, caring, although it's much more work and all the applications you've got the file organized, they help. Um, you have more liability risk because you can't have the care home to take it. We took these challenges and none of that counts anymore. The only thing that counts is the COVID vaccination. And that is not a quality uh, criteria. You could say it's the opposite, but uh, I don't want to go that far here. But what we have to say is what goes in the heads of these people, except from COVID. Um, uh, well, I have some other thoughts on that. If I sit on my desk and I hear something about Corona, I think, well, if it weren't the case, but we have other tasks to do. So it's a minimum of the minimum. And uh, I said 90% of my clients um, are vaccinated. And most of them didn't ask me like they didn't ask me before. And if they had have asked me, I to told them, but that was too much already. So um, we have to see this. And I just want to give you a forecast on the main application on the Reform 20A. Uh, general ma um, vaccine mandates. Um, this is, if I saw it rightly, that of course, as it was in the quarantinization, uh, the um, uh, guardian was liable. That is done. That's done for the uh, vaccination. So I am um, uh, mandated to vaccine my clients, and as soon as that gets part of my job liability wise take care of the of the health doesn't mean that the person can't agree it only means that we are competitive here if my uh, uh, client um, has a uh, signs a contract and i do one as well without knowing that he has one we have two so the care of the health alone does not allow that i exclude my client from their own action neither way before uh, for or against the vaccination it says elsewhere 
that the client should decide for themselves always and i should never replace his possible decision and that's why for me if um, we have a general vaccination mandate and um, he'd say uh, what do we have if i uh, am responsible for the health i have nothing so then that must be forced medication and then the judge has to decide a closed psychiatry and then in a further to be decided uh, um, um, imprisonment like uh, they got to get this shot that would be the only formally legal way to do this uh, let's not about any constitution or any other right so that can only be in the case of um, putting people in a closed home there is no other way to decide that the people can do it or not and uh, if i just think um, of this i um, think it's gruesome and they're gonna say you have to get all your people vaccinated and then i say okay discharge me of each individual case at least for the covid because uh you have told me 24 years every every uh rail on the bed was which was much less uh, uh crucial it's always the question, does that restrict the freedom of movement or not? And you had to have applications and uh, um, uh, there was big discussion that people would get over it. Um, so you get a non-decision. Still formally, I don't know, hundreds of times I had to do this. And now in this thing, oh, you can decide, no problem. Nobody needs to know that it doesn't need to be a court decision. So how can the parliament people who are uh, legally firm who know this um saying say this kind of thing so just the decision is not enough and another thing there is so-called um the restriction to agreement if i need to this um my client closes a contract i uh, he does that he and it's valuable and um if he has a restriction then um i approve the contract or not and then uh, that would be um a void contract only in this situation a guardian could take uh, um uh, and contradict a decision of the a client and i think i'm have um 0.0% um in 24 years um of this case this is not done this is only um if people um if only people get into debt then there is this kind of thing but the uh, courts say that we have the right and um, we um, can implement this and the whole non-legal uh, corona um, 20a ifsg um, is um, put at equal value over long long um, agreement so um, that is if Karlsruhe needs um, um, 
to look at this. I think they should think of what they do here. I hope that some person who uh, is a client who needs to be fit for business, you can't do that with a mentally sick person, um, that uh, somebody with a psyche or a bodily disease is ready to go to the constitutional court to at least look at this regulation. Thank you. Your hope that the Supreme Court might still um, uphold the rule of law, that any of the judges still have any um, respect for the rule of law, um, I wouldn't um, support that. You can't hope for these people anymore. But on uh, the basis of what I've heard from you and um, from you, Ms. Hitler, where Going straight back to the T4 program, uh, I don't doubt it at all. Any option of protecting the people, which is your job, is forcefully torn down. So stand fast, stand fast and do all you can to stop this from getting ever worse. Okay, from my point of view, that was a view into uh, a, a gaze into hell. Oh, we just looked at the surface, to be honest. My oh my. Maybe one more point, if I can, if I may add. Uh, unfortunately, in the doctorship, there is the way to think if a person has a guardian and the guardian uh, has the health care, uh, then um, the guardian has to decide. And um, over the many years, there were so many discussions on this topic uh, with the respective doctors saying, no, this is not the case. You have to um, look at the client for the patient in your case. And only if you have the impression that the person by no means understand what this is all about and they can't foresee the consequences, I play a role and then we have to do this together but in as far as the people can decide for themselves they can full stop on they even have to and as there is a lot of discussion going on in this respect there was even one i think two possibly uh draw drafted a um respective paper, which we can take as a help if the uh, doctors don't want to listen to us, and uh, where this is um, put up as a support. And now the court itself um, leads this ad absurdum. Only first they support and they say, okay, the people can decide for themselves. But as far as the vaccination is concerned, we have to make sure that they do get vaccinated. And that is something I think is absurd. It's horrible, disgusting. You're not free. You're not free anyway. But now if you have the guardianship, uh, you have the fear to lose your job, which is probably what we are going to face, um, they are always going to agree. And that is um, a very, very severe breach of the law and a breach of the trust as well. You're condemned to do the dirty work. 
well, or not so well. Well, thank you very much for the uh, open words. I think it's very important to make this public, even though it uh, remains in this so-called echo cham chamber, but a little bit always seeps out. It is frightening, but it's important to know, because only if we see the whole picture will we know what to do. We do know what to do. Well, thank you very much again. Well, now we take a look at where this all comes from, uh, what we can see right now. The consequences are something that uh, either never happened or happened uh, incorrectly. We look at what about the so-called vaccinations, vaccines that aren't possibly aren't any. Are there any real medical studies uh, about them or not? Brooke Jackson is joining us. She's a former regional director of Ventavia, a company contracted by Pfizer to conduct the clinical trials. According to her report, Ventavia falsified data, unblinded patients, um, employed poorly trained vaccinators, and inadequately tracked side effects. Um, Brooke, are you with us? Can you hear us? I think you're muted. There you go. Thank you. Good morning, Mario. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, we have spoken uh, with Ed Dowd. We've spoken with um, Dr. Robert Malone. We've also spoken to a group of Canadian scientists who took a deep dive into the Pfizer trials and came to the conclusion that this is a gigantic fake. They didn't put it, they didn't phrase it this way, but that is the only conclusion that I can come to as a, as a lawyer. The legal analysis of what we heard of the factual, um, well, complete disaster that we've heard about can only be these people are either completely incompetent or this is being done on purpose. Um, what can you tell us about this? Well, I, I can tell you that I, um, give me one second, they're saying something's wrong with the video. Is that better? There yeah, we go. We can see Perfect. I started with Ventavia Research Group, which considers themselves a, a clinical research organization. And over the last six months, they've um, structured their company to be more of a clinical research organization. But during my time there, I would consider it more of a site management organization. So they would um, use third-party contracts to um, uh, um, coordinate with physicians' offices, private private groups to to run clinical research. So I started I started with that group in September of 2020 and my time there was was very brief. I was only there in total and this inc included weekends 18 days. Mm -hmm. From day 1 on on the job I I recognized problems. The clinical trial, um, the, sp the space, number one, was very small. We only had about five exam rooms and very, very understaffed. There were sometimes, you know, four to five coordinators that were pushing through 
sometimes, you know, 40, 50, 60 patients a day. And these were their initial study visits, which included uh, informed consent, which um, I, I, I noticed many, many patients didn't get fully. <clears throat> um, and the study doctor, the principal investigator that was over the entire trial at the site, this one particular site that I'm speaking about in Fort Worth, Texas, was very rarely on site. So th those were um, really the first things that I noticed, just how many patients were actually coming into the clinical trial site and, and the lack of staff that we had to oversee those, those visits. And could you give us like an, um, an idea of what the usual percentage of, uh, like how many more people would you expect like to do this, the examination and like would this, uh, you know, the, the major doctor usually be on site all the time? Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and that's so in case there was an adverse event or um, an unscheduled study visit that needed to occur there was somebody qualified and, and um, responsible to do that. In terms of um, number of staff that we should, should have in this type of design and clinical trial, they, they needed to have triple the staff there, triple. <laughs> and, and it depends on the complexity, yes, the complexity of the study, um, you know, because when I used to manage Uh, my my liver and, and uh, kidney transplant patients. We I was able to to manage that on my own, obviously with with the help of um, you know the the doctor, the surgeon, and the team. But you know I, I could manage that by myself, and I would always have and make sure I had a backup. But yeah, the, the, that that was the problem with initially Ventavia was just the lack of space, the lack of they were severely understaffed. The principal investigator was busy um, in the hospital system where he worked. He's also an endoscopist. So this was just kind of a, a part-time side side gig, I guess. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and can I ask you, why, why do you think that was? I mean, it sounds pretty um, surprising. Imagine that, you know, like if you consider that there was, this was such a high priority uh, study and also there must have been a lot of money in the market to get this like warp speed uh, product out. Right, right. And I, I, I know that Ventavia was paid on a per patient basis mainly. You know, there's there's study startup fees and, and other fees that are originated from, you know, things outside of patient recruitment. But, I, you know, that was a driving force money. I, I'm, I'm certain of it. Why, why else? You know, and um, it, it's it's frustrating because I, I, I know that that was the reason behind why why they were pushing for more patients, more patients. And that was partly driven by, by Pfizer directly. Um, and just, just to be clear, anything that I say, um, I, I have record of in internal company documents, emails, text messages. I walked in realizing immediately what was going on. So pretty much just started documenting and making sure that I had everything. Mm -hmm. um, Brooke, why is it 
that I mean, there are a lot of whistleblowers out there, not just from, uh, well, I think you're the only one, as far as I know, from um, from a CRO, but um, there, there's other whistleblowers from all walks of life, more or less. But why is it that so few people who must have seen the same things that you saw, that so few, few people dare to come out with that? Is it because of the pressure, because of the threats uh, that uh, that they're trying to use to keep you in line? I think it's I think it's partly that. Mm -hmm. so, um, coincidentally, the same day that I filed the complaint with the Food and Drug Administration, a few hours later, I was I was fired, mm -hmm. and it took me. A, almost a year it, to, to the date exactly to to find another position and I've been doing this for 20 years I'm I've I've worked from you know a site level to uh, clinical research organizations I'm I, I'm qualified I'm certified uh, clinical trial auditor certified clinical trial professional I've been doing this for most of of, of you know my working career. And when I was getting turned down for all these positions, I, I, you know, this is just my opinion. I don't know this for fact, but I feel like I was overlooked for a lot of these positions because of Ventavia and their connections in the industry. But when you say that you uh, filed this complaint and basically were fired immediately, so someone from the FDA must have called Ventavia or Pfizer straight away and say, well, we have a whistleblower here, or there's a problem. And that's, I mean, kind of strange because wouldn't it have taken a little bit of investigation or getting in touch with you and saying, okay, is there something? I mean, you know, if you if you are a a, a real, um, uh, you know, like a an, uh, an authority that would take its responsibility to oversee that it's a um, well uh, working process, you know, uh, in the studies. So if they had taken this um, this task seriously, they would have investigated the, um, you know, the claims beforehand. Sure, sure. I, I I believe wholeheartedly that the FDA once I made made the complaint contacted Pfizer directly and in turn Pfizer contacted Ventavia and I was terminated. Yeah, it is very obvious to me. I mean, uh, the FDA, I think the FDA gets at least 50%, maybe more of its funding from the pharmaceutical industry. So what do you expect, you know? Uh, but this is this is even in your experience, this is a first, isn't it? Because from your reaction, I gather, right from the start, you realize there's something seriously wrong here. So you gathered the uh, evidence, and then when you finally decided you would um, turn to the FDA and tell them what's going on, you must have believed at that point in time, you must have believed that they're going to be the ones who are going to correct this, that they're going to do something to correct this. Um, and in the meantime, I suppose you've come to the conclusion that they're part of the whole, um, well, in my view, criminal activities that are going on there. We have the same views and and, and you're right. I've, I've just, you know, over the last year and a half since this has happened, I've realized quite a bit and 
the trust that I had in, in the scientific process, the regulatory process, that's been taken from me. And that's those are feelings that I'm still placing. You know, I, I, I love the industry that I'm in. Um, but, it, you know, when I as soon as I filed that FDA complaint and, and was fired, um, a few days later, I was contacted by the FDA directly and, and I spoke with an inspector. Her and I spoke for a little over an hour and went um, over each of the things that were listed in that complaint in, in quite a bit of detail. And that's the last time that I heard from the FDA was on the 29th of September of 2020. What was interesting after, after I made that complaint and and Pfizer, or excuse me, the FDA did reach out to me to follow up on that complaint. On October 9th of 2020, Pfizer's attorney started to contact me. He somehow got my personal cell phone number <clears throat> and called it, and I didn't recognize the number, so I didn't answer the phone call. Mm -hmm. I. That, that happened repeatedly. Those calls were back to back. And my husband and I were in our garage playing um, playing darts. And when I got these calls, I, I didn't recognize them. So I just let them go to my voicemail. After the third or fourth call, I can't remember um, the, the exact number. It was either three or four. And I didn't answer. The text messages started. And the first text message from that unknown number was um, from Mark Barnes, who identified himself as Pfizer's attorney. And, and the, the text message read, Ms. Jackson, my name is Mark Barnes. I'm Pfizer's attorney. And I would like to talk to you about the issues you brought up in Pfizer's clinical trial. So my first question back to him was, how, did you, how do you know my name is Ms. Jackson? And he replied back and said, he just assumed my name. And so my next text message back to him was, well, then how did you get my phone number? Yes. And he, he said that he, he got it from a, a, a site liaison of Pfizer. So a Pfizer employee who I spoke with the day after I was fired. Um, to complain and, and file another complaint, but I did so anonymously. I called, you know, when I spoke to this gentleman with Pfizer directly, I did so without I think we have a really bad line here. Um, you're frozen uh, right now but maybe we can reconnect. Ungeheuerliche Geschichte. Ja, ist unfassbar. Sie wendet sich an die, die eigentlich dafür da sind. To those people who are actually there to uh, report this. And what do they do? They threat her. And they ensure she is immediately fired. That is no threat. Well, maybe she'll be able to return 
But uh, ready now, what she has told us, so now we would have a couple of questions, but still, what she reported is quite evil. Nobody will be able to say this is somebody who has no idea of the idea of, of what's going on. She has 20 years of professional experience, and she doesn't make the impression that she's... Uh, a, a revolutionary. It's the first time that she's been doing this kind of thing. She's been dropped out. She's dropped out completely. So the first time that he found things very strange was that Pfizer trial. Not enough staff, no doctors on site, no doctors available, no clear information on the on the volunteers. These are not patients. So um there you have to give more information even so here it's young uh, uh, it's healthy people who are no patients they're used for an experiment and still there's no clear information and um to her experience in that trial so it confirms everything what that group of canadian scientists tried to uh, find out by that deep dive um from someone who was completely involved. I don't know what questions there are. There is a fake from front to bin, end. Uh, adults' uh, um, impression is quite right. This is a gigantic fraud. And against this background, German care homes and others, possibly, um, it happens what we have just heard. People are forced to take a non-tested or uh, fraudulently tested product and get that inoculated, which is not even a vaccination because the definition of the vaccination is that it immunizes the person and uh, does a, uh, creates a sterile immunity that doesn't allow, that stops transgressions and nobody asks questions except from Brooke Jackson's, Jack D Ed Doubt and others. Of course, and those who should do, who would be obliged to do, um, don't. It's absolutely unbelievable. Um, um, I hope she comes back. I would like to ask her that um, she said that this blinding, um, maybe she can join us via uh, telephone, that, uh, that, that there were problems there, and um, also the inadequate documentation of adverse effects. That's fascinating too. How uh, exactly did that happen? Uh, what were the processes? And we have to uh, wonder if that is designed that way, why do they do that? Well, of course they do it because they want to avoid this information to come back. But is that something people really concoct uh, uh, by saying we take the uh, least number of staff we uh, can and then um, they can't really un uh, veil anything or why do they do what they're doing? I think um, there is, uh, it plays a role. She says it's money and um, if you want to make as much money as you can, you use as little staff as possible, especially, you know, doctored. And uh, it was quite clear from the beginning that the test is only in a formal way. She's uh, back. back. Yeah. That's good. Can yes, you, I can hear you. Okay, great. Um, yeah, uh, Vivian wanted to ask a couple of questions. I, I mean, these most of them are rhetorical questions because, of course, we know the answers to yeah. these questions. But uh, it is important to hear it 
from someone who was there, not just from people who, after the fact, took this deep dive, this Canadian group of scientists took this deep dive into the into the trial. Go ahead, Vivian. Yeah, I would like to know. I'm sorry. I, I just just to get this um, get this out. If if that happens again, I'm gonna just call in. Yes. But these are are things that have been happening to me over the last um, the last couple of weeks. My um, internet. I've lost two computers. Wow. Um, that just don't work. Um, can hear things on my cell phone. I've been getting threats and it's just, I, I, I guess I should have prepared and, and known this was gonna happen. It happened yesterday during an interview and our internet provider came out and said everything was fine. When she left, it was working perfect. It, um, but as soon as she left, it stopped working again. Uh, but over over last night and into this morning, it had been working perfect. So I, I apologize. No, no, there's no need to apologize. I just hope, you know, um, we all of us here have people who we can talk to who are in line with our views, which are extremely critical, extremely skeptical of what of, of what the other side is trying to tell us. We don't trust anything that the other side through the mainstream media and their politicians, because they're their politicians, not ours, what they're trying to tell us. So um, I I can I can only do I can only assure you that we're completely behind you. All of us are completely behind you. It's not just Ed Dowd, who's a great man. Uh, or Robert Malone, but it's all of us. So uh, just try and stay strong. We're going to try to do the same thing because this there's no other way. We have to find out what's really going on. We have to bring out the truth because the more people understand what is really going on, the more people will stand up, will rise up and fight this because that's the only way. Um, there are a few courts of law that can still be trusted none in this country i mean there's very 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 few exceptions to this rule but there's some courts of law in the united states there's some the judiciary is still functioning in in india and uh it's still hopefully functioning in south africa in their constitutional court but they need the facts and that's why we're extremely grateful for your courage i i know you're doing the right thing you know that too there's no other way yeah yeah go ahead thank Vivian. you <laughs> sure sure i was wondering um how did the the uh, this event with the lawyer with the attorney um how did that further develop or was that the end of the contact that was the end of the contact i uh never heard from him again and my and when i met ed dowd Ed and I did a podcast with a person um, uh, named Thomas Paine. And as I'm going through this interview and I'm telling Thomas and, and Ed again, the story of, of Pfizer's attorney contacting me, Thomas got really quiet. And during, when I was finishing the story, I guess he'd gone in and, and looked through some of his, his files from, from his, um, time in, in his previous life, but he knew exactly who Mark Barnes was and described him to me as Pfizer's cleanup guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that tells you the whole story right there. 
they know mm -hmm. they're in deep, pardon my language, they're in deep, deep shit. They know they're about to implode. And with the help of Ed Dowd and all the others, uh, this is going to this is going to become true very soon. Because as as you probably know, the Moderna uh, shares have gone down. I think they've lost 70 percent, and Pfizer is on that same route downwards, down to hell. <laughs> so I was wondering, this um, this Ventavia company is that known for being especially stingy? So that uh, you know they do this like all the time that they have understaffed uh, study groups, or is this? I mean, when when you applied to them like for looking for a job, I mean, has this been? Is this like known in the industry that they do these kinds of things, or is this even in that field unusual? This was very unusual. I've never, I've never been you know, employed by anybody who was understaffed and still enrolling. If if you need if you needed more coordinators or research staff or assistants, then you you hire them, but you don't start the trial until those processes and um, workers are in place. But that was, you know, again, just due to greed. They were not prepared, but but tried to bring in uh, other staff that included their family members, their friends were working for the company. They were enrolling themselves into the trial. Pfizer CEO currently is still one of Pfizer's clinical trial participants as were her children, Ooh. which is a direct violation of Pfizer's clinical trial protocol. Wow. Well, that's intense. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's scary. I've, I've, and just the, the time that I was there was able to gather so much evidence. And since I've left, I've been given evidence and Pfizer isn't the only vaccine candidate that Ventavia is enrolling patients and they're participating in every single one of them. Wow. And every single group pregnant women included. They're working on RSV studies, C. diff studies, pneumonia studies. Vaccines are their, their, um, their bread and butter, if you will. Mm -hmm. And is this a, a large company? Is this one of the better known companies or is it a small player? I would say that I, I'd never heard of them before. Um, they're, they're based in Texas only, but they fall under an umbrella of a company called Platinum Research Network. And Platinum Research Network is, is, is large. It covers the U.S. And these companies that are under the umbrella of Platinum Research Network, like Ventavia, there, there's others around the country, and their preferred sites of all the big pharma. I'm talking GlaxoSmithKline. There was a recent um, pause in one of their RSV studies due to a, a safety signal. Ventavia was in that study as well. Um, Janssen and Janssen, uh, you know, um, Johnson and Johnson, Janssen's company, all the big pharma companies are Abbott, any anyone that you can think of 
they're, they're participating in their studies. And I think that's why I feel so intimidated by Pfizer especially, but all these things that are happening just that I can't necessarily um, put my finger on. But when I think back about it, I, I, I'm like, oh, that was weird. You know, like losing my internet. Um, my passwords on my computer just will change by themselves. I'll, I'll log in, use my password, and it'll say wrong password. And I didn't change it. So there's just, there's, there's just some things going on there. A whistleblower group reached out to me the other day and I started a conversation with them and they wanted me to speak to an attorney. Excuse me, I'm gonna grab a drink. They asked me to speak to an attorney who's local in Dallas. And I, um, her and I had a conversation and we decided that we were gonna meet at one location. And my instruction from this whistleblower group was to, as soon as I got to the location where we decided we were gonna meet, I was to turn off my cell phone. And then we would find a, um, and agree upon a new place to meet and go there. On my way driving to the location that we agreed upon, about 10 minutes before I get there, she sends me a text message and says, canceling, we're not gonna meet. So I text her back and I said, uh, why? And she texted me back and said, we need to be safe and went silent, went dark. And so I, you know, drove back home and then she texts me later on in the evening and said, you know, something came up with her children, but this is the type of, these are the types of things that are happening to me. It's just, I don't know how to explain them. Um, you know, it, it makes me, I, I'm, I'm frightened. Um, it is quite obvious, Brooke, that they're trying to intimidate you, like they're trying to intimidate anyone and everyone who is challenging them. You're not really mm -hmm. challenging uh, challenging them. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. I mean, you are not even, you were not even a whistleblower when you turned to the FDA. You did what you're supposed mm -hmm. to do. And well, I did. I, yeah. I took all the information to my company. I, uh, you know, on the 17th of September, recommended that we pause enrollment in the study. One, because we had inadvertently unblinded every clinical trial participant from enrollment through that date by placing the randomization scheme in their in their file. Mm -hmm. Now this was just to be clear, this was, you know, Pfizer unblinded the patients eventually, but this was prior to that happening. Mm -hmm. All the patients were 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 unblinded and, and per Pfizer's protocol, we should have alerted them immediately. On top of that, we had found out that, you know, there were oh that there were they were not monitoring the temperature of the vaccine for months. Mm -hmm. And, and when we went, when we finally went in and, and realized what, you know, what had happened that we, we, we understood that the vaccine was out of the proper range for the entire time. 
You mean they did not monitor the temperature of the vaccines? I mean, that is, that is one of the most important things that people should have been aware of, because that's even here in Germany. That's what we learned right from the start, because I think it had to be cooled down to what, minus 70 degrees centigrade, something like that. And they, and they didn't even monitor that. No, no. And that wasn't just at one location. This is at two of the three locations where they were not monitoring uh, the temperature of, of the product. And, and remember, uh, just a few months in, and this was after my, uh, my False Claims Act case was, was filed, Pfizer found a way with the FDA to, to skirt around that, and they approved the lower temperature storage of the vaccine. So I'm wondering if, you know, when they realized that, especially these clinics, these three with Ventavia, weren't monitoring the temperature, if they did that, so lowered the temperature of, of the product stability, so to fall, so Ventavia would not have to exclude those patients. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. So that means if we assume that, you know, this first instruction to have it cooled down to like minus 70 degrees was necessary, then they would have injected people with like, you know, basically uh, in inactive vaccines, like yes, rotten yes, vaccines. Another, exactly. Another huge red as, as I'm, you know, just the first few days on the job, introduced myself to the staff. I pulled the vaccinator. So in this clinical trial, there was, you know, per FDA's guidance should have been, you know, randomized double blind. That was a guidance per the FDA. As you know, um, the study ended up being observer blind. So there was one unblinded vaccinator at each of the clinical trial locations and a backup vaccinator, uh, unblinded vaccinator. Mm -hmm. When I pulled the unblinded vaccinator's resume or CV and introduced, you know, myself to her and just kind of get her background, I realized that she had no medical training at all. She volunteered her time in, I believe, a hospital system for a few months. And her experience right before coming to Ventavia Research Group was at a taco restaurant. Ooh. Yes. So again, no medical training, no supervision by the study doctor. She's preparing the vaccine. She's injecting the vaccine with restaurant, restaurant experience. Maybe that's good enough for these kinds of vaccines. Holy smokes. I mean, this is clearly, I, I've been in, um, I've done a lot of medical law. This is, I I thought this is all behind me because this is 20 years ago. But um, mm. from what you're telling us, this is, this cannot be an accident. This is not explicable. You can't explain it by, the, it is it is the totality of the evidence that we're now seeing. The totality of all that um completely disastrous um ongoings and in during this what they call a clinical trial it shows you this is not this cannot be negligence 
And also from what you're telling us about all the other companies, all the other pharmaceutical comp companies who seem to be uh, biased towards Vantavia, I mean, it tells you that they want to work with someone who doesn't work according to protocol. They want to work with someone who um, kind of skirts around the corners and doesn't play um, doesn't play uh, according to the real textbook. I don't get it. This is not this is not an accident. And why is it that the FDA is not following up on this? Did they give you any? Did, did, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. Because they're 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 complicit in yeah. in what they're doing. They they know probably by now that I was a, a credible source who made a complaint very early on that they refused to investigate. Mm -hmm. They refused to come to at least inspect the site. If they would have done that, then they would have, I'm certain based on my experience and, and what I know of um, action that can be taken by the FDA in a clinical trial, they would have Im immediately stopped enrolling um, and in the study at Ventavia specifically, um, but but maybe more um, because if if this was happening at Ventavia, I'm certain that it was happen happening at other places. It, it had to be. Yeah. Pfizer was pushing so hard, and they knew that Ventavia was missing data. They were underreporting adverse events, <laughs> and they failed to they failed to go to the side. And I think that you know one thing that Ventavia does really well is marketing, <laughs> and they do yeah. they do they're able to quickly enroll in these clinical trials. Research is is um, in in my area typically viewed in a positive way, and that that was how they were able to get so many patients into the study so quickly was by clever clever marketing mm -hmm. and can i ask you the your impression of the other staff members like except for this uh, for Mataco lady like um did you have the feeling that they were like also like underqualified or were they um do you think they received a lot of money for being involved or what could have been the motive of picking these people I mean, because they must have also realized that there was something fishy, unless they were maybe completely unexperienced. They were completely unexperienced. Again, I say they were bringing in family members, friends, other coordinators from other locations to help at certain points during the study, especially when I when I recommended that they stop enrolling in the study. Going back to that really quickly, they, they should have alerted Pfizer to those those two things, um, the unblinding, the improper storage of the vaccine. Excuse me. Um, but they 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 agreed. They paused enrollment in the study and it was all hands on deck. Everybody stop what they're doing and you come in and everybody grab a chart and and start going through it, the falsification and fabrication of data really started. I really started to see it at that point, although I had been made aware of it from previous emails where some of the coordinators were, were actually disciplined for fabricating and falsifying data. So this started 
um, back from August of 2020, when I was reading through emails and going through HR type documents, I was, I was seeing that they were written up for these types of, you know, um, this type of misconduct. Um, so going in to that middle of September, everybody's going through charts. If there's data points that are missing, they were just making up the data. If there was a blood pressure, for example, that was found to be out of range that the study doctor didn't evaluate at the time, they would just change that data and make it fit within what was normal. Inclusion, exclusion criteria in the protocol was, was frequently not assessed by the doctor. I have documents that are, are confirming that the study doctor backdated a physical exam, signed a physical exam when he wasn't even in clinic. And yes, I, I alerted, I alerted the FDA when I, when I realized the FDA wasn't going to do anything, I, I decided to, to file the False Claims Act case. And that was probably one of the biggest mistakes because at that point, I was ordered not to talk about what I'd seen. And that my former attorneys warned me because as the months passed and, you know, the vaccine was eventually approved and rolled out to millions and then the mandates came and then they started the work on on the children and I I warned my attorneys as this vaccine comes towards the age group that my children fall in I'm not going to be quiet anymore and while while the DOJ is allowed to investigate you know at this point you know in January I'd filed it in I guess it was I'm thinking September uh, when, when I, I mean, I've been talking about it for time, this, why are they not investigating? Why do they keep asking for a continuance? Why can't I just tell my story? Ventavia is doing all these other research studies. I need to get this information out there. Why can I not at least tell my story without revealing that there is a case? And he warned me, Brooke, if you, if you tell your story, the government is going to come after you. I have an email. That's exactly what he told me. And I said, well, let him come then because I just cannot be silent anymore. It was a weight that was too heavy on my heart. And that's when I took the information to the British Medical Journal. I think it's a very good step because like, you know, this is what protects you, that yeah. you're public with this. Because if you keep this a secret, you know, like have documents at home and, you know, or like the information at home and you still ponder whether you're going to, uh, you know, going to go out or not with the information. I think that's the most dangerous part even yeah. because then they know they can just silence you and the information is never going to see the light of the day. But now, you know, basically, what can they do? Yes, they can, uh, you know, be a little bit of a pest toward you. Like, I mean, maybe like fumble with the Internet or whatever they do or send out some threads. But the information is out there in the world and it's they cannot take it back, uh, you know. And it's having an yeah. effect, too. It's having an effect, at least on Wall Street. It's it's having an effect. But what this basically... It's not interesting that it, that it for, for, you know change change really mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. 
And it, but it's actually something that also Pfizer would need to report or like inform their uh, investors about, you know, that, I mean, if it's not already like it wasn't, if it like say they had uh, inform received, like didn't, hadn't known what was going on in Vitavia, they would have said, wow, now we have this whistleblower information and we have to inform you investors that maybe the study wasn't conducted the way it should have been. So, wow, there can be like risks involved that we have not known about previously. So it's a, could be like a uh, an earnings warning that they would need to uh, put out there. And I guess they have not done that really. Oh, they did actually. They, okay. they did put out a yeah. They did after the after the information you revealed. Yes. And making <laughs> reference to that, that the study might have not been conducted the right way. Yes. Wow. Wow. See, Maybe it that's works. That's why it goes fast. It works. I don't think they're yeah. going to survive this. Uh, but what this boils down to is that the go-to CRO, Ventavia. For the pharmaceutical industry, it's the go-to uh, CRO. This is this is what I gather from what you're saying, that they're just going through the motions. They're just conducting a make-believe trial. It's a, it's really a fake trial. I mean, not just from what you told us, but also from this other from this group from what this group of scientists, Canadian scientists, told us. They're just doing this so that they'll be able to tell the FDA or in Europe it's the EMA uh, that. C clinical trials were conducted when in reality it's a mockery it is no such thing has happened they even unblinded their control group i this is nothing that is even remotely um uh that has has any remote um uh, resemblance of a clinical trial from what i remember unless over the past 20 years uh the definition of what a clinical trial is has completely changed and i don't think it has i mean they did change the definition of what a pandemic is and what uh, uh natural immunity is or or what immunity is in general but i don't think they changed that so this is criminal yeah they also changed the definition of, of anti-vax don't don't forget don't forget that one yeah yeah. But it would be interesting to look at Ventavia a little bit more closely, like who's invested in that company and all these things. And, um, you know, also, like, I mean, it might be that they pick a smaller company, as you describe it, and it's maybe, I mean, it's maybe the hotspot, that's the place you have to go if you want to get such kind of uh, maybe inadequately uh, produced trial, but um, study, but um, then you would... Um, would need to, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a small company that then they can say, you know, if people get go after them and say, wow, you because of these tri these uh, trials that weren't uh, conducted the right way, you would need to, uh, you're, um, you now, you're liable. And um, therefore, uh, they can just like, go, let this company go bankrupt, you know, put it into insolvency because of, uh, and then it's so it's not affecting Pfizer itself, you know, maybe that's that's another thing why they maybe pick such a small company. No, then. they can't do that anymore. Uh, they, they have left behind a trail of blood, so to speak. The moment that this uh, Pfizer attorney tried to contact you, they're not innocent anymore. Now they know what's going on and they try to suppress this information. We're not talking about negligence anymore. Yeah, their knowledge of Ventavia's misconduct happened way before that conversation. They were aware of what some of the things that Ventavia was doing or should have known just um, 
by communications that Ventavia was sending directly to Pfizer. There were many times that Pfizer was, was emailing us directly, the directors asking for, for updates on serious adverse events for the study doctor to assess causality of certain serious adverse events, asking for data to be updated. I never saw contractually you know, the contracts between Pfizer and Ventavia, but Pfizer's, or excuse me, Ventavia's CEO or COO at the time, her own mother was in charge of all the Pfizer um, and study contracts. And they just, they're, they're, my, my goal here is to one, just bring, bring attention to the Pfizer study one, but also Ventavia has got to stop putting people in danger. And they do that every single day as they're following these patients in the clinical trial. And three, we have got to see some kind of change in our regulatory process. Absolutely. So those, mm -hmm, those, those are my goals. Um, so. But from what you're telling us, this is so important because it's it gives us a kind of a bird's eyes view of what is really going on. It's not just Vintavia, it's not just Pfizer, it's the FDA, it's their attorneys. I mean, the entire system seems to be totally corrupt. We can't work with this system. It is it is so broken. There's nothing we can do about it. Well, I think I think what we're doing here, what you, what everybody from so many groups from around the world have just, you know, really will help bring attention to this, and and I, my hope is that we see change. We will. It's happening already. Already, people, those who are, um, who understand, or or who are at least beginning to ask questions, because the more questions you you ask, the more answers you're going to get. And those of us who have done this um, are already working on a parallel system. We need a new system of education, of of uh, economics, of healthcare, but also we need a no whole new system of the judiciary. Um, I know that in some places in the U.S. it's still functioning. As I said, in India it's still functioning, but in many places in this world, in particular here in Germany, it's not functioning anymore. They installed their puppets in all of the what they consider strategically relevant places. However, now that we've come to the conclusion that we've got to build something completely new because this system cannot be fixed, I think this is the way out. And it's it's only a matter of time when our here in Germany, we're maybe 20%, maybe 30%. It's much more in the United States when our 20% will be the 80%, the new 80%. Because this is this system, as a, a professor of psychology by the name of Matthias Desmet, he's from Belgium, as he explained to us, this system is bound to collapse. It is uh, self-destructive, and that is precisely what is happening right now. So in that sense, Brooke, this is, this is you did a great service to humanity. I know this is a big word, but I really mean it. This is so important. It cannot be overestimated what you're doing here. And we're extremely grateful for that, extremely. Thank you for, thank you for having, having me here and allowing me to tell this story. And that's something that I you know, it's not my story. This isn't my story. This isn't 
These are documents. This is Ventavia. This is Pfizer's study. It's not my story, but it is a story that belongs to the entire world. They need yeah. to know how these clinical trials operate and how big pharma operates and, and big tech operates and their censorship of information. So I, I'm very grateful to, to be a part of this and, and thank you guys very much for, for what you're doing and for everybody that's been, been a part of this so far. Thank you, Brooke. I, you know, through my, I don't know, 28 years of work as a trial lawyer, I've never met a more credible witness than you. So you cannot lose. We cannot lose. Thank you. Thank you again and have a great weekend, Brooke. Thank you all very much. Oh, wow. If somebody had told me this, I wouldn't have believed it, but she's the one who knows it firsthand. This is a firsthand account. Incredible. Um, we now have uh, Daniel Bulfort with us, a former officer of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, Daniel, it's so great to have you with us. We are extremely grateful for your uh, accepting our invitation. How are you doing? I'm I'm very well. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's surreal for me to be sitting here right now, face to face with you, sir. Uh, you know, you've been uh, such a such a powerhouse in this uh, COVID counter narrative that when I was asked to to participate in this, I almost didn't believe it. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you. We saw your video and I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that one of the people who is so close to the action would come forward and say, no, this is it. I'm not going to go along with it anymore. What prompted you to do this? Well, uh, I'll admit throughout uh, 2000 or 2020, I wasn't paying much attention to the COVID narrative at all. I was still working. Uh, operations within my unit were fairly uninterrupted. We had uh, adjusted our schedule and we're working in smaller groups. And then, I mean, because of my profession, I had stopped listening to the mainstream media years ago. Um, so I was, I was spending my time educating myself on topics that I was interested in and, uh, you know, either at work with my root day job or my real job, and then doing other projects on my own. And then it was my wife who started to bring things to my attention because she much more of a social media presence because I, I virtually had almost no social media footprint. So it was early 2021 that our unit was offered the vaccine, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And I was it was kind of surprising for, for us that we would be offered it so soon. I mean, I know that they were prioritizing healthcare workers and other first responders, but my unit was not face-to-face um, -face with the public on a day-to-day -day basis. We were still operating mostly independently within our small groups. And we were not a high-risk category, right? Like we're, you know, mid-30s, mid-40s for the vast majority of all of us, strong, fit, healthy people. So it was... It was a bit surprising that they would prioritize that for us. And some of the rationale was, you know, if we're responsible for protecting people, we don't want to be giving them, we don't want to be responsible for spreading COVID to them, which 
I didn't buy that for a second. I was like, okay, you're trying to tell me that these people aren't protected already if if the protection really works. And second to that, I was also, that's a little bit of that smoke and mirrors that you will see from within a, a large government organization is how I felt about it. And I, I just wasn't comfortable knowing that it was new technology and my wife had expressed some concerns to me. So at that time I asked if it was mandatory, I was told no, possibly in the future. So I said, okay, well, I'm just going to wait and do some of my own, I get open source investigation into it is how I refer to it. Because I mean, I'm not a research scientist, but I do have, you know, out of 15 years of my career, uh, seven years was a full-time investigator. So I started to investigate both sides of the narrative. So I, I, I visited frequently, and I still do sometimes, uh, visit the official public health websites to try and get their most recent information. And, and then I spent a lot of time listening to uh, different interviews and reading documentation from, I call it like the difference between the official narrative and the COVID or the counter narrative. And a lot of my attention was based early on within uh, different doctors and scientists from the United States. And then eventually I, I came to learn of the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, you know, like Dr. Byron Bridal, uh, Dr. Ira Bernstein, some of the big, big names in Canada here that were countering the narrative, both from uh, on the topic of the mRNA and um, adenovirus yeah, right. A, a lot of the different topics. My my main focus was trying to find out as much as I could about the safety and effectiveness of the actual vaccine products. And then that led me into learning all about the suppression and intimidation of doctors who were using early treatment protocols. And that's when I really started to tune in that there's a major problem here. Like, you know, how I've often explained it to people is, okay, you can, you can believe what you want to believe about the safety and effectiveness of these injections. But the fact that we're actively suppressing and hammering our own doctors who are just trying to provide people with life-saving treatment, that is, well, in my mind, as a police officer or former police officer, like that's a, that's criminal negligence at the very least, you know, um, and on such a scale that I felt it was a legitimate crime against humanity. I had a lot of these conversations with uh, colleagues, you know, I mean, just still trying to sort out what was true. And there's a lot of that social pressure applied as well, right? Like you're a lot of concern about sounding like the, the conspiracy theorists that we've all been labeled to be. And, but eventually I got to the point where I knew I wasn't going to take it. And I was very upset that we had doctors being threatened and intimidated just because they're trying to save people's lives. And everything that I was hearing from Canada, from the United States, from uh, Tesla's group in the UK was that early treatment is essential, like right away, you have to do it. And our own response within Canada for the vast majority of the last two years was go home, you know, maybe manage your fever, hydrate, isolate from your loved ones, 
And when it's too hard to breathe, then you go to the hospital, at which point we know like that's it's very difficult to recover from, according to all of the experts that I had been listening to. You know, the FLCCC in the United States, America's frontline doctors, all these heavy hitter groups in the cut in the counter narrative. So I I uh, I actually even expressed my concerns to people that were in senior management positions within my division. And I was ignored. I knew that the mandates were coming down the pipe and that the, the freedom of choice was being eliminated. Our union was not representing us or taking a stand. Our organization, like the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, our organization was doing nothing to stand up for us against the mandates. So there was a, a group of us. I had been affiliated with a group called, or I, I had registered with a group called Police on Guard for Thee. And then out of that, I had learned about Mounties for Freedom and that uh, Mountie being the nickname for RCMP officers. So I decided to focus my attention there. Um, you know, different legislation governs the national police as opposed to provincial agencies. So I kind of became the de facto spokesperson for Mounties for Freedom uh, for the last number of months because we knew that someone had to go public. I had come to the conclusion that I felt I needed to and that I had done a significant amount of investigation. So I was I was confident in speaking to my concerns, even just as an appeal to people's humanity to stop spreading the, the vitriol and the hate towards anyone who questioned the narrative. And so that was that was the beginning of this journey for me um, publicly was my very first interview was with a podcaster here out of British Columbia. And then that led into further interviews. So that was the, the truth warrior podcast. That was, I was very apprehensive at first. I had no idea how that was going to be received mixed reaction, but overwhelmingly from colleagues all across the country, I started receiving a flood of support, like thanking me for what I was saying, because I was, I was verbalizing what they were thinking. And then that led into additional interviews and public speaking engagements. I got to meet all of the people that I had been following in Canada, like all the, the big name doctors and the Canadian COVID Care Alliance and uh, others associated with a group called Taking Back Our Freedoms. I've, got, I've become friends with them. I got to speak with them firsthand about their interpretation of the science. And then uh, when the convoy started up uh, out in Western Canada and you've seen the momentum that it was building, when volunteers locally based reached out to me to help with uh, security efforts, I, 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 had, I couldn't say no. I, when every other profession failed to stand up in large enough numbers to get the attention of the government, the truckers did. And so I felt like where my profession failed me and my family, the truckers stood up for me and my family and everybody like us. So I felt like I, I was morally obligated to help them. And so I did. So for the duration of the time that the convoy was in the city of Ottawa, I, I helped as a volunteer coordinating security efforts predominantly and then after you know, after a period of time, I, 
I had, I was helping with uh, other volunteer aspects, but predominantly uh, security and safety related. And throughout that time, I, I was dealing with the different police agencies on a almost a daily basis, sometimes multiple times per day, speaking to the different police liaison teams. So I had contact with people from the Parliamentary Protective Service, the Ottawa Police Service, the OPP, so the Ontario Provincial Police, and uh, and a guy that I knew from my previous uh, career within the RCMP on their one of their protective intelligence unit. And so I was, we were information sharing the entire time, right? Like it was, it was a goal. It was a back and forth between us and the police, a constant effort to try and remain uh, peaceful and, and, and a safe event for the entire time. And a lot of the narrative that you were seeing from the media, the mainstream media, legacy media, and from within the, the Ottawa police chief was was not my observed experience at all. My impression that I had when I spoke with all of those different police liaison teams was everyone's primary concern was a, a lone actor or a small group of people that would try and infiltrate the convoy to do something, whether incite some type of violence or plant something in an effort to to discredit the convoy. And that was the impression. I, I, that was the impression that I had from the different police agencies that they shared that same concern. Right. I don't think it was ever communicated to me that people were fearful or that, that the police were fearful that convoy participants and supporters were going to be violent. That that was, I don't ever remember that conversation happening. And in fact, there was a couple of, there was two people in particular, one very specific that initially was written about in the media as though he was associated to the convoy and had been arrested and charged for carrying a weapon in a public place. And I actually was able to prove that I had communicated concerns about that individual with the police I'd shared intelligence about that individual and I had, and I still have uh, evidence of his social media posts. He is a local Ottawa resident. He's a regular, he's had regular contact with the local police. I know that he's a regular with the local police even prior to this incident and his social media posts are targeting the freedom convoy and, and accusing them of being evildoers and that they were going to get what they deserved. And yet the media tried to portray him as being a part of the freedom convoy, as opposed to someone targeting it. So that that's just one specific example of the complete false narrative that was being told to the world and to Canada from the legacy media and uh, that was in complete contradiction from what my observations and experience were on the ground. So do you think he could have been an asset? Or just a person where I, he came out with this information, the media just hopped on it, or was this like a constructed narrative with him from the beginning? I, well, I think he, 
I think he has regular contact with uh, the local police. Mm-hmm. I I would venture to say that he may have some mental health mm-hmm. issues, and but what I think is most likely the case is that with his arrest and his charge involving carrying a weapon, the media jumped on that opportunity to try and make it appear as though people associated with the convoy were dangerous. Mm-hmm. Cause that was, that was uh, the, the narrative that we kept hearing over and over again is that they're aggressive and they're dangerous and they're violent and threats of violence. And that was absolutely not the case. Like if you were to be there in person, if anyone bothered to take the time to go down in person, they would have seen people of all backgrounds hugging each other, smiling, dancing in the streets. Like it was, it was a festival like uh, atmosphere and the joy, you could just feel the joy. It was almost overwhelming. Like for me, I had, I had become so disillusioned with the direction Canada was heading. There was many times where I was angry at myself for not getting my family out of the country and getting them to a a Montana or a Texas or a Florida, like a stronghold state where our freedoms would be respected. And when that convoy rolled into the town and you've seen the atmosphere that was there, I've never seen the city of Ottawa that unified and that hopeful. Um, I've worked every Canada Day celebration that has been in the downtown core over the last eight years didn't even come close to the atmosphere that was uh, downtown Ottawa, especially on the weekends when uh, the crowds were larger. It was, there was no hate, only only directed at the convoy, but not from the convoy. Mm-hmm. It, that my experience. Mm-hmm. And can I ask you, like, is your, in your former job as um officer um, of the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, what what was it exactly that you did and how close were you to uh, Trudeau or like other members of, of uh, the government? I was, for the last eight years, so for the first seven years, I was like a, a patrol officer, like a uniform patrol officer, and I worked in the Yukon Territory. And then in 2013, I was transferred to Ottawa and for the last eight years, I have been working as a full-time uh, sniper observer on our uh, the National Division Emergency Response Team. So, like, that's our version of a SWAT. Uh, it would almost be similar to the German GSG-9, mm-hmm. but um, but we don't have that clear your national mandate like there's teams all across the country mm-hmm. in in the different provinces and territories but that is uh similar to what you would have in germany um but we also did a lot of vip actually the bulk of what my team did was uh vip protection for the prime minister and for other visiting heads of state mm-hmm. mm. What is your impression? I mean, we've seen a short video clip of uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's brother trying to explain why his brother, uh, and he's on our side of the fence, why his brother is doing what he's doing. And he, I, I guess he's trying to cling to the belief that uh, Justin Trudeau 
believes that he's doing the right thing. I, I, I have no idea what to think of that, but uh, from what we've learned through the interviews that we've do, we've been doing with uh, people who know lots more about these, um, about the details of the background of this, from what we've learned, he cannot be that innocent. I mean, they we know now that he's a graduate of uh, the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Program. Um, what is your impression? Well, when he first came into office, my impression was that he, from what I'd heard, especially with people who were much closer to him, people that were worked with him closely on a regular basis, was that he was a kind person, even though I didn't necessarily believe that he was qualified to be in his position. But over that, over, over time, my, my, my view on that has changed. And especially within the last, well, two years, last year in particular, the, the language that he has used directed at people such as myself, without knowing us personally, just the generalizations and the derogatory terms that he has used to describe people like me and my family. In my, in my view, it, I don't care what your political views are. You don't speak about other human beings that way, especially if you have zero evidence to back it up. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, that's the theme that I've seen from this official narrative over and over again. Uh, I I've talked about the three themes that kept coming up when I was doing my open source investigation. This number one is general vague statements without any detailed evidence to back it up. Number two was verbal condescending attacks on anyone who questioned their narrative or had a different viewpoint. And number three was the inappropriate analogies, like uh, comparing the injections to to a seatbelt or a helmet or a piece of body armor in my case and i will no they're to me that's 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 ridiculous i those are things that i wear on the outside of my body they've yeah. been around for decades i know the advantages and limitations of each and i can take it off when i'm finished using it right so it's not the same thing period yeah and then whereas on the other side you know, these brilliant medical and scientific experts trying to desperately get their message out, willing to risk their neck, you know, uh, risking their career and their entire professional reputation and relationships, personal relationships that they've, that, that have suffered as a result, who are, they will speak to the evidence, they'll show you how it works, they'll explain the how and the why and they're and they're not afraid to show it right there's that's been my experience so i got a little bit sidetracked there i apologize but when it comes to the prime minister he may have shown himself or uh, displayed himself to be a, a virtuous kind and compassionate human being and perhaps he still believes that himself but i can tell you that the impact that he has had on millions of Canadians has been very damaging. And, you know, um, 
there's even been instances where people have been targeted with aggression and violence and threats. Um, perhaps not as a direct result of things that he said, but it, I don't think it's a stretch to believe that his derogatory comments about people like me have influenced people's views, right? Like they have made us out to be a danger to humanity and that it, because uh, of our choices, that's the reason why everybody else is continuing to suffer despite the fact that it is the government who is imposing lockdowns and mask mandates and um, all the restrictions. It's not up to me. I've never imposed that on anyone. Kind person. I don't think so anymore. Not after what we've seen, uh, what he did to the truckers or to the people who tried to support the truckers, who tried to give them money, who tried to give them food, gas, etc. A kind person doesn't go after these people who are completely innocent the way that he did. But by exposing himself, by pulling down his own mask, I think he did us a great service because it now makes it a whole lot easier to see through this fog, to see through the apparition of kindness, which is not kindness at all. It does seem to me that he, just like all the others who graduated from this um, Young Global Leaders Program, are just puppets and nothing else. You alluded to this at the beginning of uh, your answering my question because you said you didn't really believe that he was qualified for the job. I don't think any of these people are qualified for the job. They're just there because somebody else put them there um and i don't know um from from we we've seen his counterparts here in germany uh one of them is the um is the president of the european union she failed mm -hmm. at every single job that she's ever held um one of them is our former secretary of health um uh there are so many people out there one of them is our foreign secretary she cannot even talk. I mean, she stumbled through every sentence that she's ever tried to uh, utter. This is so um, ridiculous that I have come to the conclusion that the other side is using this. Uh, they're not just using these people for their purposes, but they're also trying to make fun of us, uh, trying to make us look as ridiculous as possible by having us believe that we have voted for these people, when in effect we haven't. Um, but in essence, what all of this boils down to is that we have to continue to expose this. This is what one of the most important, I, I mentioned him, uh, Professor Desmond, that's what he says. We have to mm -hmm. be a voice in all of this because the more people like uh, Roger Hutkinson, like Byron Bridle, the more people of their caliber speak out, the more people are going to listen because you cannot, you cannot shut everyone down. There's way too many of us. What do you think, um, Daniel, what how is the um what's the um what's the uh, prevailing feeling amongst the canadian population uh is it as bad as it is here i mean here in germany it's probably only between 20 and 30 percent of the people who are sick and tired of what's going on and maybe only 10 percent of the people who understand what's going on i i would if I was to hazard a guess, I would say it's probably very 
uh, representative of what's happening in Germany. Um, you know, despite massive crowds coming out in support in Ottawa, when you go to a local grocery store or an arena, which I just was able to go to again yesterday, mm -hmm. um, the, it still appears to me that the vast majority of people are still living in one in the in the fear of COVID that has been imposed on them by the government and public health and the media. Um, I mean, e even our own Dr. Tam, uh, she's our chief medical officer. Mm -hmm. She's gone back and forth on the masking issue throughout the last two years, mostly at the beginning and, and just recently again at the end. She publicly stated that the surgical mask and the cloth mask don't provide any real adequate protection and said that really all that would be considered I don't want to I don't want to you uh, twist her words I want to make sure it's accurate but along the lines of a fit tested n95 respirator is what would possibly be considered adequate and yet everyone is still wearing the cloth masks and surgical masks everywhere even though our own chief medical officer of health has publicly stated that they do nothing essentially and there's i mean i i didn't focus a pile of my time on the testing issue or the masking issue because it's just it's so big mm -hmm. to all the different threads that you could pull on to unravel this narrative but i mean you listen to a, a Dr. Paul Alexander or read some of his document, uh, read some of his uh, publications in the Brownstone Institute, like it's overwhelmingly the case that there's so much evidence showing that the masks that people are using do nothing. Mm -hmm. And our own, yeah, the CDC, I think the CDC has admitted that recently, mm -hmm. like they're changing their masking requirements. And I think it was Dr. I want to say Dr. Laura Chen, uh, possibly in the United States made a, almost the exact same statement as uh, Dr. Tam, but I think it was on one of the major news networks in, in the U S right around the same time. Like I want to say that was beginning to mid December. And yet, I mean, yeah, the majority of people who have listened to the official narrative and taken their guidance from the initial narrative, aren't paying attention or don't appear to be paying attention to the most recent information out there. Mm -hmm. So I suspect it's still very much the situation in Canada would probably be very similar to what you're seeing in, in, in most of the developed world. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems to be a little bit different in the United States because they have some of the, what we would call free states like Montana, Texas, yeah. Florida, um, and even in those other states like california is one of the states that is under complete control of one of their puppets but even in those states it seems that uh there is not necessarily a majority of the people but a large group of maybe 40 or even 50 percent of the people who don't buy into the narrative anymore i'm not saying that they're all fully informed but at least they're asking questions uh, so in that sense the united states seems to be different um, but here in europe um, and as you said in most of the developed world uh, but in particular here in europe the um, the pressure is 
so heavy. It is it is so massive on the people. We're bombarded 24-7. We're being bombarded by the mainstream media and uh, our politicians, who are really their politicians, that it's very hard for people to um, learn anything but what they first were taught to obey. Um, they listen to the first thing they hear, and then they shut down. Then they don't listen to anything anymore. It is changing, but it's very slowly changing. Um, one thing that uh, is probably different here in Europe, um, as opposed to the United States or Canada, is they're changing the narrative. They're switching over from Corona to Ukraine war in mm. ukraine so that is what they're constant what they're focusing on because i think even though most people don't seem to understand uh about or uh, a, a large group of the population doesn't still seems to buy into the corona narrative um many of them are becoming frustrated and um and 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 just don't want to go just don't want to go along with it anymore because there's no evidence there's no real evidence for this um, virus being as deadly as everyone seems to be portraying it. So that is why they think they need to find something new. They need to keep to find a new narrative to keep us all under control, to keep us in panic mode. Is that um, is that something that people talk about in in Canada, the Ukraine crisis? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's it's dominated all of the all of the large media networks, I would say, and mm -hmm. even even social media. You see it everywhere. I mean, I really only am on Twitter, mm -hmm. um, but that it's it's. I would say it dominates the narrative as well. So it, and I mean, I'm no geopolitical expert, but it definitely. I mean, my suspicious investigator <laughs> mind says like, oh well, that's a convenient timing, right? You just yeah. invoked the emergency act to crush a peaceful protest you know, with police action that I have not witnessed in my career towards peaceful people and free, un, you know, completely unjustified freezing of people's uh, bank accounts, which yeah. I believe completely backfired on them and yeah. was the reason why they backpedaled um, within a few days, mm -hmm. probably because of pressure from the banking system is what I would suspect. Mm -hmm. And, and then, but now focus your attention over here. Let's forget about everything that just happened in Canada. We just destroyed or stomped on individual rights and freedoms, like our charter, our constitutional charter protected rights and freedoms in our own country. But now we're gonna stand up and virtue signal about people's rights and freedoms in another country. Yeah. And it's it's, it's I, I've I've mentioned this before when it comes to the, the variant narrative and then what was happening in Ottawa over those three weeks. And now it just seems like an extension of that, that same pattern that you see, right? They they ramp up the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. The situation isn't as dire as they make it out to be. And then there's something much smaller scale that occurs, but it fits some of their rhetoric and and it gets everybody outraged or in a panic and it derails anything that you're trying to 
any objectives that you're trying to accomplish. And, and then that pattern just keeps recycling itself over and over again. Like you saw it with the variants mm-hmm. over and over again, just, just as people start to let their anxiety come down a little bit and feel better about the, the environment or the situation, boom, there's a new variant, get everyone panicked and fearful again. And that same thing was happening in Ottawa during the, during the three weeks that their convoy was here. It was a lot of rhetoric, which would heighten people's anxiety. And then they'd follow it by a little minor police action and it would totally derail everyone's confidence and really had an impact on uh, the anxiety level of, of people that were supporting the convoy. And, and that, that pattern repeated itself over and over again until they finally did move in with a large scale police action um, and the emergency act. And now I, I, my belief is that this is just a, a global extension of that same pattern, right? Um, I don't know what the real world situation is on the ground there. I don't pretend to know, but what I do remind myself on a regular basis is that what I have learned over the last two years, especially is that whatever our government and mainstream media are saying, I have to question Mm -hmm. and I'm tilting towards the opposite Mm -hmm. of what they're saying is probably the truth. You know, like, cause I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand, especially those three weeks in Ottawa, they were completely misrepresenting the actual situation on the ground. 100%. So the, uh, the whole, um, the whole convoy that's all gone. What's the, what's the status? What's the feeling in the population right now? from what you can see? Well, I know a lot of people felt like they had a lot of purpose um, being in Ottawa as part of that protest. It felt like it was a real sense of hope that we could restore our freedoms. And then after the convoy was dismantled, there was a lot that you could tell, like there was a very somber, somber tone, a somber atmosphere. But if you look at, there was a lot of, things that were accomplished as a result you know they might try and claim that it had nothing to do with the trucks but i don't believe that for a second Mm -hmm. you know um the official opposition leader was replaced uh multiple provinces have eliminated um the requirement for vaccine passports or proof of vaccination uh some are actively they're they're actively pulling back their restrictions and have like concrete timelines as to when restrictions will be ended. Um, So I don't want to get too complacent there because I'll believe it when I see it, that that's how I'm trying to, I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, a lot of people are concerned that the provinces might drop their restrictions only to have like a federal digital ID implemented. I don't know enough about that yet to, to, form a educated opinion but i'm cautiously optimistic that we are progressing in the right direction in the restoration of our freedom and i don't care what any of those politicians say or those public health officers say it is a hundred percent in my view as a result of the freedom convoy and the fact that it shook it shook canada and it shook the world to say like there are millions of us that are done with this nonsense and we're not you pushed us too far. 
right? You took away our ability to provide for our family and you took away our ability to travel within, within our own country and outside of our own country. And the one that I think really hit home for a lot of people is you took away our ability to be actively involved in our children's lives, right? I mean, not to make it all about me, but my personal experience, which I know has been shared by many, and like, thankfully my kids were never subject to a mandate uh, as a result of their age, but, you know, I wasn't allowed to coach minor hockey, neither was my wife. We've been actively involved in that right from the beginning, you know, and I was technically I wasn't even allowed into an arena because of the, the vaccine passport system. And so our, our federal health minister, I'd say probably late December, early January, had made a statement about how effective are the mandate, the provincial and the federal mandates were in increasing uptake of the injection. And I think he quoted the number of 3 million Canadians since the implementation of the mandates, 3 million additional Canadians had, had taken it. And my interpretation of that was that, okay, if mandates didn't come in until come into effect until probably mid-October to mid-November, depending on what government agency you were working with. But I guess it affected private industry as well. Like if if people had not taken it by that time, I doubt that they did it because it was because they truly believed it was the best medical choice for them. It's because they were coerced to do it in order to keep their job, mm -hmm. travel, and be involved in their children's lives. So great. Yeah. They're effective at coercing people. But when you look at, when you look at the government's own information, and I, I've, I've looked at like some of the bigger provinces, especially Ontario and Quebec, and then uh, Alberta and BC as well, like that period of mid December to mid January, overwhelmingly then um, like I'm thinking of Ontario specific right now, overwhelmingly the new hospitalizations that were COVID related were within people who were partial or, you know, fully vaccinated according to their definition. And then even in the ICUs, it had it, the, the percentage was more than more than 50% were people that had taken the injections, but, but all they kept saying in the media was like, it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right. And they're overwhelming the healthcare system yet that clearly was not the case, even based on their own provincial information. And then when you look at the intensive care um, capacity for the province of Ontario, which is the biggest, most populated province, um, they were operating at roughly 75% or lower uh, capacity. Mm -hmm. And only about roughly 10 to 20% of those patients were, were COVID-related patients. And that's according to their own Public Health Ontario information. But their own information was not matching what they were saying in the media. And that's what people listen to. Very few people are going to take the time to actually look and find out for themselves. And still so crazy. It's the same, exactly the same thing yeah. here. It's everywhere. It's same. like the same pattern. It's, an, yeah. it's grotesque. It's, yeah, a lock, it's, it's a lockstep approach. This is, this is something that people, well, you know, the thing is that most people who hear this will take this as an argument, um, 
in favor of, oh, they're just doing the right thing. They're, they just happen to do the right thing at the very same time in every single place of the world. Uh, us, uh, the people on our side of the fence, are taking this for what it is. This is a staged pandemic. This, is, this has been planned for many, many years. We know it because we spoke to the people who were involved in this. One of them was the uh, uh, someone who, who participated in Operation uh, Dark Winter in, in uh, 2001. So we know this is staged, and everything that we see confirms this. Um, it's funny how, it's not funny, but it's, uh, it's weird how um, everything is coming to light at the same time everywhere. The fact mm -hmm. that, for example, the healthcare system was never, ever in danger of being overwhelmed. The fact that it's the vaccinated who are the real problem, uh, not just in Canada, but uh, the numbers that we're getting from the UK and from uh, from uh, Israel in particular show us mm -hmm. that there, 85 or 86 percent of the people who are hospitalized with COVID symptoms, not just positive PCR tests because they don't mean anything, uh, hospitalized with COVID symptoms have been twice or even three times vaccinated. And this is this should give everyone pause. The problem is that not everyone knows this, only us. But it's going to change. Well, our own prime minister was positive and sick with COVID after being, uh, you know, triple triple injected right i think that was that was near the beginning like probably within the first week of the convoy being in ottawa he, when he was in hiding mm -hmm. he was also uh, like publicly even announced that he had tested positive and was quarantined with covid and that he had covid symptoms mm -hmm. so i mean uh, to me I, I just can't understand why you would ever continue to berate people who made a different opinion when it clearly by the prime minister's own admission doesn't prevent infection or transmission um pardon me but can, do you hear a ringing in the background or is that just on my end no it's just on no? your end we don't hear it no no we okay i hear you perfectly right. well mm -hmm. okay perfect it must just be an incoming call on the computer oh yeah I'll just ignore it yeah, but you know, it's also interesting that you have these, um, the, like a carrot on a stick uh, game, like that you see all around the world as well, you know, where they say, um, well, the, the measures are all going to end soon. Like for Germany, it's they, um, you know, um, said it might be the case on, on March 20th. But at the same time, then they do have a, a hearing in the government, in the, in the parliaments for, um, uh, for voting on like maybe getting uh, vaccine introducing mandates. Uh, vaccine mandates so you know it's like a, it's kind of like when the the protests get too intense like here as well we have a lot of people marching on the like walking on the streets like every monday and another day days in the week and so if it's too much so they lure you into thinking oh it's going to be over soon you know like everything's going to be uh, uh, ended and then at the same time they work on the whole thing from another end. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be also a little bit of a scheme, I think. Of course. Uh, and that, that's exactly why I said, I will believe it when I see it, yeah. because we've had, even a number of our provincial governments have have done a 180, you know, like they're reopening, we're open for business. And then after a period of a few weeks, complete 180 degree turn and 
lockdowns, vaccine passports, mask mandates back in place. So yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And I'm, I, I would, I would encourage everyone to pay attention to what's happening within their own country's government while everyone is being focused on Ukraine. Yeah. Like there's, there's a number of bills that are being uh, yeah. amended or changed in Canada right now. Yeah. Um, that I think a lot of people would be concerned about if they knew more about them. I haven't, uh, I haven't read through all of them in detail. I've, I've taken a peek at a few that really are of interest to me specifically. And I've heard nothing about that in the media. Like you, you can find it on the ourcommons.ca website, which uh, specifies the things that are being worked on uh, federal legislation right now, currently, while everyone is focused on what's happening in Ukraine. This is precisely, it's it's happening behind our backs, uh, and it's supposed to happen behind our backs. We're not supposed to be involved in this. Uh, I don't think that even our uh, our members of parliament understand what's really going on. Um, But this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to introduce the World Health Organization's uh, freely invented constitution, which is not supported by any democratic process because the people who invented it have not been elected by anyone. Uh, they're trying to use their constitution plus their, what are they called, international health regulations, and uh, supplant our national constitutions, our national um, uh, 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 legal system by the WHO's. They're trying to introduce their legal system, which is not a legal system at all. It's just a means to uh, achieve world domination. I mean, it sounds strange and crazy, but that's that's how it is. They're trying to use this and uh, get rid of our local, national, not just governments, but also our uh, our constitutions. What I have to say to this is it doesn't matter. Because by the time this is over, and it will be over, and maybe soon, by the time this is over, we're going to be, our 20% are, are going to be the real 80%. And then we're just going to disconnect from all these meaningless criminal organizations, such as the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, the EU, NATO, all of them. We're going to get rid of them. They can do what they, what, what, whatever they want to do, but they're not going to dominate us because we're going to disconnect I think that's the only way to deal with them. Create our own parallel society, disconnect yeah. from them, and then they're all going to go to no. hell. Yeah. I, yeah, I, uh, I certainly hope that that's the case and that it, it, I mean, you see a lot of things shifting in the world right now. And I think what your assessment that you just laid out is I am of the same mindset, right? Um, we, we can't continue to function the, the way that we are. It's completely unsustainable. And it's just going to be more and more power centralized at the top on a global scale. And the rest of us are going to be like, uh, well, I mean, I've heard people talk about like the becoming serfs. Um, that, that's, that's my fear. And that's why, that's why I refuse to do nothing about it. I mean, no way. I'm not going to allow my kids to grow up in a in a country, in a world like that. No, no. So... We're not going to be their slaves. We're not going to be anyone's slaves. Um, here's the thing. I think ultimately um, 
this is self-destructive, just like Matthias Desmond, Professor Desmond from Belgium explained to us. It is self-destructive. Mm -hmm. They're already throwing their own people under the bus. Um, mm. So I do think that we not only have the right, but uh, we don't have a choice but to, but to create our own system of justice, healthcare, uh, education, and economics. Because as you explained, when you saw what was happening uh, in Ottawa with the convoy, you not only saw the bad signs, how they're trying to attack them and inf infiltrate them, but the most important thing that you notice is that people were really good people, that they're enjoying what they're doing, that they're connecting. And that is something that they do not, the other side has no access to. That is what we have to focus on because the, we, only we, only us, only we are capable of connecting and, well, I keep, I said that once, uh, uh, I think, in a speech that they uh, played on a video clip in Trafalgar Square. We can hug and dance and sing and love, and they can't. They just can't. Yeah. They, they yeah, can only go through the motions, they, but they can't. I mean, all, <laughs> for, for, for a government and media, you know, that, that claims to be virtuous and tolerant of every person's individual um, characteristics and freedom to formulate your own identity it's complete hypocrisy yeah. right they they are they preach tolerance yet they are intolerant and they preach anti-hate but they're the ones that are spreading the most hateful messaging of all and even even the counter protests that we saw in Ottawa, people that rallied to counter against the convoy, they were more aggressive, they were more hateful, they were the ones carrying like the, the hammer and sickle flag of the former Soviet Union. Um, people tried to make allegations about flags that were being carried by people associated with the convoy, but I don't believe for a second that that was someone that was part of the convoy. I fully, fully believe that that was someone who was deliberately trying to bring discredit to the convoy. And there's a video out there that shows the perfect example of that uh, with the, I think it was the Washington Examiner. If you search that online, it'll show someone carrying a, a Confederate flag and they're wearing a full mask over their face, which is some of the only people out there wearing masks. Um, and, and, the, and the entire crowd is like ridiculing that person about carrying that and to and directing them to get it out of there it's got no place amongst the convoy supporters i like 100 i've never seen so many people from so many backgrounds being so accepting and welcoming of one another um it didn't matter what religion what race what gender what your age everyone there was just like embracing each other with smiles on their faces big hugs like every, you could tell people for two years had been so starved of that human connection. It was th that truck convoy unified the nation far more than any government that I've ever experienced by far. And I remember um, there was a, a Quebec trucker spoke to me and, you know, Quebec is kind of its own, um, micro has a very unique mm -hmm. personality within the country of Canada, right? There, there's a very, there's a, there's a significant Quebec population that would like to separate and be its own country. Mm -hmm. 
And this trucker was telling me that he was a Quebec separatist beforehand. And now, as a result of what he experienced with the convoy and the support that everyone was showing each other, that he was he had never been so proud to be a Canadian and that he was no longer a separatist. And he said that to me in person. And you see, there's always been a little bit of a contentious relationship between some of the Eastern Canada provinces and Western Canada provinces. You know, a specific example here is Alberta and Quebec. Mm -hmm. And yet you've seen pictures of people holding Alberta flags and Quebec flags together, like in unison, which is, you know, that that's that's not the message that most of us received growing up like i grew up in alberta and there was always that animosity well not always but there was a level of animosity um, regarding eastern canada you know because the way our electoral system works is that if in a federal election if you win ontario and you win quebec western canadian votes don't even matter right like the election is decided by the time before the Western Canadian vote is even counted. Whereas like this was not that animosity at all. 100%. Uh, you know it was more unifying than anything I've ever seen. I would like to cite this. Uh, I think it's the shortest poem that Ezra Pound has written. It's um, it's um, it's the the apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black ball. And I think this is what we uh, what we experience right now. You know, it's like these human faces. You know, it's these people popping up like all around the world in this darkness, basically. And um, we see them. These are people who really mean democracy, who mean freedom, who mean well for the other human being. I think it's going to be more and more petals as we go along. We're going. Oh, I right, agree. We're definitely yeah. going in the right direction. And I don't. I, and I, I think, think so. People, from what you're telling us, people are beginning to understand. Not just in Canada, uh, but Canada is a case in point. Um, uh, uh, point in case. Um, people are beginning to understand that it's not about black against white, blue against gray, uh, Germans against Americans, Russians against American. It's us humans against those non-human monsters who are trying to gain complete control over us. And we can see them. We can see mm. them. We can see many of them. Uh, we can see many more every day. And that's good. That's what's going to make the difference. Us understanding what's really going on. That's why it's so important to get the truth out, to keep talking about what's really going on. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the most powerful things we can do is keep sharing our firsthand accounts, yes. our firsthand stories. I mean, I've met so many incredible people from so many interesting, interesting backgrounds, professionals from every I'll just leave it at that. Very interesting backgrounds, you know, and of the same mindset that have done their own investigation into what's really happening on a global scale. And you had mentioned earlier about trying the, the implementation of the World Health Organization's essentially their version of a constitution or their legal system, even though they're not they're not elected officials. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly what happened in all of our individual nations. Right. Like our unelected public health officials were dictating what regulations or laws, exactly. I, I say regulations, yeah. were put in place to override our fundamental rights and freedoms. And so then uh, what you're what you were talking about is just a global scale of that. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I don't think they're going to pull it off. In fact, I, I'm confident that we're, what happened in Canada, which it, I, I love the fact that it was us because that no one would ever expect it to be, you know, peaceful, friendly Canadians helped initiate something worldwide that is like a, a global freedom movement now. And I'm so for all of the negative that has occurred over the last two years, I'm so grateful to be a part of this and so grateful that I had a role to play and that, you know, I truly believe, like you said, that we are moving in the right direction and we're going to make a much better world as a result of what occurred the last two years. Yeah. You know, I've, I've learned who my real friends are. I've learned who I can rely on. And I am slowly finding what I was actually meant to do with my life. And this was definitely a part of it. I think that is true for all of us. Um, it is definitely so that us on this side of the fence, we don't want to go back to where we were. Now that we know that we've been lied to over the last decades, at least probably much longer, we don't want to go back there. We're, we want to do our own thing. We want to get our sovereignty back and we will. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I have this uh, explanation in my head for when people ask me about why I did what I did or why I've done what I've done, and especially in regards to the convoy, because there was so much negative press and with the lies and, and the, the false narrative, I say, I was there. I experienced it. I took a stance for what I believed in, standing up for truth, freedom, and respect for every individual. How can you go wrong with those three things? And that is exactly what the that convoy was all about. Truth, like open debate about what's really going on, as opposed to just censored one side of the story propaganda. Freedom fundamental freedoms, especially bodily autonomy. If you give that up, what do you have left? Yeah. And number three was um, respect for every individual, right? And <laughs> that's what the other side would have you believe they stand for. But that is clearly not the case, no. as evidenced by the last two years. No, no, they have been standing everything on its head. We spoke with uh, our friend Vera Sharaf. She's a Holocaust survivor. And um, and I met I met with her in person in, in Brussels very impressive person um, and she keeps reminding us that if we do not see the parallels between that uh, totalitarian regime during the third reich and what's happening now then we're going we're the real holocaust deniers we have to see these parallels so that we can avoid this from happening again i know they've 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 come pretty far but now we're here and we're going to stop them yeah, well, I, I, I hope that enough of us have learned from history not to allow it to repeat itself, the mistakes to repeat themselves. Uh, actually, on that note, I mean, I, I've, I've tried to stay away from the compar that comparison for a lot of my previous conversations because it's easy to get attacked by making that comparison. But one of, the, one of, the, one of my primary influences over the last number of years of how I have been trying to formulate how to live my best life 
has been Dr. Jordan Peterson. And one of his recommended readings was uh, Ordinary Men. And that is about that reserve police battalion that was basically came into Poland after the, after the Nazi war machine had moved through. And it details how regular men, middle-aged men, men about my age, who came from, I think most of them were from Hamburg, Germany. Um, they were regular people. You know, they, they didn't grow up in the, in the Hitler youth. And a lot of them were shopkeepers or factory workers, and they got pulled into this reserve police battalion. And, and that book details how they, the vast majority of them turned into cold-blooded killers, right? Like executing, even executing women and, and children. And I remember like listening to that book and, and his message, Peterson's message was like, don't think that that couldn't be you if you were in that circumstance, right? Like, except the fact that we all have the capacity inside of us to do good or evil. And I remember when I was, I was, I was listening to that book on audio, I was thinking to myself, God, like, I hope I would be strong enough to be the small percentage that refused to participate. And I hope that someone with my skill set would do even more than just not participate. And so when I saw the same, the same mindset of identifying groups and directing hate towards them happening, I felt like that was, that was a major reason why I felt like it was so necessary to speak out. Like I had said to a colleague right before I left, the uh, my old job was like there are crimes against humanity being committed against Canadians and globally, and we, the national police force, are doing nothing about it. And that was one of the final kind of thoughts I left yeah. with him, yeah. and that's why I'm here. I I do think you do have the capacity to do the right thing because you're doing the right thing. All of us are doing the right thing. Daniel, it's been an honor and a real pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you are uh, very, you're motivating a lot of people. Absolutely certain about that. Um, it's it's good to have you on our side of the fence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, sitting here with you, that's that's. Uh, thank you for the compliment. I mean, it's it's surreal to be face to face with you right now. Maybe one day we could actually do it in person. Um, We'd love to. We're going to have a party. I guess, yeah, a giant freedom party yeah. for certain. Absolutely. I'm in. All in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Thanks. Daniel. Thanks have so a much. great weekend. You too. Take care. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> so um, our next guest is a fellow Canadian, um, uh, Brian Peckford. He is a uh, former Newfoundland Premier, uh, and the last survivor of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. Um, uh, Brian, I know you've been uh, you've been uh, um, in uh, in our Zoom for a couple of minutes, so you probably have been able to listen what uh, to what Daniel Bolfart says. Um, do you agree with his assessment? Yeah, I was <clears throat> I was very happy to um, get in on the last part of the conversation with Daniel. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we 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 were together in Ottawa Great. Uh, for part of that convoy, and uh, I had been speaking out for uh, over a year, I guess, um, almost since the pandemic started in March 2020. 
uh, on this issue. And uh, it was, I was so pleasantly surprised to see somebody of Daniel's stature within the national police force come forward and join us in this, um, in this march or in this uh, very important movement that we're all now a part of. And so I had an opportunity. He wanted to call me and talk to me about the Charter Rights and Freedoms, given that I was the last surviving first minister mm-hmm. who helped create that document. And so I had an opportunity to discuss that with uh, Daniel and to meet him personally in, um, in Ottawa during the uh, truck convoy. So he is one of um, our heroes, obviously, as you could tell from talking to him, uh, just how, um, how, how deeply he feels about the, the issue at hand. And uh, there's quite a few, like uh, there's quite a few there's quite a few like Daniel, sorry, uh, uh, around uh, par- part of this movement from British Columbia in the west part of Canada to Newfoundland and Labrador in the east part of the country where I came from. I now live in British Columbia, but I was born and bred in Newfoundland and Labrador and was premier there for 10 years, from 1979 to 1989. I don't think anybody has been premier longer since, and I think only one before me. Uh, so, uh, and I was there. Uh, as a first minister, when the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was uh, talked about and was created and was passed into law. Um, you may know, if you want me to continue, you may know that Canada did not have a written Bill of Rights or a written Charter of Rights from 1867, when we became a country, to 1982. Mm-hmm. There was no written um, Charter of Rights or Bill of Rights, we came out of the British tradition of common law, okay? And so Canadians for all that 114 years were subjected to, if you had a grievance, which you think involved your individual rights and freedoms, you had to go to a lawyer and, and, and argue it and find some British common law, which was similar to your circumstance and argue it on that behalf, on your behalf, on your behalf. Of course, being on the North American continent, uh, with, with the elephant to the south, um, we were always looking at their Bill of Rights, which was in their mm-hmm. constitution only 15 years after they became a country, not 114 years like us. And so it, it evolved over time and became the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the Constitution Act of 1982, which I helped create. How is it that even someone of your stature, I mean, you're a very prominent person in Canada, how is it that even someone like you was ignored, or at least seemingly ignored, by the mainstream media? They, they totally ignored me, and it's a really good point, and I'm glad you raised it early on in this interview, because it is really bizarre, and uh, you will understand because you've been involved <laughs> in a number of bizarre things that have happened with our fellow homo sapiens over the last two or three years and longer in your career to know that these kinds of things still happen. I was writing uh, to newspapers before the pandemic occurred. Uh, After I finished politics, I retired from politics. As a matter of fact, at the age of 46, I was premier at the age of 36. So I was one of the uh, youngest around at the time. And that's why it's only me left, I guess, because I was one of the younger first ministers. 
but all through my period of retirement and I went into business, my wife and I, and then retired sort of permanently, we thought, until this came along, um, I would comment upon uh, public affairs in Canada and the United States and worldwide. Um, I, I like to think of my, I was a sort of a history English literature major and also uh, dabbled in, in economics and so on. But I, I became an English teacher and then later got into politics. But I was always involved in commentary on the national scene before the pandemic arrived. And I would get carried by the Globe and Mail, one of the national newspapers, by the National Post and other regional newspapers. And the broadcast media would call me and I would do TV and radio interviews. I mean, like, you know, I was part of the scene of a former politician still interested in public affairs. But when the pandemic hit and I began to write, and be skeptical about what was going on all the way to where is the vitamin D in all of this <laughs> to, to uh, hey, don't you know there is a Charter of Rights and Freedoms that's only 40 years old and that some of these governments are starting to, wow, they're getting close to the edge and then, you know, fall over all over and violate the uh, Charter all over the place. Uh, they, turned, they closed me down. I was saying to my wife, I, I wrote them last week and I haven't got an acknowledgement. Uh, it's not in the paper. It's, uh, it's not on their online thing. Um, uh, you know what happened and you couldn't get hold of anybody. And so they just shut me down completely from coast to coast. Uh, as a, and most of my letters were quite reasonable, uh, you know, posing questions, asking questions and doing a lot of the things and expressing a lot of the ideas you and your colleagues have been uh, presenting. Uh, and I, I came to recognize you early on in all of this and, and followed you to this very moment, to this very day. And so, uh, yeah, and so the trust, then I looked up and I saw the Trusted News Initiative came along a little bit later and I said, oh yeah, here we have it, BBC and then CBC in Canada, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which gets $1.2 billion of taxpayers every year right? 1.2 billion every year that, uh, oh yeah, they're part of the Trusted News Initiative, right? And of course, the other major media outlets in Canada will just, you know, uh, slavishly go along with what the CBC and BBC were doing, you know, and an Associated Press and Canadian Press and, you know, all of the other Reuters and all of the others were all part of this, this big thing. And then I began to realize that, wow, this is, this is a huge undertaking, and I'm, I'm just one of the many people who are being shut down around the world. And, and is this like, uh, so since you st you said it's it like basically was from the beginning that they wouldn't publish your comments anymore. So do you think they, they that seems like that they were prepared even before that, or do you think it's sort of like a, you know, a um, thing that they kind of, um, you know, expected this to happen? Like that it would well, be very, later on, like prohibited or whatever to publish yeah, anything very, critical. Very, very, that's very, very interesting because what really happened was three years ago, the Canadian government under pressure from the big media giants in Canada, which are not big media giants in the world, but big media giants in our, in our world, uh, had successfully persuaded the Canadian government to give them some money. And all of the press in Canada 
where $600 million was allocated, 600, Canadian, 600 million Canadian dollars was allocated to go out to all of the various news media to help them out because they always argued that the American media dominates Canada and we don't have our own national kind of voice and all of this kind of stuff. And these were all private corporations, Canadian CTV, for example, and Global News are two of the other TV stations in Canada. And then you had the Global Mail and the National Post and the other newspapers. So they were getting money from the government and therefore we're in a conflict of interest situation before the pandemic even arrived. So the, 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 the ground was sort of uh, <laughs> cultivated a little bit for them. So it was natural for them then to pick up on the government narrative from day one. That's what happened in Canada, well, sadly. And I mean, these very corporate giants were the ones that used to argue against the CPC, you know, unfair competition, unfair whatever. <laughs> they were the very ones who were taking the money that they criticized the CPC for having, right? And they were, and of course, the CPC was a crown corporation. So it happened early on here. And I'm not so sure in Europe um, it happened. happened here. Same thing happened yeah. here. Yeah. But but then when the pandemic started and the government started to really get involved and started to, yeah. to provide money to offset, uh, right, the mm -hmm. negativities of their lock lockdowns, they also gave more money to the press that way. Exactly. So they got it. They got it before the pandemic got, came, and they got it after the pandemic came with pandemic money, if you will. Yeah. Uh, for one better term. But the other po point I would like to make, and you might want to explore this, is this. And this is more deep. And, and this is where you people have have spent a lot of your time uh, commenting, and, and which I really, really appreciate. And that is, Canada began to lose its democracy about four or five decades ago. Wow. When Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the daddy of the present prime minister, became prime minister and started to enlarge the prime minister's office. And suddenly you saw the Parliament of Canada and the local MP having less and less, and the parliamentary committees having less influence, mm -hmm. and regional ministers took over, right? A regional minister for Western Canada, for the prairies, for Central Canada, for Maritimes, and Newfoundland and Labrador, okay? You go across the country. And so the power shifted from what is the people's house to the executive, and then about a couple of decades ago, all the way to the prime minister's office. So we really have a presidential system without a shot being fired or without a law being changed. And the prime minister's office today has about 15 or 1600 employees wow. reporting just to the prime minister of little Canada, 38 million people. And they already, and he already has 7,000 deputy ministers and, and, and assistant deputy ministers in all the departments. They're executives too. But he has his own staff besides that. It used to be two or three hundred. And now it's 16, 1700 and growing and growing wildly. So, and nothing happens now. And the cabinet, as a big as a cabinet, right? As we know in the British parliamentary system was all important, executive council, right? Uh, uh, orders and council law. Well, that's broken down into cabinet committees. And the full cabinet doesn't meet all that often, right? And nothing happens until it goes to the prime minister's office, okay? So, so we have moved. Uh, so the, the, the ground was really right when the pandemic came because this was also happening in the provinces. And as you know, uh, in terms of uh, uh, 
let's show I take structures of government, uh, the federal system in Canada, which sometimes called confederation, but really federation, we're one of the looser federations in the world. Okay, in other words, there's more separation of powers from the central government to the provinces than there is like in the German states or even in the American states. Okay, and so uh, there is that, that, that kind of division and premiers really have some power as the governors do in the United States. And therefore, you saw a shift in all the provinces at the same time as it was happening at the federal level. So what you have is a more executive form of government in Canada than outsiders really understand. And there's only somebody like me who's been through the system, mm -hmm. right? And saw it on the inside and the outside who can fu fully comment upon this with some degree of expertise and knowledge about the Canadian constitution and how the provinces and the federal government are supposed to work. And so it's really interesting that uh, the, 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 the ground was really cultivated a long time ago as we move from a more parliamentary system to an executive form of system, right? With the money coming from the, uh, the federal government to all of the press in Canada, so that when the pandemic hit, the provinces and the federal government both could initiate uh, actions against our constitution, against our constitution, without anybody saying very much because they had gotten used to an executive form of government. So these people who populate the staff of the um, the government is this? Um, would you know or suspect that these are also a lot of lobbyists or who who's working there? Absolutely, no, absolutely no question about it. And lobbying is very live. Well, in Canada, let me tell you. As a matter of fact, when I got out of politics, what I'm supposed to do, <laughs> what I'm supposed to do is to go with one of these lobbying firms, which I admit I did. For two weeks. <laughs> What happened to change your mind after two weeks? My first job was to be with these, I can't mention names. Um, I'm already in court because I've taken the federal government to court and we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah. But uh, uh, okay, so I don't want to go the <laughs> second time right now. But I'll be careful, but I'll answer your question as best I can. I went with this firm, and my first job was to be with one of the real senior people in this firm to go and meet a client. One of those, that client happened to be one of the big, big companies in Canada today and then. And I held, I went to the meeting with this person, and we had an all-day meeting with the owners and the executive of this company. They're very, very powerful in Canada today and were then. After the meeting was over, well, we got about two hours into the meeting and I realized, oh my gosh, I made a big mistake. I can't do this. The, the conversation was such that it was just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And I started looking out the window and trying to keep my sanity and not just get up and walk out or make a scene. Anyway, after the meeting was over, we went back to the hotel room in this Canadian city, not Ottawa, outside of Ottawa. Um, I said to my colleague, I can't do this. And he said, what do you mean? You can't do this. I said, this is wrong. We, I can't get involved in this. We flew back to Ottawa, and the next morning, I, before internet, 
I faxed my wife and told her I was on my way back home to Newfoundland. <laughs> and that uh, I'll tell her about it when I get home. I didn't want to upset her anymore. And I didn't want to upset myself as I got aboard the plane. <laughs> so I got home and I made, the next morning, the first thing I did was send a fax to this company saying, I resign. And uh, it's still going on today. That company still has the same influence in uh, if more mm -hmm. than during even my time. And so, yes, yeah, so there's a big lobbying system in Canada and a lot of the large corporations employ these lobbyists and some of them end up after their lobbyists becoming um, uh, uh, people who then end up in the prime minister's office or end up in a minister's office. But so we have both things going on. We have an independent, if you will, lobbying industry in and of itself. And then some of them who later uh, end up in either a minister's office or a prime minister's office or a premier's office. And so you got a coming and going, right? So anybody who thinks that uh, this country that's just north of America, because you hear the American news all the time, you don't hear a lot of Canadian news, is any different than the lobbyist systems that goes on down in the <laughs> down in Washington, D.C. I have news for you. <laughs> <laughs> no difference, huh? No, 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 no difference. Only in the phraseology used, right? And in some of the ways in which we do it. <clears throat> You would really appreciate that. I've always used this. The wink and the nod is very much alive in Canada. And because lots of times, as you know, you can't put it in writing, right? You can't do the phone because it might be tapped. Mm -hmm. And so they do it by like uh, obscure uh, dinner meetings or, or, or lunch meetings, uh, uh, which is hard to write, to record or whatever. And then uh, they, they talk a language, which is... Uh, you know, a, a strange and weird language, but through it all, outcomes, yes, you can go ahead and get that meeting now, or no, you can't, you got to wait till next week, or whatever, right? We, we all know the game, <clears throat> and that's the way it's played. So, <clears throat> when I got out of politics, um, and I fought this all the while I was in politics, when I was leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador, I fought this every day. Every, almost every day, I had somebody coming to, through the side door, the back door, to give me money or say, you know, perhaps it's time for you to retire and there's a lovely beach down in Bermuda somewhere and, uh, you know, we'll see you 20 years from now with a million dollars a year or whatever, okay? So I had that happen to me personally. And so I know I've been through that. So I fought that for, for 10 years. And one of my phrases when I resigned, when I retired from politics, I, I won all my elections and everything. But people say you can't win elections by being honest. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll disagree with them. Uh, you can't. It's hard. It's tough. And you got to be at it almost 20 hours a day for 10 years. But uh, you can do it. But uh, it's really tough. And you, and you lose a lot of friends and all that kind of stuff. But I always said uh, when I <clears throat> retired that one of the reasons I retired, I wasn't ruthless enough anymore. Because you had to be really tough. Right? You had to be really tough. And you had to be tough on your friends. Right? Who they did something wrong. I had a, a, a friend of mine who we went through politics together and we got into... Uh, the cabinet, and when I became premier, he was a cabinet minister in my my uh, my cabinet, and he did something wrong, and I had to fire him. I had to call him in. He was my best friend. I'd known him for 20, 25 years. And I'd just say to him, I'm sorry, you know, you know me. We were friends for a long while, and I don't, I don't put up with any untoward behavior whatsoever, and you did something which was in, in conflict to what our ethics rules say, and you have, you know, I had to fire you. You're gone. 
so these are tough, tough things that you have to do. <clears throat> Unfortunately, over the years, even with more and more conflict of interest legislation, there was more and more uh, the evasion of it and, and more and more corruption going on. And so then when I got out of politics and got into my small firm, just my wife and I, because we didn't want to be with the big boys because I already had a two week experience. <laughs> so I, I had to make my, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I knew I had to do it because, and I'm sure you, you can relate to this. If you're raised a certain way, as a boy, as a child, and you go and you, you're lucky enough to have even one or two good teachers, even one or two good teachers, and you have good parents, um, and then you go on in life to a job, right? Um, you have certain basic morals and a certain, you know, morality about you that you didn't even know you had. You picked it up by osmosis, by growing up in a decent family. Yeah. Right. Well, then your belly button starts to take over. It, you don't have to process it through some great intellectual equation, yeah. right? You know it. You know it to be what it is, and that's what what happened to me. And so, uh, it was natural for me to say no in that after that two weeks, and for my wife and I to make our own. My grandfather fished off the island of land for fifty years. He went to the seal fishery for 49 years out on the ice, was a part of two sealing disasters. My, my, my father was a policeman uh, first and then a social worker. I grew up in a home of, of a man who was doing social work in isolated parts of Newfoundland and Labrador and could see people's plight, right? And every evening when we'd have supper, we'd hear stories about my dad at his office or when he traveled around to isolated communities and seeing how people struggled to make uh, two ends meet, right? To, to, to get along in life. And, and so those experiences were very important to me in growing up. And therefore, when I did get an elected office and then later as a, as a little business consultant with my wife, we knew what the rules were and what the rules were if we were going to do business with somebody else, right? And so, sadly, there's not enough of that going on today in politics in the world and in, uh, in my world, in the Canadian world. And it was sort of natural for me then when the pandemic sort of broke and um, we started looking at the data, some of the facts, you know, being in government, you know, give me the, I want the information provide me with the information. And then in, in, in business the same way, you began to see what we had experienced, what I had experienced both in politics as a politician and then as a business person, right? And then we just looked at them one another so we, 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 can't, we can't participate in this, you know. You know a, a, a company that's selling product by, from, which they will not stand behind, from which they have no liability. And that was the first thing for us. I mean, how can you sell me something and, I, and tell me that if anything happens as a result of it, you have no liability? I mean, do you need to go any further than that? You know, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty basic stuff, especially today when you go out and you buy a new car and you got a warranty on it, right? Part, some of the warranties two years, some of it's even 10 years, right? And so, and you're telling me now I'm going to put something in my body <laughs> no, and you have no warranty on it? Give me a break. So, 
I guess that's a quick summary of who I am. And you uh, just mentioned that lawsuit. Uh, you're suing the Canadian federal government over its travel ban for the unvaccinated. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> when, I started, when I started on this sort of crusade, and I started doing public meetings, I live on Vancouver Island, off the coast of British Columbia, right? A beautiful island, uh, well-known around the world as having one of the mildest climates in Canada. Right now, outside my window here, we have we had snow in January for a week, and we some years we don't have snow at all. It'll be about 12 degrees today. It went down to about five last night. So that's the kind of right temperate climate I live in now, as opposed to where I lived in Newfoundland and Labrador. But as I got involved in this, and I, I have my own blog, which gets anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people a day mm -hmm. reading my blog around the world, 64 different countries, uh, and you know, concentration in the US and Canada, but still a fair number from all over the world who read my stuff and make comments and so on. So I'm fairly well known now, you know, in, that, in those blog circles. <clears throat> and I start writing about, <clears throat> like I said earlier, the warranty. <laughs> Uh, on the product, and then about where's vitamin D and all of this, right? And uh, oh, that test doesn't really work, and, and so on. And then we had doctors put under notice here in British Columbia, losing their jobs because they they had they had the they had the vaccine hesitancy. <laughs> and I used to stay on my blog and say when I interviewed people, I didn't see that in the criminal code. I didn't know that this was some some kind of crime because you asked a question about a product for which there was only an experimental being thing being done. And anyway, so th that's how I got involved. And so when I was doing all of these um, meetings in my area up and down Vancouver Island, full house, people, people outside waiting to try to get in, fire regulations said you couldn't get in because the place is full, every single one. Uh, I, would, I was talking and I was explaining the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, the freedom to assemble the freedom of freedom to associate life liberty security of the person freedom of speech freedom of religion freedom of conscience equality before the law those are the four areas in the charter which i concentrated on after i did about six or seven of those it sort of dawned on me when i got up on you're talking a good talk Beckford. where's the walk <laughs> And then my wife and I said to one another, oh, and then the federal travel man had come in. And now, you know, I couldn't travel to speak because right? the country's too long. It's too big, right? It'd take me hours and hours to, to go and I waste days on one speech. So I had to concentrate on Vancouver on where I could drive in a couple of hours to another city and give a speech. Well, this is crazy. So uh, I said, I, I better start to walk to walk. So I contacted the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, who are an organization in Canada. They're helping people fight against these measures and other unconstitutional measures, even before the pandemic came in. And they had agreed to assist me, and they had an outside lawyer as well, who was a, a, a great litigant and in this area. So uh, I signed up and said, I want to I launch a, a suit. And I took it against the federal government, rather than the provincial mandates, which are a little more complex because it automatically applies to all Canadians. Mm -hmm. right? This is a federal mandate, interprovincial. Interprovincial is federal under the constitution. 
so everybody would understand right away. Every Canadian could connect. They had family in Nova Scotia, they had family or a business in Saskatchewan, right? They came from Ontario and now are living on the West Coast, whatever. So everybody could automatically associate with my uh, legal suit and that gave it a, a higher degree of popularity quickly besides my own stature in the country uh, and because they could relate to it. And so I've launched a lawsuit through the Justice Center, now registered with the Federal Court of Canada, and we're waiting to get the judge and get who their Crown Counsel is going to be, and we're going to argue that uh, what uh, the Canadian government is doing is unconstitutional because Section 6 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms says every Canadian has the right to travel anywhere in Canada or leave Canada. Hallelujah. What happened to, what happened to this? And of course, uh, they're trying to, uh, to, to say they, they can still do this. Every single government in Canada, and by the way, there's 14 governments in Canada of a real note, not non-municipal, okay? And they are the 10 provinces, the federal government, and three territories. And the three territories are Nunavut, which is an Inuit group in the north, and they have a territory, and they're lesser than a province, but still have their own government. And there's a lot of, something like, I guess, Scotland and Wales are as in England right now, where they devolve certain powers, but they're not provincial. They haven't got all the powers of a province. So they're still really a ward of Ottawa with certain education, health, okay, powers in their little legislature. So there's 14 legislatures in Canada, okay? Not 10 and one, it's 14. So there's the Nunavut, Northwest Territories, and the Yukon, our three territories, and then the 10 provinces of Canada and the federal government. All of those governments have brought in mandates which violate our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. All of them. One followed the other. And, of course, I guess the federal government of Canada followed Washington, right? And our, our, our infamous Dr. Fauci and all the rest of it, his cabal of, of, of pharma people, who are trying to dictate how we're supposed to live in this world. So <clears throat> the Charter of Rights and Freedoms is very important to me for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is this, you'll understand. Where I come from in Newfoundland, Labrador, we weren't part of Canada when I was born. Now, I was born in 1942. We became a part of Canada in 1949. We didn't join back in 1867. We never joined like the other provinces, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, also the early 1900s. We didn't. We had, we, had, we had elections about it and said, no, we want to stay independent. You mean you were like an independent country? Yes. Wow. Like, like New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. I didn't know that. Yes. So I was born in Newfoundland and Labradorian, not a Canadian. We adopted Canada in 1949 through referendum. We're the only place in Canada that had a referendum about joining the country. No other part of Canada came into confederation the way we did. So it's very important to me because we actually adopted or joined Canada, right? And, and therefore, being growing up then in a province and becoming premier, and then being part of the first major overhaul of the Constitution in 114 years. And, and I gave up certain uh, points that I wanted to see in this 
enlarged constitution in 1981 for the sake of Canada. In 1949, for example, the first first minister of Newfoundland who helped bring Newfoundland in the Confederation, if you will, gave away our fisheries power completely to the federal government. And I wanted a, a, a better sharing of powers because that was our basic industry in Newfoundland from John Cabot when he discovered in 1497, right up until when I became premier. <clears throat> it was our major industry, especially as it related to how many people you had employed. It was very, right, uh, labor intensive, small boat fishermen, as well as medium boat fishermen. So I actually, I mentioned this on an interview last night and some Canadians had forgotten about this as well. You know, I gave up as a premier of Newfoundland a lot so that we would have a charter of rights and freedoms. And I dropped at the last minute. I fought it. I'm the only first minister of Canada that took the federal government to court three times. Wow. Over freedoms, right? And yeah. fair sharing of wealth and fair sharing of powers, okay? I'm the only one who did that. I lost three times, by the way. But one through the back door and another on, on my offshore oil and gas, which is another issue. But I fought the fishery big time when I was when I was premier. And so for me at the table in eight, 1981, when we signed the deal and it became law in 1982, this was a big deal. It was a big deal for all of us because we all conceded different points around the table, all, all ten of us and the federal government. And so when we got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in writing, every Canadian is equal before the law. That means a lot. And we never ever had it before, right? And when I go to public meetings now and I explain this to people, uh, there's a, you could hear a pin drop in the room. There's complete and utter silence. And I usually do about a 40 minute presentation of our history constitutionally to bring it up to where I'm talking to you now. They begin to understand because I start saying that because Canada is so much a collective, so socialistic, in, uh, has 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 grown that way that a lot of people had forgotten even in 40 years that we had this document, that we had this document. And it wasn't all about lobby groups, right? that you as a person, right? And I always say, you know, there's no two snowflakes alike, alike. there's no two individuals alike. And when I say that, it clicks. It really clicks with people. And then I say, you have, as a person, right? You have the freedom to assemble. You have the freedom to associate. You have freedom of expression. You have freedom of religion. You have freedom of conscience. And you have freedom of the press, right? And you have life, liberty, and the security of the person. That's in Section 7, right? Security of the person. When I say security of the person, the light goes on again. Because <laughs> what does security of the person mean? You can't touch my body unless I agree. And now we're right in the, now my speech is right in the pandemic, right? And people really understand. And then when I tell them about my own personal history and what we gave up in order to have these individual rights and freedoms, of course, that becomes a very powerful message and uh, resonates with, with a lot of people. And so now when I hear this internationally and, and on this program with you and you and, and, and uh, hear your articulation 
from a more global perspective. As Daniel Goldford said when he ended his interview with you a little while ago, I'm all in. I'm all in. That's what it's all about. And, and, no question. Mm -hmm. That's what it's all about. And I, 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 I so, like I said earlier, I, I had a few teachers and, a, and parents who believed in the individual. My dad was six of us in the family. And my dad and my mom always treated us as individuals. We were, I was never lumped in with my older brother. Uh, the next brother to me was never lumped in with me. They understood we were all different. And when we went to school, one got a 60 and one got a 70. Both were celebrated. Right? Or then they had, one of my brothers had a talent I didn't have. That was celebrated to make sure that my brother felt just as much a part of the family as I did who got an 80, right? So, so that the equality of the person, the, 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 the uniqueness of the individual was important. And in, and in Newfoundland terms, <clears throat> that's how our history developed, right? Because it was individual fishermen. There were no companies. There was no companies. There were individual fishermen. And we bartered our fish. As a matter of fact, we bartered our fish for rum in Jamaica <laughs> and Barbados. The first trade in Newfoundland, besides bringing the fish back to England or back to Spain or back to Portugal or back to Eastern European countries or back to the you know, UK, was the trade that developed later was a trade with the Caribbean. They wanted salt fish. And we wanted the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so it, was, it was very individual, right? Mm. It was very individual. So, and I lost that for a while as I grew up, went to university and all the rest, and then got involved in teaching them in politics. I, I picked it up back teaching. I only taught for five years before I got into politics, but I picked it up in teaching because here you were before group of individuals right in the classroom all of them very very different and i picked it up back teaching and then i get carried on into uh, into politics and so I, I i'm lucky in that sense that i uh, i had parents and i had i come from a history of individuals who fished and were hardy people trying to scrape out a living on the rocky shores of, of newfoundland that's why you're so connected to reality and those people who are so highly educated uh, medical practitioners are completely not all of them of course but are completely out of touch yeah my own my own family physician the same way and, and it's, it's just it's just so sad mm -hmm. uh, to see people who who have closed their mind to any other piece of research except what comes out from the public health officer Daniel mentioned earlier about the public health officers in Canada, and they're the ones that are controlling it. And I say in my speeches, no, they're just the serfs. They're, they're the people who are being ordered around by the elected people because they're hiding behind the public health officer because they have to have power from the legislature to do what they're doing. So I always bring it back to the elected. It's the elected that we've got to change. And you were right earlier when you talked to Daniel that we've got to start from scratch. Yeah. We, we, we can't reform the system. This okay. system cannot be reformed. Yeah. And, and that's what's happening in Canada now with the Conservative Party getting a new, a new leadership convention. They think the, the leader had to resign because he was just a disaster altogether. 
but now they're they're looking for a new leader and but they're they're only going to change the face they're not going to change their system their party system it remains in place and therefore they're not getting at the structural problems that are existent in western society today that have permeated every nook and cranny of this system this system is irreparably defective <laughs> yeah exactly and i try to show that to people because i have a book here there is one man in canada that wrote a book about the, the decline of democracy and it's only about two years old he's a scholar but he had been a public servant and i bring this book with me everywhere i go and i tell everybody who's really interested in reading if you really want to see it documented and not just alleged by a former politician who's now entering his 80th year if you want to see it from uh, you know a real documented factual point of view just read this book <clears throat> and and it explains it all to them and but and and, and so we have it we know it in canada from people like this person who wrote this book uh, the decline of democracy and how um, you just can't reform it through by putting in different party leaders yeah. and so on you know the whole parliamentary system has to be changed the whole system of how we operate as a people has, has to be changed in order for the individual <laughs> person to feel connected to his society. Yeah. And, and that seems to be what Daniel Bulford has experienced when he uh, helped the convoy in, in Ottawa and in other places. And, in, and it, it was so obvious, he was so authentic, it was so obvi obvious that he's deeply moved by that. That's what this is all about. Well, you, you hit the nail right on the head. I was there too. I went down and spoke on the parliamentary building. They kept asking me to come down to speak. And of course, I had difficulty getting from British Columbia to Ottawa uh, because I couldn't travel on normal means. And we leave it for another day how I got there and how I got, got back. But I got there and I got back. But walking the streets of Ottawa at eight and nine in the evening as the as darkness fell, and seeing these people, these moms and dads and children on the streets, keep the streets clean, they kept the streets, crime went down in Ottawa while the truck convoy was there. The city police of Ottawa had to admit that crime went down after the convoy. I, I mean, like, give me a break, right? And then they arrest these people under this emergency act, right? Which of course had to be taken down quite quickly because the international community told them, you know, we're not going to invest in a banana republic like this. You better get rid of this real fast. And of course, you know what? In in this old political system, you know how money talks. Yes. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. It's all over, right? Yeah. It's gone within a day. You know, one one day they were terrorists. The next day it was all over, right? I mean, like, <clears throat> you know that story. But walking down the streets of Ottawa with my wife and my daughter. <clears throat> On one of those nights that I was there, and, and we we just couldn't believe it ourselves. I mean, they told about us on t television. Daniel did, and others who were in Ottawa before I got there, uh, and were explaining to us because they couldn't do it on the mainstream media. But we had enough of the other alternate media, media to to get the message out. Uh, but when you see it on the ground yourself, and you see these people with their little barbecues, you know, getting supper in the snow in the snow, uh, giving out hot chocolate to whoever came along, giving out a coffee or a sandwich or whatever, 
cleaning up everything. The next morning, out playing with the kids who lived next door in an apartment building, right? looking after everything uh, and asking. This is the thing that even Canadians don't know today. Daniel and his people actually asking the government for a meeting mm -hmm. and the government turning them down. And then later they say, right, that they were insurrectionists and all this kind of stuff. They were asking for a meeting. And we, <clears throat> I was part of behind the scenes of negotiations where we were moving trucks from the more residential areas up to where Parliament Hill was, closer to the Parliament Hill, but away from any interference with the citizens in these apartment buildings. We did two, three deals with the Ottawa police to do that. The Ottawa police did talk to us because <clears throat> they were on the ground right there every day. And we persuaded the chief of police and others to talk who later resigned and then they got another chief of police. But the government itself, the federal government right there, sitting right there, the big parliament bill, Hill building and all the rest of it, we're sitting there, you know, and here we have delegations going to, not only to the government, but to the conservative opposition, which, which are, were supposed to be on our side, hmm. uh, asking for meetings to see how we could uh, uh, mutually live together in this situation without causing too much trouble, but exercising our civil disobedience rights. Exercising our rights as individual voters and citizens of Canada. We asked for those meetings and they turned them down. And that's another thing that's really not known, that how civilized this uh, truck convoy was. What happened was, <clears throat> was that there were so many truckers coming from different parts of Canada. And as Daniel explained to you, you know, you're coming from Eastern Canada, 5,000 miles from St. John's, Newfoundland wow. to Victoria, British Columbia. 5,000 miles. Second largest country in the world. There's only Russia larger than, than, than Canada, right? So it's a huge country. So you've got people like Daniel saying coming from Quebec, whoever their unique circumstance. So there were truckers that came to Ottawa <clears throat> that were not part of the main truck convoy. And early on, <clears throat> uh, were causing some problems, right? But the main truck convoy, which then took over Ottawa, were legally uh, constituted. The lawyer that acting for me also acted for the truck convoy for example and he had them as they were driving to ottawa legally incorporated and a board of directors and accountants and lawyers and everything they were a decent legal entity these are the people who were with daniel were trying to get meetings with the government it wasn't some roughshod group of people who didn't know what they were doing it was an organized legal entity with accountants and lawyers and board of directors and a full, you know, decision-making system in place. This makes it all the more incredulous of what the government did, right? Because, right? And, 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 and so when I saw these people walking down that street, I mean, anybody, anybody with half a soul walking down the streets of Ottawa, when I walked down the streets of Ottawa, would have had to join them. I mean, there was just... I mean, it was just overwhelming. You would just have to join them because uh, they were so civil, so reasonable, so sensible, and just asking, please allow me to drive my truck across the border, right, without having to have this experimental vaccination put in my body. That's, and they were asking it on behalf of a lot of other people. Some of them were even vaccinated themselves, but understood the rights that their other colleagues had who were unvaccinated and actually left their jobs and put everything at risk. 
<clears throat> the leader, by the way, the lady, Kamara Leash, is still in jail. As we speak today, they've kept her in jail and they have no legal basis for keeping her in jail. They froze her bank account. People had to give her money. Uh, they, they've had a number of bail hearings. She's still in jail in Canada today for no good reason. Incredible. We didn't know that. No. Tamara is still the, the, the lady who I met. I met the board when I was down there. They wanted to meet me, right? Because they, 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 they really respected me as a former leader, the only one. There's no former ministers, no former anybody who's in politics, only me in all of Canada. <laughs> and so they said, who is this guy? Right? You know, some of them had heard of me through their parents. I'm going on 80. And so they, they knew of me. And then when I came out and just said, I, I, I'm with you, right? I, and I was, I was out there before they even did their convoy. They had heard of me articulating individual rights and freedoms. And one reason why some of them got on the road, because they knew someone like me was behind them, right? Boy, and now here, and here we are in Canada, right? So-called democracy, which is not a democracy anymore as long as this violation of our charter happens, with the leader of a legally identified group of people with the board of directors and all the rest, a decent lady, a decent, you know, everything about her and all of the board, just decent people, and she's still in jail, not even out on bail. Wow, how long has she? How how long has she been in jail now? Now what, eight or ten days? <laughs> well, she'll come out soon. This... And, and, and guess what? You got to know this. This is the killer. The female judge who heard and is hearing her case was a former liberal candidate in the election back in 2011 for, for Justin Trudeau. My God. Tells you the whole story. All of these puppets everywhere. That's why the system is irreparably defective. There's nothing you can do about that. And the chief judge didn't say, oh, I noticed when we, uh, you know, when you came on the bench in your history, right? Oh, yeah, you were, you ran for the Liberal Party, which is the government of Canada right now. And who was praised, we got the video of Justin Trudeau praising her. And what a great Remember, she'll make when she gets elected because assumed she'd automatically be elected. Thank God she never got elected. But of course, unfortunately, you know what he did? He, he, he paid her off, right? He put her on the bench because she was a lawyer. Now she, she qualified to go on the bench. So she goes on the bench. And who hears the case? So the chief judge of that, <clears throat> of that court should have said, you can't hear this case. Mm -hmm. But more particularly, she should have said, I recuse myself, right? Yes. yes. I will not hear this because I'm in a conflict of interest situation because I ran for the party that's now the government of Canada. She did not. Yeah, she should now, have accused herself. Yeah. Exactly. You know that in legal terms. So, so when, when, when you say and I say and all of us who are involved in this, you know, that the system has to be changed right from the bottom up. Yeah. Exhibit A. Exhibit A. Exhibit A. a. Lady judge in Ottawa who's hearing the case, right, of a truck leader who was the liberal candidate for the governing power right now. I mean, 
how more blatant can you get? I mean, you think people would be out on the streets just, just, just on that alone. How can we have a, a fair system if people who have a question against the government is going to be heard by a person who had run for that party, which is now the government of the country? Embarrassing. And it's embarrassing. Exactly. It is very, very embarrassing. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you have highlighted Canada because very often we're viewed as a nice people. That's the word that people say about Canada. Well, what do you think Canada? Right? Oh, they're nice people. Nice people. That's what they especially need to say. We're, we're nice. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, was I in your way? Oh, excuse me. Right? <clears throat> we're very nice people. Yeah, you're well, more than that. This made a huge impact internationally, a huge impact. Yeah. Exhibit B, by the way, for the necessity to have a new system and for the capacity of Canadians to have a new system is that convoy. I mean, you're. this is something we didn't know. That is a legal entity. They created in no time. They created a legal entity with accountants, lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. Now that shows you it can be done. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that nice people suddenly realized, right, that the governments, right, had gone over, you know, had gone too far. Yeah. And, and they realized it before this. I mean, you know, I've been around Canada now a long time, and, but it never came to the surface. It never had a catalyst, right? It never had a catalyst before with the truckers that became the catalyst. Because we knew, we knew a lot of people, ordinary people knew the regulations. Like here on Vancouver Island now, my wife just came from a from a lady yesterday, right? Uh, in a little rural park, right? An agricultural park just outside. The little city I live in is only 12,000 people, okay? So it's all very rural, lots of family farms, right? And, and so on. They're closing down. They're closing, why are they closing down? The regulations that the bureaucrats are putting in place, they can't, they can't make a living anymore at this. So it's gonna be taken up by the big boys, right? The big boys are gonna take over. And this is what's happening, you know, they, uh, throughout all of Vancouver Island. So this is happening all over Canada, has been happening, like I said, for 40 years. We've become more and more, uh, you know, state-run as, as a country. The state is involved. The provinces and the federal government now are involved in just about every aspect of our lives here in Canada. Every aspect, including the press, as we just I talked about earlier, where they're getting paid. Everybody's getting something from the government somehow. That's why people in Canada today can't find a lawyer to fight the charter cases. Why? Because they're all on retainer from either the provincial government or its agencies, the federal government or its agencies, or the municipal government or its agencies, or a school board, yeah. or a hospital foundation, right? Yeah. So there's no lawyers left. There's no lawyers left. So there's the smaller provinces. And Newfoundland, you should see the number of calls I had from my former constituents saying, Brian, can you help me? I can't find a lawyer in Newfoundland and Labrador. So, right, this is what, so there was a feeling for quite a few years, as you get more and more regulations, right, that, you know, we were losing our democracy, we were losing our individual autonomy, we were losing any, any say in the system. Mm -hmm. And the truckers, it culminated in the truckers. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. There's, we can't thank them enough. We can't thank them no. enough. They did this. They, they did the world a great service, not just Canadians, because they were seen and heard everywhere, everywhere. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and 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 I mean, what a better symbol for individual rights than blue collar workers, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, I I was I, I was born and raised in rural Newfoundland. My parents came from the capital city, although all their my uh, grandparents and so on lived in rural parts. But I, I grew up in rural parts, born and raised in rural parts. So when I go now to a small community, and the, and the, they're you know. There's 400 people in the church, by the way. The Christians are the ones who come to the forefront here on this. It's been the Christians because they understand individual rights and freedoms a lot better than the more secular people. But when I go to a lot of these places, the first thing they say to me, even before I walk in, they're lined up outside and I'm walking in to this church, just block right full of people. The gallery is full, right? And I'm walking up and people are saying, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Mr. Beckford, for coming, right? Because they understand. And I turn around and I say to them, and my first opening words is, I'm here. I, you know, thank you for thanking me. Even before I open my mouth, you're thanking me. And you're grateful that I came to explain because they were starving for understanding what was happening to them, right? They were starving for understanding. I say to them, I come from small. I come from small and I will never forget small. That's why I'm here tonight. Big can be big. Small can be small. And I'm here because I don't forget you. Because you're, that's what the charter is all about. That's what the Bill of Rights is all about. That's what individual rights and freedoms is all about. It's about you as a person. That's what this is all and about. That means yeah. It's, uh, it's us as a person, as opposed to dehumanized transhumanism. Totally. Totally. And we just got to stay on this thing so, so strongly. I mean, I, every time I do an interview, you know, and uh, I do one or two a day now um, because there was a, a time there back a few weeks ago when the trucker thing was on, when my wife and I would get up at eight o'clock in the morning, she had to get really involved. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of the secretary, executive assistant now on setting all of this stuff up because I got so busy that we were eating our breakfast at three o'clock in the afternoon. We were on the phone, on our iPads, setting up meetings, people calling, people coming to the door. And so uh, we had to say, you know, we've got to organize this a little bit better. we got to eat, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's been a real journey for us. But I'm not complaining. I'm bragging. I'm bragging because we, we enjoyed it so much. We didn't even think about eating, and that's what, and and that's the that's the right that's the journey that we're on to get together, and we've just got to stay on this journey so that we create uh, a new society whereby uh, what we're talking about gets manifested on the ground and in sensible governance structures. Yeah, we will do that because we know we're on the right track. We're doing the right thing. There's nothing else we can do. Absolutely. There's absolutely nothing else we can do because, um, you know, I think about when, the, I, like I said, I studied history and I, I love the classics and I, I go back to Solon all the time who came out of retirement. Solon came out of retirement back in 500, 498 or something BC as a, as a merchant and because the Athens was about to be destroyed, right, the civil war because the oligarchs had just taken over completely and the ordinary person was just a slave. And so the, the old, the, the, here's what happened in Solon's case, it's just so relevant to today. 
It was the ordinary people who went to Solon because he was one of the few honest merchants they knew of. And his dad had been before him, apparently. And they went to him and said, can you say, we're, you know, everything's going to be destroyed, you know? <clears throat> and so you're the only one, can you go and barter something with these wealthy people and bring about some change here so that we have some rights and freedoms and, you know, we don't all get destroyed. And he said, I will. And he went and talked to his friends in the merchant class and persuaded them that they had to eliminate all the debt that was owed to them by the ordinary people because they had got it illegally, right? Most of it they had got under coercion, as we know today, and other forms of that. So I go back to Solon, or I go back to the Middle Ages, right? And as we came out into a more reasoned, right, society, right? <clears throat> Montesquieu, for example, a great political philosopher and a mill later and others. But I go, and I think about these people and how they must have lived, you know, in the late Middle Ages and so on, and how in, in, in Solon's time they lived. And even Cicero tried, he failed, but he did try through the Senate to get a more reasonable governance system in place. There's not a lot. When you look back in history, there's not a lot. A lot of them just took advantage of the system. Yeah. Right? So we're, we're breaking the ground again in this so-called technological age. <laughs> we're so superior to Solon. <clears throat> when I say to people, how come we're still reading Plato and Aristotle and reading the, the dialogues that Plato had about Socrates? How come they're still relevant if we're so advanced? Right? Where's the philosophers of the day that can even, you know, in a moment match what Aristotle wrote or Plato wrote, for God's sake, right? So don't get too carried away with your little technological advances, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. There's a fundamental here of the individual, yeah. right? And you're not going to take it away from us. No way. No way. No way. Brian, this is a real honor. We're really honored to uh, have you on this uh on this committee, uh, and I know this is going to have another huge impact. All of a sudden, people are beginning to understand that Canadians are more than just nice people. They know how to do the <laughs> trick. They know how to turn this thing around. It's their blue-collar workers. It's the truckers who are getting your help and all the others' helps. Exactly, exactly. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciated the, the conversation, and I hope I contributed a little bit you know, understand a bit more about another part of our planet. I think this is great. This is making a big, big difference. And I really enjoyed it. We'll be in touch. Please do, because as my dad always said, he can talk all day long. <laughs> Thank you so much and have a great weekend. We'll come over and go fishing one of these days. Now, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. I then used... I could tell you a lot. Then I'll tell you a lot of Newfie stories. Sounds good to me. You know, I used to work in Seattle for a little bit, and that wasn't too oh, far away from Vancouver and Vancouver Island. Oh, no, no. We've been to Seattle very many, many times. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank you, so too. Have a wonderful weekend. You, too. Have the best, have the best weekend of your life. We will. <laughs> okay. Say hi to your wife. I will so. Take bye bye. Care. Take care. Yeah. Bye bye. Wow. Das ist also. Man muss schon sagen. Ich weiß los in Kanada. Ja.
things are happening in Canada. Yes, and they got people that support them. And if we have people like these, nothing can go wrong. But it's interesting to see that he says the only ex-whatever, and he used to be a premier minister um, of a whole province. That is somebody. It's incredible, <clears throat> incredible. But he is an a very optimistic person, and that's exactly what we need. It, he, he takes them all along. That's great. And that's why I understand why he has not lost a single election, as he said. That's good. Very good. Okay. Do we have any videos? Yes, we've got one, which is uh, from an American businessman who lives in Kiev, or used to, he used to be uh, in Kiev. Uh, I did a video a couple of days ago to show us what is going on there, and that's completely different than what the mainstream video tell us. Um, we have that clip, and beyond that, well, we're at the end of the session for today, and um, we depend on uh, donations uh, to continue our work, and it would be very gratifying, uh, gratifying if our uh, viewers could continue supporting us and um, um, the uh, technicians support us uh, without uh, payment. And it's really starting now. What Brian Peckford has said is we need a new system and we're the only ones able to do that. And we're going to invest that, everything that we have in that. Absolutely. Well, then we uh, wish everyone a, a good evening and a nice weekend, and we'll see you again next week. Have a nice weekend. So it's uh, about 9 a.m. on uh, Monday, February 28th, uh, 2022. As you can see, that's the VIP club of the um, Premier Palace Hotel. I'm walking down to Krishatik, and uh, I'm going to the supermarket to get some food they've announced that it's okay to go to supermarkets and pharmacies um the problem that we're having is that uh because of the weapons that the zelensky regime uh handed out willy-nilly in the last few days a lot of criminals have these uh military grade weapons quite frankly and so uh there's been robberies there's been looting there's been rapes there's been all kinds of havoc because of these criminals and uh, it's known for a fact that these, uh, that the, a lot of the shooting that went on last night in Kiev had nothing to do with the Russians. The Russians were 10 kilometers or more away from, from these shootings. So it was clearly probably gang related, gang settling scores and uh, shooting one another. Um, that's something that the Western media is not talking about of how the Zelensky regime by handing out weapons has uh, basically given weapons to all the criminal elements in the city and uh, the criminal elements in the city are uh, first of all figuring out uh, their dominance hierarchy and this anarchy that the government has created and soon enough once that's settled they'll start um, targeting the civilians that's what the uh zelensky regime has done okay so, so let's not pretend otherwise these these people have created they are creating chaos in Ukraine 
in the name of, uh, you know, the people fighting against the Russians. It's absurd. It's irresponsible. And it will only hurt the Ukrainian people. And uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that the Zelensky regime is evil. And, and uh, I live in Ukraine. I uh, have Ukrainian family members. I think that the Ukrainian people are a brave, gentle, and wonderful people. But um, at this time, I think that uh, the Zelensky regime has gone insane and uh, should be... Uh, no, you know? Anyway, for those people, there have been some people who have claimed that I'm lying about being in uh, Ukraine. As you can see, this is Krishatik Avenue. I'm standing right in the middle of it. Uh, this is probably a first in history. I'm standing right in the middle of Krishatik Avenue, and you can see in the distance everything. And, um, yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry if I sound a little frazzled, but, uh, you know, I'm actually worried about getting shot, man. Not by the, not shot by the Russians or shot by the Ukrainian army, but shot by fucking criminals that the Zelensky regime has armed here in Kiev. Uh, dude, I'm so fucking angry, man. These fuckers have, are creating chaos. And this will not stop the Russians. That's the thing. It will only cause the death of civilians. The death and suffering of civilians so that uh, Zelensky can have a fucking photo op. That's what's going on.